So hi, welcome to Directors Club. I'm returning guest co-host Bill Ackerman, uh, and I'm happy to be joined today by one of my favorite people to talk films with. You may have read her writing in Diabolique magazine, her chapters in the book Lost Girls, the Phantasmagorical Cinema of Jean Roland, or her booklet essay for the Arrow edition of Alexei Germán's Crystal of My Car. Or you may have heard her recent appearances on Mike White's Projection Booth podcast, where she and Alastair Pitts uh, were the guest co-hosts on a really incredible uh, series of episodes devoted to Soviet cinema, uh, one of the uh, podcast highlights of the year for me personally. Uh, welcome to the show, Jana D'Amelio. Hi, thank you so much, Bill. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite uh, contemporary filmmakers, uh, Mia hansen Love. Uh, we're going to be talking about all of her films, the first seven features, uh, going up to Bergman Island. Uh, we're going to make an instantly dated episode because she has a new film coming out in a matter of weeks. Uh, but uh, this is just going to be kind of a refresher and overview of her career. So, Jana, can you tell me what were your first impressions of her work? I, we saw Things to Come or Love and Year together. We did, yes. And as always, I was completely enamored with any uh, vehicle for Isabelle Huppert. But I really appreciated the fact that she gets to show tenderness in this film and, and humor. It's a great vehicle for her humor. And I think humor is an understated quality in Mia Hansen Love's work. So I was just captivated by the way that it showed through um, in La Vignette. Yeah, and I was, I was excited to see more of her work, but I didn't until we started preparing for this podcast. So it's been a real learning experience for me. Yeah, for me, I think I came to her with uh, Goodbye First Love whenever that hit DVD. I, I rented it from Video American and I, I, I have a weakness for coming of age films and French coming of age films. So I, I liked it and it, I think it made my list of favorites for that year. But I think it was when I saw Eden that it was like the reinforcing, like, okay, I really like this person's work. And then I, I've been kind of actively following ever since. And I went back to the first two features and um, I don't love them all equally, but even her weakest films, I still kind of enjoy. And I, I think she's yet to really disappoint me Um so I, I, I was telling you before we started recording, I made a little list of, of things I noticed kind of going through her whole filmography uh, in preparation for our talk today. And uh, so the first thing I would notice would be the, the visual style is really uh, prone towards, you know, an unobstructive clarity. Uh, with one exception, they're all shot on film and they don't really call attention to themselves in terms of the style. They're just kind of serving the... Uh, serving the story, serving the characters. There are stories that seem to involve a lot of elements of melodrama. You know, we have uh, stories of heartbreak, of drug addiction, of suicide, but the melodramatic aspects seem kind of muted to me. I don't know if you would agree, but the stories feel like they take uh, kind of subtle turns to avoid the messy conventional scenes that you might expect uh, in, a, in a melodrama. And we have characters that are selfish, but I don't know if there are any outright villains in her films. I think that the closest you get are the people that care about money or business. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, characters that comment on how little money a venture is making or uh, how much money the characters owe, you know, doing business is always presented as a problem. If it interrupts a moment of intimacy, even uh, uh, filmmaking is kind of uh, something that is kind of a verboten topic to talk about if the characters are having uh, an emotional moment. Um, these are stories of resilient characters. Many of them experience great pain, loss, disappointment. Uh, they're overcoming romantic heartbreak or professional disappointments. Even, um, even in one case, captivity or torture, they're overcoming uh, you know, real trauma. There are no original film scores for these movies. Um, plenty of scenes have their melodramatic possibilities muted by the lack of a, um, any kind of manipulation on the part of a score. 
but they're heavy on pre-existing music. Um, it's a strong component of all the films, um, whether it's folk music, dance music, uh, some rock music, and they're big on scenes of euphoric dancing. Lots of age gap relationships. Some of them are implied attraction, others are consummated, and we have gaps in time. Um, you know, the narratives can suddenly lunge ahead kind of unexpectedly uh, by months or years. Uh, we have characters trying to reconnect after a time apart. Lots of uh, either yeah, parents and children or romantic partners have a lot of flawed men, uh, sometimes tragically so, but um, they're especially warm-hearted playmates for small children. Um, there's not a lot of active uh, fathers present, but the guys, whatever the problems they have, they always seem to get along really well with small children. Um, there's a theme of freedom, um, a lot of wandering characters given to exploring places, and the places themselves feel really important in terms of inspiring the stories. Um, there's a lot of people escaping the city to experience rural environments, and uh, a few of the romances in these films are threatened by one party not being more of a city person. Uh, lots of references to other artists. You have a lot of uh, name-checking of poets, musicians, painters, novelists. And vocation is a big factor in these stories as well. I mean, the fact that you have a war reporter or a philosophy professor, a poet, a DJ, an architect, uh, a writer-director, producer, you know, these are characters defined by what they do to some degree. And, uh, and the parents don't always approve of their choices either. I mean, whether it's the vulgar art of movies or uh, agreeing in the risks that uh, a war journalist takes with their life. I mean, the parents are not always on the side of the characters. And, uh, of course, a lot of them are famously autobiographical in terms of their inspirations, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, Mia Hansen-Loeb's mentor or her brother, her mother, herself. I mean, these are very personal films more often than not. But, uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's my list. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's a really great overview of the themes in her work. She's described her filmography as a house with different rooms in it. And it's like you've turned it into a dollhouse by just, like, opening up the wall and like seeing all the different <laughs> compartments. I love it. Um, I was thinking about the best way to describe a Mia hansen Love film to someone who is versed in cinema, but who hadn't seen one of her films yet. Mm -hmm. And I, wanted, I was thinking about how to describe the experience of watching it. And I decided that the best place to start is a completely inappropriate place, with, which is uh, with the work of a very different auteur, Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. And Hitchcock talks a lot about how he manufactured suspense right he's mm. like the wrong way to do it is to show like a group of men sitting around a table chatting they're chatting about baseball and then out of nowhere a bomb under the table explodes killing all five men that's not suspense right there's no suspense there all you get is a brief shock as yeah. the viewer the right way to build suspense in cinema he says is to start with the men chatting about baseball, then cut to a shot of a bomb under the table. It's ticking down the countdown. And then we cut back to the men chatting. And all of a sudden for the audience, this chat about baseball takes on huge significance, right? We know that the bomb's about to go off. These sentences are the last things the men will ever utter. And then Hitchcock says, if you really want to keep the audience tense, you remove the bomb at the last minute and you replace it with some other looming threat. And that's how you keep an audience in suspense for the duration of a film. And why am I talking about suspense? It's because Mia Hansen-Love does exactly the opposite of this in <laughs> all of her films. And yet her best films are still incredibly suspenseful. We're gripped with their forward momentum. Um, and I think it's important just to talk quickly about how she builds the suspense, because it's true in all of her films. 
Um, and it's a way of introducing people to the structure of all of her films. And I want to start here because suspense is like something no one ever mentions about her work. Mm. So what would she do instead with the men in the baseball, right? In a Mia Hansen Lowe film, the bomb would go off, but we probably wouldn't see it. If we did, we'd see it in a very long shot. <laughs> we might learn about it through snippets of casual conversation as we follow the daughter of one of these men as she copes with his death, moves into adulthood, and finds her passion in a career in the arts and humanities, right? So that's super different. Mia Hansen-Love makes these quiet, contemplative films that really understate or leave out the dramatic moments that other directors would build their films around. So how is her work still gripping? Like, why are we still on the edge of our seats in her best films? And in interviews, she often borrows a metaphor from Truffaut, And she says that at every stage, from writing to editing her work, she wants her audience to feel like they are repeatedly jumping on a train that is already in motion. She says, I think you're always running after life, time, feelings, people. It's always happening before you're aware that it's happening. And that's how I try to write and edit my films. Like you said, like each of her films is a, is a portrait of a character in transition. Their life is hurtling ahead forward and we jump on and off the train of their life as it's going forward. Sometimes we jump on and 11 years have passed, sometimes only a few days. But regardless, we always have to figure this out for ourselves because Mia Hansen-Love never ages her characters, right? Yeah. And we jump on at really unconventional points in cinema. We jump on the train before or after a key event. And key information is often presented cryptically, like in passing. And we stay on the train of our character's life for unconventional periods, right? Scenes are often very short. They often begin in the middle of an activity and end before that activity is completed. And the train never really reaches any sort of traditional stop. We usually leave our characters while they're still in the process of growing, becoming, healing. But her work is suspenseful because the films force us to continually reorient ourselves in this character's life. And we're kind of struggling to catch our bearings sometimes. We have to become like trained detectives who need to like listen and watch carefully to tell why people are behaving the way they are, how much time has passed, what we've missed, what's going to happen before we're sort of lifted out and dropped into the future again. And I think some of her films earn this audience engagement, audience detection more effectively than others. Mm. Um, and I think this is really due in a large part to the charisma of her lead actor, of the person who's portrait is being painted and for me in in this respect her filmography is really hit or miss but the pacing is always similar she and she always works with the same editor Mario Mounier um, and often with similar DPs and producers so her films have a very similar feel and pacing but in her very best films the question like what's happening now and what are our characters going to do next are as gripping I think as they are in any Hitchcock film and like you know i should say like it's ridiculous to compare these two directors who had totally different intentions right <laughs> like hitchcock wanted to entertain and sort of alienate and jar his audience but hansen love creates these impressionistic portraits that like you say have very strong veins of autobiography each of her films feels much more personal and and each of her films is very tangibly loving you know and no one can really say that about hitchcock's work no 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 and i'm glad you brought up marion monier the uh, editor because that was one thing i noticed is that every feature we're talking about has the same editor and i was thinking about how that same kind of calm measured observational style is brought to every kind of story so even something like Eden, which is, you know, dealing with like this kind of vibrant youth culture. It's that same kind of measured, calm, observational style 
to that as it would be for something like Things to Come or Goodbye First Love, which are more, you know, seemingly more contemplative kind of stories, but it's the same approach regardless, you know, of, of the story. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, I'm not good at slow cinema. I get really impatient. And I think if I was listening to this podcast about a director who's slow and contemplative, I, I might turn it off. I'd be like, that's not for me. <laughs> but but it's it's her suspense that and the way she forces us to reorient ourselves that I think makes her films really worthwhile and really gripping, even for people like me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm curious to hear about the ones that you are less gripped by. Um, oh, we'll get there, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you worry about that. Yeah. Well, I guess before we get to the first feature, I'll just say that in terms of her path to becoming a a director, you know, she was somebody that acted in films uh, beginning with late August, early September, the Olivia Asias film. And she uh, appeared in two of his films, that one and uh, Ledethenea's uh, before becoming a student and then a critic where she wrote for Cayuta Cinema for two years and wrote, I think, something like 57 articles for them. So she was a prolific writer as a, as a critic. And she was also uh, directing short films pretty much in that same two-year period. I think even the first feature was written in the, uh, in the winter of 2003. But from 2003 to 2005, she was directing these, uh, these short films uh, and, and, and working as a freelance uh, film critic. And then she makes the jump to feature film directing with All is Forgiven, which comes out in 2007. I I don't know if we want to necessarily comment any of the shorts. I know that those are kind of harder for people to see outside of um, Un Per a Spirit. I don't know how to, if I might. Yeah. So that film is... It's funny because it it feels like a Mia Hansen Lowe film because it follows an adolescent girl who's kind of isolated and on her own and thoughtful and it's very pensive and sort of she's walking through a park and the world around her is very sort of male and aggressive and she seems at odds with it. Um, Mia Hansen Lowe said that that was her favorite of her shorts. Sadly, I was unable to find her first short. Um, and I say sadly because it stars Lolita Shama, who is one of my favorite actors and I wish she was in more things. Um, she's also the daughter of Isabelle Per. But I was able to see a second one of Mia Hansen Love's shorts. And it's called Platon of la Nuit Belle, and it's from 2005. And it seemed totally unrelated to the rest of her work. Like maybe it was a job she did as a favor. She's filming students from the Conservatory of Dramatic Arts where she studied performing an abridged version of Platonov by Chekhov, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty, it's like a pretty painful standard student dramatic production until Lolita Shama shows up and bam, we're like, we're suddenly in the midst of a real world. We have real feelings with her from her. Um, And then someone else, some other student steps into the frame and it gets Amdram again. Um, (laughs) But like Lolita Shama clearly from her student days had the quality of a magician that all great actors have and we need to see more of her. But anyway, so this play ends abruptly with a murder and the actors freeze and then bam like completely out of place an acoustic folk song in English starts playing and we immediately know why and then the first title comes up in its direction by Mia Hansen Loaf and Eli Wyman who is another director now but yeah those damn acoustic folk songs that she loves she's loved those for a long time baby yeah (laughs) I I was sort of curious about this consistency in her musical choices. And she said that the thing that she appreciates about folk music is its timeless quality. You don't really know what era to which it belongs, as well as its like melancholy undertones. And that that just makes sense for a director who makes melancholy films about the passing of time and generations. And so it sort of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
کوریدون 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 با دارن کوریدون باده کوریدون 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 با دارن کوریدون باده لایدون با دیر اندن یاریر Te help ye close your eye I'll sing a song, a slumber song A miner's lullaby Kuridum, 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 ma Kuridum, badi I was thinking about the folk music. Well, we'll, we'll get to Bergman Island, but uh, you know, I mean, it's something that shows up even in the first in the first feature. Which uh, I guess what to say about All Is Forgiven is that it's a story set in two time periods, 1995 and 2006. Uh, the first part concerns uh, Victor, a poet and an addict, uh, played by Paul Blaine, and then the second. Uh, second part focuses more on Pamela, his teenage daughter, and uh, it's about their reconnection. What was your first impression of this one? Yeah, so like all of her films, it it sort of looks at a character moving from one stage of life to another, coping with loss and trauma and finding freedom in accepting that these are just parts of life. Mm-hmm. And for me, All is Forgiven is, is I mean, it's a, it's a great film. I liked it. I don't think it's a great film. I think it's a good film. Um, but it's most interesting to me because it like so clearly, so immediately establishes her style, content, structure, and even the length of her, the rest of her films. And she would continue making films every two years after this with a brief interruption. You know, she made it when she was 23. And so it's just, it's really fascinating to see someone so mature as a filmmaker in her first feature. Whether her protagonists are sort of adolescents or adults, their portraits are recognizably similar, right? And they contain many of the same elements braided together in different ways as sort of her own ideas and life experience changes. And I think like looking at All is Forgiven in the context of her films, like in her first two films, we have the pattern of time passing being extremely simple, right? There's this two-part structure, like you said, there's before and after a trauma. And that trauma in her first two films is the separation of a father to one side and a mother and daughter or daughters to another And this traumatic separation takes place at like the exact midpoint of the film. And in part one, before the trauma, we sort of see these men who are are reckless in pursuit of their own interests, right? They're driven by a need to satisfy themselves in their art, their career, their conception of fatherhood, their addiction. Each man is sort of surrounded by support, offers of support, but they lack something in themselves. They like lack a kind of emotional maturity and an ability to be vulnerable an ability to like face reality and change perspectives accordingly. And the women in these films like have this quality, but the men don't. And for each man, for Victor in this film, there's some kind of failure. They fail to meet their own standards and they allow this failure to traumatize the people who love them. And in part two, our focus shifts to this man's adolescent daughter who's coping with his loss or in her second film, his daughter's. And what what allows the daughters to adapt and grow are those exact same qualities that their dads lacked, the ability to accept the inevitable, the ability to be vulnerable. And these qualities give the daughters um, an emotional resilience and a maturity that their fathers often didn't seem to have. 
like thinking about the elements that tie together her early work more specifically, like Mia Hansen Love's first four films focus largely on adolescence, which is delayed for her male characters. And this adolescence has these features of like romantic or familial loss, the pursuit of vocation, like you say, addiction, death, the threat of death. And I don't know if we want to go into this, but it's 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 kind of interesting the way that the stories that Mia Hansen Love tells about her own early life and her exposure to filmmaking, they all contain these themes of vocation and addiction. When she was 17, similar to the ages of her female protagonists in her first three films, um, she was cast as an actress in a film about men growing out of delayed adolescence and starting to make the choices that define their lives. And she's written that being on set and working on that film changed changed my life in the most concrete sense, even though it was only an eight-day shoot. In my mind, there was life before and after. I can divide it in two parts. And she went from being this kind of solitary, melancholy teenager to finding complete liberation. And she says an unequaled sense of belonging during the shoot um, that she immediately wanted to recapture when it was done. And addiction and vocation are often really linked in her work and in this story about her entry to cinema sounds like someone talking about the start of their addiction, right? Mm-hmm. And in later interviews, she describes feeling addicted to shooting. She's like, when I shoot a film, I have the feeling that I can finally understand what happiness is. And each time I start a new movie, the sensation comes back and it's extremely violent. And when the shoot is over, a real state of melancholy sets in. Well, yeah. One thing I was going to say is like, I didn't realize that at one point before she discovered filmmaking, she was an aspiring poet and really struggled to, to find her voice as a poet before kind of shifting her focus to filmmaking. And I think about the character Victor and how so much of his anguish that drives him to drugs is just like a uh, like a stifled kind of creative impulse, like that mm-hmm. that this is what's causing him the, the turmoil. Um, you know, and I think. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the delayed adolescence theme, you're, I mean, you're right. I mean, I think about how he, I don't know if, if you noticed this too. The first time I saw it, I thought that the the teenage girl that gives him the book of poetry was the Giselle character that he starts having the affair with later because the mm-hmm. actresses look so similar. They do look similar. Yeah, that would be really interesting. And that would fall in with her work. She loves to kind of braid characters together like like we see Pamela, the, the actress who plays adolescent Pamela in All is Forgiven, Constance Rousseau, appear in L'Avenir, in Things uh, Things to Come. And apparently in Things to Come, she also had the actor who played Paul in Eden show up briefly, but she ended up having to take him out because people were too confused. But yeah, so she does, in this, in this house of her filmography, she does like to leave the doors open for characters to sort of re-enter surprisingly. Yeah. And, and the the first two films also share a connection in that they have multiple family members playing either the same character or at least related characters. Because in this one, we have Victoria and Constance Rousseau uh, mm-hmm. playing Pamela at the two different ages. And then we'll have Louis de Lencaisong and his daughter both playing uh, father and daughter in Father of My Children. But in this one, because you were right that um, even though these stories can sometimes take place over several years. She never goes in for old age makeup or things that like really obviously change the appearance of the character. I mean, that she casts kind of younger talent in Goodbye First Love and Eden. So they might look kind of young for their age by the time yeah. they're much older, but um, she doesn't really go in for distracting makeup or even, you know, recasting the character very often. She just allows us to go with the the change and we just and we do i never even think about the fact that um the characters should be much older in appearance after a certain point but yeah yeah it's funny (sighs) yeah 
it's funny to like usually it's a mugs game right to to speculate about the veins of autobiography in a director's work but Mia Hansen Love is like really open about hers right so like her first short film describes a situation she found herself in being in your 20s and having your dad explain why he's divorcing your mom and all is forgiven she said was the story of her cousin and her uncle and then her second feature looks at the aftermath of the death of the producer of All Is Forgiven, mm-hmm. um, the person who first recognized a director in her, she says. Um, and then, like you, like you said, two of her later films are sort of portraits of her mom and her brother. And Bergman Island seems very autobiographical about her experience as a female director who's sort of in this crumbling long-term partnership. But it's like, I think her work also, also shows the downside to autobiography in cinema. And that's that her films really reflect the limitations of your own life, right? And and this can make for predictable, boring viewing with poor representation and very limited narratives. For example, like like in Mia Hansen Love's films, the characters who speak are almost always white, right? Our protagonists are always upper middle class. They're thin, they're able-bodied, they're fit, they're straight. The women wear little or no makeup, no bras. Everyone has a high education, family money. We see their family houses in the countryside. Their artists or intellectuals or both. They're younger students. They almost always live in like these sparsely stylish, well-lit apartments in central Paris. They're multilingual. They travel. So it seems like like Mia Hansen Love takes these elements totally for granted and seems like totally uninterested in stylistic flourishes. But that makes her films all feel very samey and very like if that world doesn't sound interesting to you, you should probably avoid her films, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, my uh, my 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 late friend Travis Crawford could not get into uh, Mia Hansen Love's films at all because for him, I think they all felt very kind of safe and bourgeois. I mean, he was mm-hmm. somebody that was more. I mean, he, he his idea of a of a French female auteur was you know more like Julie de Cournau. Like he was mm-hmm. more into Titan. He was not into <laughs> into middle class you know ennui. <laughs> But, yeah. But yeah, you know, which, you know, I mean, I, I think that that consistency you talk about, I mean, for me, I, I I've yet to be dissatisfied with one of her films, but I can I can totally see why some, including my favorite one, would not appeal to many people. <laughs> yeah. And it's it, it makes me think about like whether there are pressures on auteurs to deny or acknowledge the autobiographical nature of their work, because like people can be really dismissive of autobiography in cinema these days, like. Like you and I have both heard people complain, like everybody out there is just telling their own story. There's nothing provocative anymore. But at the same time, like, isn't there a kind of social responsibility in acknowledging the limitations of your perspective in your cinema authorship, right? And then I think really great directors exceed their own limitations thoughtfully by collaborating with the right people, like I think Celine Siama did in Girlhood. So yeah, I think I think it is possible as an auteur to make a conscientious film about an existence other than your own. But I'm I'm curious about how this happens and how it's done well. And I don't think Mia Hansen Love even tries to do that. No, yeah. I mean I feel like I feel like I can see her world kind of expanding as the films progress. In that she gets inspired by new places, and it feels like places inspire her as much as her experiences i think even something like bergman island and we're probably going to jump around the chronology but we'll we'll move film by film but yeah we're going to bounce around but like something like bergman island i think from what i understand she went to the the island of, of Faroo first to just get a feel for uh the places to inspire the story um and 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 it becomes the part it becomes the story in a sense because it's about a couple of filmmakers and one is inspired more by Bergman and one is inspired more by the Island. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You know, and I think something like Maya, 
for whatever faults it has, I mean, it is, I, I think it is a genuine effort to try to draw some inspiration from those locations. And then the story is almost kind of more of an afterthought in that case. But it's also, I think it's trying not to be overtly touristy, whether or not it succeeds in that or not. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if she made a film in America one day that was kind of like her fascination with Americana. I don't know if that would be good or bad. I don't know if she would make Paris, Texas or My Blueberry Nights. <laughs> but she yeah. would, you know, But she would probably be only driven to write the film after she got a sense of the world that it's going to take place in. Cause I think that that seems more her, I mean, even something like Bergman Island in, in a sense, she stops halfway through to retell goodbye first love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah. just, with, but, but excited by the new locations that she could set it in. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And she writes, she, she speaks about this too. And she, she says what you've just said, basically, like she's, she has this real impulse toward places that she's, she has an intimacy with. Yeah. Um, she says, I often film places I've been to places I know and which have a history with me. I think that's why I can't imagine myself making films in a studio because in a studio, we create from scratch places which don't exist and which don't have a story, which don't have a soul, except for the one that the film will try to give it. What interests or inspires me is, on the contrary, places where I can feel layers of history. Yeah. Yeah. As a, as a film locations buff, I kind of like the fact that her films feel, you know, for better, or for worse, very non-studio bound. I mean, they, they feel like they all take place in the world that she's traveled in and yeah. uh, that you could you could go and find the places and that they probably would be similar to how she presents them. Like, yeah. she, you know, she doesn't find odd angles or uh, like ostentatious production design. I think only in Bergman Island do I really even think about the camera very much. And that's mostly because she has like this overpowering location color wise that she's yeah. faced with. And it, it can't help but be uh, kind of a bold looking film. But something like All is Forgiven, just to bring it back to the the first feature, I mean, is a film that's kind of unobtrusive. I mean, it has like a mix of handheld and, uh, you know, stationary camera, but it's, it's just observational. It's not really um, like scenes play out in that, in that French art house kind of way. I mean, they're observational. It's not, there's not like a, a aggressive forward momentum until, until something dramatic happens. My big takeaway when I first started getting into her films was that like, they seem to be like soap operas on Prozac. Because because it's like I thought about like how the things that would feel like very messy and melodramatic in a, an American soap opera feel slightly like the edge is, is cut off of them. Like they're too cool and intellectual to really get messy. Um, yeah. When we get to Eden, that's the one where I feel it the most because I rewatching them all again. I'm like, oh, there is a lot of crying and heavy heartedness in these films. It's not like they are devoid of feeling. They're not like totally poker faced or anything, but they just feel like here's a scene where they could have this big, messy fight. Let's not do that. <laughs> like it's, it's they always seem to be kind of avoiding confrontation. <laughs> it's funny, right? Because I think this is one other thing that contributes to the sense of suspense is that she sets us up to expect melodrama and then she shows us something unexpected instead, right? Like in for me, I noticed it first in Goodbye First Love, like we see Camille alone in the apartment. She quietly takes a ton of someone else's pills. She lies down holding her nose, presumably to like quicken her own death. And then we cross cut to her family pulling into a parking space and we assume that they're going to find Camille 
passed out, right? And there's going to be a big reaction. But no, the film has skipped over the dramatic scene and the family is actually visiting Camille as she recovers in a hospital, right? This jumping forward unexpectedly again and again, it subverts our expectations. It keeps us on our toes and it moves the plot forward quickly all at once. And it's not like she ever steers clear of the setups of melodrama, right? Like she's got addiction ripping families apart, suicide attempts, secret kids, star-crossed love. Like she deals in the currency of melodrama as a filmmaker, but she refuses to cash in on it. Like instead, she always shows us something unexpected that is often not always more interesting, right? Like the day when um, Sullivan in Goodbye First Love finally leaves for South America she doesn't focus on the goodbye between Sullivan and his girlfriend, right? She, she quickly shows Sullivan sort of patting his sobbing girlfriend on the back. But she instead focuses the scene on Sullivan's awkward goodbye with his girlfriend's mom, who has been critical of him this whole time, but who like clearly feels bad for him in this moment. And so it's a much more interesting scene to focus on this conflicted goodbye because we already know how the girlfriend feels and we already know how Sullivan feels. So so focusing on Camille's mom in that moment is much more interesting, yeah. But I, I mean, it's worth pointing out that, that her dialogue is hella melodramatic, right? It's super melodramatic. It's full of lines like, you're everything to me and... Uh, if I lost you, I wouldn't survive, you know? And But the, the success of a Mia Hansen Lowe film depends entirely on the talent and the charisma of the actor delivering these lines. Like, can they pull off dialogue full of small talk and cliche in a way that seems totally authentic and natural? And in Goodbye First Love, yes, Lola Carton and Sebastian Ursendowski deserve all the credit for their performances, I think. And Paul Blaine. I think Paul Blaine is a brilliant actor and all is forgiven. He's super charismatic. He's super talented. He, he, was, he was recently in Let the Sunshine in the Claire Denny film. And I'm surprised that he's not cast more often, really. Yeah, no, I forgot about him in that. Yeah, no, he's, he's great in the film. I mean, All is Forgiven, which I think in America might now be distributed by Metrograph. I, I, I bought an import French DVD of it, but it's, it was one that was hard to see for a long time. I don't know if it ever had like a a theatrical run here until I think a belated one, like in like post Bergman Island, even, Wow, um, you know, so I think that um, it might be one that a lot of people still haven't seen, but I think she starts off right off with her themes front and center. Like it's, it's a very short debut. I was going to say as a film critic turned director, she's not someone that's given to a lot of film references in her style. Mm-hmm. I could probably count on one hand the number of things that evoke Truffaut or evoke Bergman and Bergman Island or evoke Brisson. Like they're not really like when people that are big cinephiles turn into directors, like there's, there's no, there's not a lot of nods to films that she likes other than like in dialogue referencing showgirls or referencing, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, cries and whispers. It's she, she prefers the autobiographical approach as opposed to like showing off like her taste her, her taste kind of comes across more in the music she picks. And I think also in the quotations she uses, she uses a lot of philosophical quotations. Um, and I think this is down to the fact that she studied philosophy and German and German literature. And um, her parents were both philosophy teachers. But also, I think, I, I mean, spoiler alert, I'm going to argue that Bergman Island evokes two of Bergman's films, but we'll get there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's definitely there are more literature references and philosophical references than references to other films. And it's super interesting, right? And yeah, it's. She's too, she's too interested in plumbing her own experience and her own depths, I think, to be a showy, obnoxious Quentin Tarantino, for example. <laughs> um, but can I just say one more thing about Paul Blaine before we, before we move on? Yeah, yeah. Paul Blaine, like, 
I cannot, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that Zhivovsky should have worked with him. Like he, Paul Blaine has these really exaggerated, like almost feminine eyes and mouth. He has a real like craggy rawness to his face that's almost scary. And he has this very tight, like wiry body. And this is exactly what Zhivovsky seemed to look for in men. Like if you just imagine like Francis Huster, Sam Neill, Pascal Gregory, and Jonathan Genet, like all in a lineup, like Paul Blaine would belong in the exact middle of that lineup. Like he, like it could be an anamorph of the same person. And it's just like, it made me so sad that Zhivovsky never, it seems like he never found Paul Blaine. Um, Blaine was doing, I guess, um, a lot of French TV in the 1980s, but also some films especially leading into the 90s. So maybe they just missed each other, like just barely or something. No, you're totally right, though. He would have been perfect casting for Zhivovsky. Yeah, it's mad. Yeah, well, with this one, I also, like, I wanted to point out um, that this is the first time we get, like, the the euphoric dance scene, which mm. is something that carries over through almost all of them up to Bergman Island. And it's actually kind of interesting when we don't have it and we have variations on it, but it's like a recurring thing in her work. And this is like just me being very basic, but on some level, I think I always really appreciate these moments in all of her films mm-hmm. because they just, they just feel like a release and in mm-hmm. a very, in a very old fashioned musical kind of way. Um, Cause yeah. these are kind of heavy stories sometimes. And so for them to cut loose to ABBA, or to the raincoats or to French house music or whatever. It's just like, I don't know. It it always kind of like lifts my spirits to watch it every time she does. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little release valve. I feel, I I feel exactly the same way. And I think there are, like you say, there are two release dance moments in Bergman Island, but they're both quite sad actually. Um, Well, one thing I thought was interesting is how just her, I don't want to say it's reactionary because I don't, but it's like, she's somebody that even though her films are like, I think the oldest she goes chronologically is like the early 90s as far as when the stories are set. But at least the early films all deal with like people writing letters. There's not like a lot of email in her movies. Mm. And um, there's also a um, dedication to 35 millimeter cinematography up until I think even up to the new one. I think the only exception, and we can talk about this, is Eden. But everything else is shot in 35, even Maya... I think part of it is shot super 16, but she's a celluloid uh, purist. Um, It's true. Yeah. Apparently she doesn't like the way that uh, when you shoot digital, a character moving laterally across the screen creates like a very sharp image that she doesn't like. But I think also, like you're saying, there is this kind of, she's very attached to her own memories of childhood. And there is a kind of like love for things that have passed passed away like film her dp of late denny lenoir he's like i'm convinced i can do anything film can do on digital i can do it on digital but she's like no we're not going to do that (laughs) and i guess in in eden she didn't have a choice because she had so much trouble getting it funded like her producers were like no you're not going to have film for this one yeah well and it changes aspects of eden to me but we'll get to that one but it is something i mean there's only like a handful of directors i can think of that are like stubbornly or defiantly holding on to 35 millimeter and it's i think she's the only woman that i that comes to mind as far as directors that that have that devotion to uh, that format um of, of famous of famous directors anyway um that i can think of i don't know i could be i could be misremembering somebody but i thought that was interesting yeah i wonder if that's about like the fact that film is really expensive and women tend to have fewer access to resources or i don't know what it is but yeah it's interesting for sure yeah yeah, yeah.
so moving on to her second feature, uh, The Father of My Children from 2009. Now, this is a story, again, set in two time periods. Uh, the first is focusing on Gregoire, the uh, film producer played by Louis Daylen Kaysang. And the second half is focusing on his wife and daughter, uh, Sylvia, played by Chiara Caselli, and his daughter, Clemence, played by Alice Daylen Kaysang. It's based on Humbert Balsan, the producer who was the original producer on All is Forgiven, uh, who uh, killed himself. And she has stressed that it's not really like it's a fiction like inspired by that like i don't i don't know that the family dynamic that's depicted in the film reflects what that man's personal life was like but it's an interesting kind of reframing of the all is forgiven story to kind of uh pay tribute to an old mentor of hers but it's also it's interesting because it's like it's the closest she gets to a love letter to cinema i mean even more than bergman island i think but I disagree. I think Bergman Island is much more a love letter to cinema, but we can talk about that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I think, I mean, I think that they're both, I mean, I think that they're both love letters in different ways. I think that this one is more kind of the tragedy of, of obsession with cinema because it's, it kind of blinds him to the, um, maybe the, the building pressures they're going to kind of undo him just because he's just too excited to, to put all of his energy and money behind art um, but they are his children as much as his biological children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just to go back for a second, mm. she said, she explained sort of the two-part structure of this film um, in this way. Part one of the film, it prioritizes the experience of the father mm-hmm. of Gregoire as he struggles to keep his production company afloat. Um, and part two prioritizes the experience of his wife and his daughters, especially his adolescent daughter. And we also get to know, like you say, his other family, his staff at work, which is also mainly women. And we see them all coping with his absence, aided by his wife, Sylvia, who takes charge of the company and makes the big decisions that had been tormenting him that he couldn't make. Right. And so Mia Hansenlove explained why she has his death smack in the middle of the film. She said that usually when suicide is a big plot point in a film, when you kind of know it's coming, like in the Ian Curtis biopic Control, the death is kind of a culmination at the end and the tension lies in knowing that the death is going to happen but she was more interested in having like a film that ended with going toward the light Mm. and she said that she decided to make this film after she visited Umber Balsan's office after his suicide to pick up her screenplay for All is Forgiven and she saw his wife there and everybody kind of busy continuing the work and that made her think about the transmission of a person's legacy after their death not just to their biological family but also to their other families who through luck you end up forming by working together in the cinema. And I think that links back to what you were saying about this being a love letter to cinema. So yeah, her, her main question, she said in this film, is how does someone survive after death through his family or through his body of work? And so, yeah, I think this, this tension between sort of dual allegiances to family and vocation in cinema is something she explores much more in Bergman Island and in a much more interesting way, I think. In my opinion, like, One of the key limitations of this film is that its interest remains locked in Gregoire and his legacy, even as our focus shifts to other people who are still living. Like Louis Dodelancaisson, he's a super talented actor. Hanson Love said that she asked him not to work on expressing his character's emotions leading up to his suicide. For her, she said the most important thing was to focus on the repression of his feelings because she said it's in trying to hide it that it really comes through. But I think this is a really risky move to avoid the expression of feelings in a film essentially about emotions and emotional growth. Um, and I just don't think it worked in this film. Like for me, Gregoire 
he never seemed like a character who was particularly admirable to me. So the entire second half of his film, which is dedicated to grieving his loss, it, it, it rang hollow to me. I, I think for me, like, The Father of My Children is most interesting if we just look at its similarities to All is Forgiven. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a, it's a film about a self-interested, stubborn man abandoning his family because he values his own freedom more. Um, in the opening scenes when we meet Gregoire, he seems like this su- successful movie producer. He's, like, driving through Paris in his fancy car, juggling multiple phone calls from his office and his film shoots and his happy family in the countryside. But we learn that his business is, like, totally mired in debt. He's nearly out of options. He refuses to liquidate the company or take any advice from anyone. He could borrow money from his family. He doesn't do it. He's determined to succeed on his own. And so, as his assistant points out, he buries his head in the sand until this becomes impossible and he has to face reality. And he shoots himself. And like Mia Hansen Love, like tr- she tends to keep us on the surface of interactions. Like we, we glean most key information from pretty brief exchanges. So insights into a character's motives are kind of hard won. But we do get like one key glimpse into why Gregoire is so set on reviving his dying company himself. And that comes back to this issue of freedom that uh, Victor also talks about in All is Forgiven. In a, in a conversation with a young aspiring director who's played by Mia Hansen Love's cousin Igor. Gregoire explains that like his mom wanted him to be an industrialist like the rest of the guys in his family but starting his own production company it allowed me to do as I please, living far from home, not doing what you're intended to do. It can be lonely but you answer to no one. You're free. And after Gregoire's death, his wife explains to his assistant that he had recently bought a gun not because he was determined to kill himself but because he wanted to have the choice to say yes or no to be free. And I think so this, I'm saying this because it places Gregoire in a series of male protagonists in Hanson Love films. Like Victor and All is Forgiven wanted the freedom with his time and his drug habit. And he reacted violently against his wife and his, in a small ways, his daughter because she had to witness the abuse. And also sort of Paul's character in Eden, like the men are kind of reckless and they value their own agency and self-regard over relationships. I think this is also somewhat true for Gabrielle in Maya. And Sullivan. And goodbye, first love. Um, <laughs> yeah, and Sullivan. And, and, and in her early work, this results in failure, right? Like failure for artists, for business people in relationships. And some characters kind of rebuild their lives with more healthy expectations, like Victor, and they finally accept support, but not Gregoire, right? He shoots himself and he never gains the emotional maturity that Victor got in All is Forgiven. And so in part two, our focus like ostensibly shifts to the women in Gregoire's life at work and at home who have to do what he couldn't, right? To face the company's ruin, to salvage what's possible, to cope with the loss, to adapt to a brutal new reality, to admit defeat, like all these things that he couldn't do. But as a result, like none of these women have any freedom, right? Like each now has heavy burdens, emotional because they're grieving and also practical burdens, right? Like his wife has to now meet with his potential investors and lawyers and bankers and make all these decisions. Clemence, the eldest daughter, becomes sort of Sylvia's partner, right? She ends up taking over a lot of the caregiving for her two younger sisters. But each, each one kind of rises to the challenges and grows gracefully from their sorrow. And what's disappointing for me about this film is that like none of the women and girls have very much dimension beyond their grief. Like no one seems to resent the extra responsibilities or the trauma that their dad inflicted. And certainly not for very long, you know, that these women and these girls, they remain totally uncritical of Gregoire. Um, the people don't seem to resent their boss who left them in this mess. Like everyone just grieves gracefully and 
I mean, maybe maybe the charm of Gregoire never just translated to me the viewer, but but his the grief of his families never seemed to translate either. The the focus just stays on this unlikable guy, and there's too little attention to what the women are actually going through, like what they're feeling. They they seem very thinly drawn representatives of graceful growth from loss, and we get. We get a lot of opportunities for resentment and conflict, right? Like Sylvia had been continually complaining that Gregoire was never around enough. But now she too isn't around for her family because she's busy trying to clean up Gregoire's affairs. Like she's just stepped into her, her husband's skin with this like unquestioning grace that, that it rang kind of inhuman to me. Like we never see beneath her kind of calm, understanding exterior. And yeah, I, I, just, I, I feel like this this kind of unblinking, uncritical focus on Gregoire's legacy left very little room for anyone else's characterization. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the first half is showing that he's getting by primarily on charm and passion, but that, I mean, he's surrounded by women that are doing all the work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and that holds true even in his absence. I mean, it's it's largely shown to be women who are the responsible characters and the mature characters. And so it's, it feels like of a piece with the other early Mia Hansen Lowe films and even the later ones, I think probably. But uh, I, I don't know if when you talk about freedom and immaturity in, in the male characters, I mean, if she's on some level, I mean, I'm not going to psychoanalyze and say she's working through, the, you know, whatever kind of feeling she has about the guy that inspires Sullivan in the film that follows this. But I mean, you know, this is a case where it's a guy that he's able to talk himself into these situations, but it's, there's not the maturity to realize, you know, like to, to prioritize things correctly. And I think this is the first film where you see the recurring theme of, someone talking business when it's not business time. In this case, it's like when they go to Italy and it really hurts uh, Sylvia that he's, he's talking business on the trip. And this is something that you see repeated in Bergman Island. You see it repeated in Goodbye First Love in a, in a way that it's it, that men that prioritize the, the wheeling and dealing side of, of their uh, professions when it's not business time, I mean, this is something kind of hurtful and, and they're always shown to be wrong for it. So yeah, I didn't think about the fact that Sylvia starts becoming absorbed by that. It's almost kind of like forgiving him in a sense because it's the nature of that role is to be overwhelmed by it. But I don't know. I mean, I it's not, my, it's not one of my favorites of her films, but I do really kind of settle into it when I do revisit it. It's, um, I think it's just because I like the performances. I mean, I don't know if I find Gregoire like a totally lovable character, but I don't, I don't think he's villainous either. I, th- I think it's so funny how it's the film that opens with Jonathan Richmond and closes with Que Sera Sera. <laughs> oh my <laughs> like, God. Like, there's something so peculiar about the choices in it. Yeah. I, can I, I have two, two points to respond yeah. to that. I, what, so one is it'll end with Que Sera Sera because I have a lot to say about that. But um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, if if this were some if this felt like someone working through their feelings about men who seek freedom at the expense of the people who love them, then it would make sense. But I don't think like the the female characters all seem so so thinly drawn, just like these representatives of graceful sorrow. It's like there are brief moments where like Billy, one of the younger daughters, and Clemence, the adolescent daughter, they seem angry at their dad for abandoning the family, but then they're like instantly reassured by thin lines like I know he adored you, but he was suffering, you know? And Clemence, the eldest daughter, who's like 
17, she discovers that Gregoire had an, an, a son with another woman. So she meets the other woman and she confronts her mother with it. And it turns out like everyone knew and no one cared. No one was upset with him. So she just like lets the topic drop and goes back to grieving her dad in what seems like an uncomplicated way in this like overly perfect kind of postcard depiction of growth from grief in which everyone in his family is basically in accordance and supporting each other perfectly. And it's like there must be some personality beyond this tender grief and selfless (laughs) love. And I finally, and in the in the last scene, I finally thought we're going to have some revolt in Clemence, right? Like, Alice de Lancasson is a wonderful actress. I've seen her in other things. She's really great. She's going to break out, right? Like, we see the Canval family, like, they pile into a taxi. We learn that they're all moving to Italy. And this is something none of the daughters wanted, Clemence least of all. And so Clemence is, like, looking out the windows of the taxi. She's passing all these Paris landmarks. And she starts to cry. And I think, finally, she's going to make waves. She's going to protest against being uprooted, against leaving her friends, her school, her city. But then she just explains, no, no, I'm I'm only crying because we won't get to visit our dad's grave one last time, right? And so the overall tone is just gracious sorrow. And there's no self-interest, no individuality among the women in this film. They're just, they're maybe admirable, but they're not human. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it just seems like everyone else just becomes a conduit for this man's memory. And like, kitsch, kitsch is not a word that people use in response to Mia Henson Loves films. And I can see why. But very little saves this film from being kitsch. Like, there is so much dialogue. Like, remember how much he loved you. Draw strength from that love. And it's just, remember how lucky we were to have him for so long. And it's it's just, it's embarrassing to hear these words from actors who are so talented and really putting an effort. And in the final minutes, this film just plunges headlong into kitsch. Like, the taxi kind of pulls into traffic, the camera pulls back and upswells Doris Day's Que Sera Sera. And apparently... Mia Hansen Love chose this song because, quote, it deals with the passage of time and accepting your destiny. But it's so saccharine and cringeworthy that it just, <laughs> it cannot be used unironically. Like, we have all passed that point decades ago. And, like, this is the risk of auteur filmmaking, right? Like, Mia Hansen Love became too wrapped up in admiration for Humbert Balsan and his wife, like, too wrapped up in her own ideas about them. And she wrote this tissue homage to them. She didn't write nuanced flesh and blood people. And it's like, it's disappointing because I would love a film about paying respect to a producer who is famous for valuing quality over profit. He's famous for championing Middle Eastern directors and female directors. Like, this is someone I would care about, right? But none of these qualities in the real Umber Balsan were emphasized in the character of Gregoire Canvel, right? Like, to end a film about a real loss, a real person with the cheesiest, most saccharine of all songs. It just, it came across as really biting and flippant, which is definitely not her intention. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's like, it's a risk of a true filmmakers to maybe be undercritical of their impulses and their admiration. I will say that it does make me uh, roll my eyes when uh, we find out that his hidden son is Moon, <laughs> like in oh, Moon pff. films. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the name of his production company, y'all. He did care after all. Yeah. 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 Like, I, like, we need honest films about coping with grief and suicide, right? Like, we need honest films about the anger that comes within grief and having to, like, face what your loved ones couldn't. Like, whether or not you're ready because you have to because they just died. And, like, and, I, and I think Mia Hansen Love is capable of making such a film. But without recognizing that grief is, like, barbed and conflicting and unruly, without recognizing that, like, this film just does the topic a disservice. That is what I think. Yeah. 
Well, I knew that this one was not one of your favorites. And it's not one of, I mean, <laughs> I, it's not one of my favorites of hers. But like I said, I, I mean, it's, it's one I do appreciate. Um, I just wanted to return to Clemence, Alice de Longue's song. Um, she's interesting to me because it seems like there's this type of actress who Mia Hansen Love often casts. Mm-hmm. And this actress is like very slim. And she has blonde curly or frizzy hair in a messy bob haircut just above her shoulder and she wears little if any makeup and this is how Clemence looks and it's how Annette the mom in All is Forgiven looks and it's how Mia Hansen Love looks like the appearance of this type of character with a blonde bob is it's striking enough it's maybe unusual enough that you notice it from film to film Mm. like we have the daughter in Things to Come we have two characters in Maya two in Bergman Island with this look and so it's it's kind of like she's making sure that there's this messy blonde bob character. It's almost like a little calling card of Hanson Love herself in her films. It's like a tiny cameo, but at one remove. So maybe she's not like all that different from Hitchcock after all. That's what I have to say. Yeah. It's worth mentioning the way that she kind of pretzels reality and fiction, which you've talked about already. But in this film, like you, like you said, she casts a father and a daughter as a father and a daughter. Um but there's another cool thing which I noticed is Clemence, Clemence goes to see a film that her father produced and the clip she's watching is from an amazing real film called The Road by Dajan Omerbaev, which is a wonderful, it's like a hallmark of Kazakh New Wave in the 90s. And then later on in her dad's office, Clemence runs into the director of this film and she tells him how much she enjoyed it. And the actor who plays the director is Jamshed Usmanov, who is a great Tajik actor, and he had acted in The Road, which is the film that they took the clip from. And he's he's appearing in the clip that Clemence watches. So in the world of Father of My Children, he's a director who acted in his own work. He like he's his own blonde bob character, right? Like mm-hmm. and in reality, like The Road actually stars its own writer and director, Dajan Murbayev. So it's like directors becoming actors, becoming directors all the way down. And this is going to get even more prevalent and confusing when we talk about Bergman Island. But it's a little taste of that, I feel. Yeah, the scene, the scene in um, where she t- approaches the director always reminds me of the scene in Eden where he approaches one of the uh, DJs he admires in Chicago. And just that like little moment, just like, I love your work. And it's just this little grace note scene that I don't think needs to be in either story. But there must be something about it that compels her to include scenes like that. Yeah. And I think in in Eden, the budget was stretched so tight that I'm I was quite pleased that she hired like the real DJs to play themselves. Yeah. And even so, though they don't get any li- Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even though they don't get any lines lines beyond like you're welcome or nice to meet you or something. It was I'm glad that the real people got to show up and play themselves. Yeah. I think like their tokenized appearances, they just serve to show the stage of Paul's career, really, as it rises. He gets to meet more and more of his heroes. And then on the way down, he has trouble with that. But yeah, I do think it's worth crediting her decision to have the real DJs appear. Yeah, well, I think in Eden, it's also just to acknowledge the people that have been in the game a long time and are still out there. And maybe a few people that like the film will check out their records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for real. Yeah, yeah. There was one scene that I did really like. Um, there's a scene in which the family visits their dad's office one last time before the company is liquidated. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert. Um, and the two youngest daughters who are maybe like eight and 10-ish, they kind of march straight through to the dad's like personal inner office. And one like immediately tosses her sweatshirt onto the dad's chair and starts flipping through his mail. And the little one like jumps into his office chair and she starts pretending to use his computer and she picks up the phone and she has this like very soft, earnest conversation into the phone while she's looking at the screen. <laughs> um, and, and I found this really touching because the dad had always 
always held his family at arm's length in some respects. He was always like sneaking away to answer phone calls, showing up late. But like in just this one scene, in this one minute, the youngest family members have like conquered this space of their dads, right? It's, it's like very briefly, they're finally in control of the thing that was always taking their dad away. Like they're running the show. And I really like that. Yeah, I think she has a real gift for child performance. I mean, that's something you see in a few of the films as far as like natural, I don't think overly precious child performances. No. Um, I, I like the uh, the play that the little kids put on with the, uh, the, <laughs> the warning that like never put your hand in the wolf's mouth and hit the wolf's head. <laughs> like like <laughs> this surreal kind of advice that they're giving. Yeah. Um, do you, I don't even know if you want to get gossipy on this show. Like she's talked a lot about people speculating about which real life directors were the Stieg Janssen character who kind of people assume like drove the character to suicide. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't, do you want to go there on the show? We can. Okay, so Stig Janssen, the character in uh, Father of My Children, is played by Mogne Hovarebreka, who's like this super charismatic actor who is very crushworthy, and he has a bigger role in um, Goodbye First Love, the next film. Um, but in Father of My Children, he plays this like notoriously erratic director who's like demands and his delays are losing the production company money. And some people assumed he was a stand-in for Lars von Trier, who Umber Belson had worked with um, on Manderley as one of Belson's final projects. Um, but it seems likelier that Janssen is actually representing Bela Tarr, mm. um, who many people in the industry kind of blamed for Balsan's suicide, according to Mia Hansen-Love. Because just before he died, Balsan had been producing Tarr's film, The Man from London. And the costs were like hella mounting up and the production was suspended. And like half of the 5 million euro budget had been spent, but only 30 minutes of footage had been shot. And Tarr was like, he was demanding that the scaffolding around a cathedral be removed for one shot, but like Balsan couldn't cover the cost of that. And after his death, Balsan's widow became like really intent on helping Belatar finish his film. And Mia Hansen-Love has kind of commented on the scene in her own film where she gives Stieg Janssen like a very sympathetic chance to talk to the widow and be like, look, like here's the project, here's why we believe in it. Um, And she said, what I really wanted to show is that in the world of cinema, everyone has their place. I feel as close to this character as to the producers and writers, which I think just supports your your beautiful point earlier about this being a love letter to cinema. I find that scene so interesting because everything else about the film sort of gives you the impression that this guy's a, a jerk that mm-hmm. is driving this poor producer to suicide with his fussy perfectionism. But you know, she's still she's still an artist that loves art and loves artists and like mm-hmm. finds that they have their reasons. And he's not shown to be this frothing von Trier type, you know, kind of uh, character. He's he's very soft-spoken. He's like, look, they have this money for, for from the Russian investors. I think we should do it. You know, I, I, I'm not going to mince words, but I thought your late husband was charming. Like, he doesn't come off as angry and dramatic as he's described as um, in the scenes where he's not present. And I think that's probably a testament to the actor as well, but it's also the writing of that scene. It's like, there's no villains in these movies. I mean, there's yeah. there's people that maybe their priorities are not the best for, like there, there's, there's differences with like the character's priorities that create conflict and pain, but there's not like any evil people in these movies. 
Um, I completely agree. Yeah. There are people who piss me off, but they're not... It's more the characterization. They're not villains within the world of the film. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I don't have the exact quote, but I almost feel like she has said that like she has no interest in making films about really evil people. Yeah, so that sounds absolutely right. Whether or not yeah. that's a limitation on how dramatically exciting the work can get, that, you know, <laughs> or not. But I don't know that that's something that, uh, you know, it's something that does hold true even with a character like Sullivan and Goodbye First Love. Those little ticks of time keep on talking, 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 ticka, ticka, tick, tick, talking all the day. But those little ticks of time, no, no reason, no, no rhyme, they just ticka, ticka, tick, tick, talk the time away. The film that put her on my radar was the third film that she directed, Goodbye First Love, 2011. Um, now this is another story set over multiple time periods. At first, it's focused on uh, a teenager, Camille, who has this passionate affair with this charismatic but also somewhat aloof uh, boy, uh, Sullivan. Then the story breaks in time after their relationship concludes. Uh, he has kind of abandoned her, and the story becomes about her rebuilding her life and maturing. And it's kind of about her like filling the void that this relationship has left in her life, either through a more stable, less passionate relationship or through a vocation, in this case, architecture. So I know you like this one a little bit more than The Father of My Children, if that's possible. But uh, can you talk to me about your first first impressions of this one? Yeah. So I think for me, the main takeaway was like this. This is a key kind of evolution in Hansen Love's filmography. Like her first two features are split at their midpoints by a trauma. And so there's a clear before and a clear after the trauma. Mm -hmm. But in Goodbye First Love, before and after become braided together. And at the heart of this film is the truth that for our most meaningful relationships, there can be no after because they continue to shape us even when we don't want them to, even as our lives carry forward. I'd like to look a little bit in depth at just the the second sequence of this film because it can act as a kind of shorthand. I think it contains like the backbone of the film in miniature. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sullivan, who's this like, um, te- he's dropped out of university, so he's sort of teenager, early 20s, maybe. He arrives back at his apartment and he finds his, his girlfriend, who is about 17, Camille. He finds her naked in bed and he gets undressed to join her. And both of our characters are totally nude. And there's this kind of parody. There's a kind of equality in male and female nudity in this film that's rare enough in cinema. You know, usually women are nude and men are mostly clothed. We're looking at the women. But Sullivan and Camille are always, throughout the film, there's lots of sex scenes. They're always equally clothed or equally nude. Like each time they get undressed, it's shirt for shirt, jeans for jeans. And that's cool. Like there are undoubtedly people who came to Goodbye First Love because they expect to see hot young people naked, right? And this film gives it to them right away. Mm -hmm. But it gives it to them in this very tongue-in-cheek way. Like when Sullivan gets home, he kind of reveals Camille's nakedness to the audience by playfully whipping away her blanket as if he's a stage magician. But she instantly leaps up, she shouts at him and she grabs it back. And so not only does Camille like win back control over her own image, she then does something that like flies in the face of anyone who is expecting her to be this like traditionally sexy teenage commodity, right? She saunters naked over to the toilet without closing the door and she pees. And Sullivan protests because he wanted to have sex with her. But he's just like, he just casually gets naked too. And he walks over to join her in the bathroom and they banter and they kiss and then they go to bed. And Sullivan leaps up and he closes the curtains and we're suddenly on the outside of the window. So we're excluded from their lovemaking. 
and then the film's title sort of springs up in giant pink lettering against the closed curtains. So the scene promises sex, and then in classic cinematic fashion, it, it closes the doors in our faces. But like less traditionally, in this film, we see lovers who both, they both have sexual agency. They both say yes and no and please and when and where to have sex. They're equally comfortable being nude. And what's, what's more interesting is that they're really oddly indistinguishable when they're naked. When they kiss, their shaggy blonde curls and like golden skin sort of melts together. And like in their own bedrooms, when they're lying in the grass, when they're in a motel, like the world of their sex life is almost this kind of platonic ideal of perfect parody between lovers. And there's this particular scene when they're lying down outside that um, Hans and Love and her DP Stefan Fontaine create this like a very Eden-like image of Sullivan and Camille lying together outside, nestled in tall grass. They're framed by trees that bridge together at the top. And they're lit from behind with this like golden late afternoon light that makes them glow until their bodies are hard to differentiate. And so when they're alone together, everything's perfect. They communicate best without words. There's something sort of gently animalistic about them. And this is highlighted when after an argument, miserable Camille sort of reconciles with Sullivan by crawling toward him like a cat. But as soon as they speak, as soon as sort of knowledge enters the Garden of Eden... As soon as they venture out into the world, these cracks in their relationships form, right? Camille is in high school and Sullivan's dropping out of college to spend 10 months traveling in South America. And so Sullivan is trying not to spend as much time with Camille because he doesn't want to get too attached. And this is absolute hell for Camille. She wants declarations of love. She wants demonstrations of devotion. She says, love is all I care about. It's all I lived for. You're everything to me. She tells Sullivan that uh, when he leaves, she's going to drown herself in the river. And so it seems like for Camille, there is no distinct self. There is only union with Sullivan. But Sullivan wants to go find himself. He's already preparing to leave. He's already detaching from her. But when he does show up, he expects her to be like entirely delighted to see him, totally loving and understanding. It's, It's like he expects Camille to accept that she's his before while he prepares for after at the same time. And she finds this too painful. She can't fathom life without him. And it's it's like their love is being threatened by a divergence in time. They're both sort of already on different time planes. Time is moving forward for them at different rates. And this is complicated, right? Because because Sullivan's really playful and childlike and Camille is much more stoic and conflicted. She, she seems like more the adult. So time is complicated again in that way. Like, Sullivan can afford to be playful to treat their time together as part of his childhood because he knows he'll soon be moving into his adventurous adult life. But for her, it's all mixed together and she doesn't know where she stands. And it's like we all go through life kind of like knowing that our loved ones may move on, they may leave us behind. But it's so much more difficult to know that that the person you love has already moved on in a way. Like, they're biding their time with you. Like, you are already a part of that person's past. The date of their move just hasn't arrived yet. Yeah. And so I, I think that's what I mean by the braiding together of before and after, at least up to this point in the story. Yeah, well, I, I, when I first time I saw this, I remember my late friend James used to talk about um, a dynamic that he felt like a lot of relationships had was that there was the lover and the beloved. That there was one person that was, that there was an, a power imbalance or like a, an interest imbalance in a lot of relationships that he saw. And that, you know, in a, in, in a relationship like the one between Camille and Sullivan, I mean, Sullivan is the beloved and Camille is the lover. And it's like, she needs this verbal reassurance that she's never going to get because he understands the dynamic and he's, put off by it in a way mm-hmm. because maybe he doesn't have the self-esteem that feels um, 
Like he deserves this kind of devotion, but he also can be flippant about it. Like she's going to jump in the river and drown herself if I leave. Like he can be a little bit um, immature with the responsibility that he has to her. Uh, and he's, he's somebody that is reluctant to call her, you know, when they mm-hmm. reconnect. He he's breaks up by letter, you know, mm-hmm. if that. Like he's somebody that doesn't want the responsibility or the heaviness of the conflict. And it's, you know, it's a type that, I mean, is as old as time, <laughs> this kind of dynamic. But I think that, you know, I, I think that like the fact that like everything he says could potentially hurt her. There's so much well-observed kind of dialogue in the film, like as far as just how much on a razor's edge she is every time that they have any kind of verbal interaction. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you see a little bit in Bergman Island as well. Even though those characters are older, it's the same dynamic. And it almost feels like a sequel. I mean, the dialogue at Bergman Island even comments, like, I feel like I've told this story before, you know, or mm-hmm. something to that effect. I mean, it's it's acknowledging that this is still like a central trauma, <laughs> you know, in the in the writer, Mia hansen Love, as far as like what she's trying to get at. And this is, I guess, something that she was reluctant to tackle in the first first two films but it feels like the most personal of the early films and maybe the most personal film still um yeah i thought it was interesting how if if we take the character of lauren's uh the uh the architect teacher that she has the the more mature relationship with to be a stand-in for olivia asias which i think she has kind of more or less admitted that that's kind of what she's basing that character on it is upfront about the fact that that's a less passionate, more responsible relationship, but that does not have the same charge as the irresponsible one with Sullivan. And the fact that like she can, you know, present that kind of um, matter of factly, you know, and, and acknowledge that, you know, just how um, her surrogate character is literally crawling like a cat in one scene, like you said, like, I mean, it's so debasing in a way, but, but that character is, she always has our sympathy. Like even when she's being, a morose teenager like we get it like it's not like the film is judging her the way her family is yeah definitely definitely let's i I have things to say about the rest of the film but i want to look at lawrence for a minute because (laughs) so he's camille's like you say her her professor Mm -hmm. turned partner he's at least 20 years older than her and i was kind of worried about this relationship initially i was skeptical like she's so vulnerable when they meet And for like very well-established, excellent reasons, we expect this kind of relationship to be exploitative, right? And indeed, Lawrence is in a position of power throughout. He's her professor. She works for his firm. And then she moves into his place. And on their first date, she's like, why don't you ever talk about yourself? And he's like, I'd rather talk about more interesting things. And you're like, whoa, red flag. Like, ah, that's super shady. Um, But as the film progresses, like he never dominates her. He never dominates the plot either. He's dependable but he gives her space. At this key moment, she says, the past years up until we met, you and me, Lawrence, they were nothing, a void, just a lot of pain. And Lawrence delivers one of the best lines in the films. He says, at your age, nothing is in vain. Life is never what you expect. Your fantasy version of the world is doomed to failure. It's up to you to create one that's deeper, more real, and that's how you become yourself. And this idea that like we shouldn't write off our youthful fantasies, we should just learn how to build something more real from them. This is really an encapsulation of Camille's growth in the film. It's sort of a, this line is the film in miniature. And we really come to see Lawrence as this honorable man who's a much better fit for Camille than Sullivan was. Like, he shares her vocation, he's stable, his words are impactful, and they come exactly when she really needs like a hand in the darkness, right? 
Lawrence and Camille are both quietly deep, whereas Sullivan was much more flighty and carefree. And we even get a nice chance to see Sullivan and Lawrence contrasted. They're both crossing the street at the same time. And Sullivan just looks so childlike and clumsy in comparison to Lawrence. So, like, God knows relationships between young, impressionable women and older, powerful men are, like, not underrepresented in cinema, particularly (laughs) French cinema, right? Mm -hmm. But consensual, healthy relationships between these two types of people are. So I really appreciated the humanity in this depiction. And I really appreciated how seriously this film takes every relationship in the film. I think few films take young love as seriously as they take adult love. But, but in this film, the camera never looks down on our characters when they start the story, when they're still very young. There's no forced perspective to make them look smaller. Whatever age they are, they always fill the frame. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say, in this one, one, one moment I noticed rewatching it in the context of her whole body of work is the, the moment where Lawrence is like doing business on the cell phone on the, uh, on the bus. And it so irritates mm you know, Camille, and that it drives her to encounter Sullivan's mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she looks away, yeah. and they're, they're the mummies, yeah. It's like a rare bit of, like, soap opera coincidence, <laughs> you know? But yeah. It's, but it's a punishment, in a way. You're, you're, you're not being present with me. You're talking business about the plans for your, you know, next design, and this, this brings in your romantic competitor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think what you're saying about like no business time when it's us time is dead on for all of her films. That's a great observation. Yeah. And so this is you've hit upon like the key point in the film, right? Like so so Sullivan leaves. He ends their relationship by letter because memories of her are too haunting. The past is sort of muddying the present for Sullivan in South America, and he can't take it. And then after a long period of no contact, Camille tries to enter life, not in the river, but by taking pills. But time just keeps hurtling forward, and she has to catch up. So she's trying to figure out who she is in Sullivan's absence. She's finding her singular self. And this is what most of the film is dedicated to. It's really dedicated to Camille. Like once Sullivan's out of her life, he's just out of the picture, right? And so we we jump on the train again. This time Camille's older. She's working. She has a tiny flat. She studies architecture. She's the one who travels now. She goes on a class trip to architectural locations in Berlin and Denmark. She initiates a relationship with her teacher, Lawrence. And she's much more sure of herself. She's more passionate than before, but in a very quiet, sort of deep, still way. And so... At this point in the film, like the plot is very familiar. There's the wayward male protagonist. He causes trauma by his absence. We focus on a young woman reeling and then eventually finding acceptance and healing as time goes forward. But but this is the point where Hanson Love breaks away and keeps braiding together past and present. When Camille sees Sullivan's mom on the bus, she gives the mom her number and says, if Sullivan's around, have him contact me. Sullivan does by text. And he's like, I'm too afraid to call you. You call me. And you're like, oh, coward. <laughs> and so... He seems sort of childish and disorganized in comparison to her, but they meet more often. It it becomes clear they're still attracted. They have a fight. Camille initiates a kiss. Lawrence is now away on a long business trip to Africa. So Camille arranges like lots of sex dates with Sullivan in a hotel, in the building she's overseeing the building of, and ultimately in the apartment that she shares with Lawrence. And throughout these encounters... Sullivan is now the one who's really worried about their future, right? Like he's, he seems slightly taken aback and panicked by how adult her life has become. 
she's now the one who has other plans, who has this other reality with a career and a partner who has a son. So Sullivan is now like in her apartment, surrounded by the evidence of her other life. And he breaks down and he starts weeping. Like suddenly he's the one who's crying. And he says, I want to marry you. I want to have kids with you. But it's really more of a lament than a, than a proposal, right? And she treats it as such. She sort of consoles him and says, don't cry, Sullivan. And you're like, ha ha, <laughs> retribution. Um, but, but he's upset that time has moved forward at different speeds for both of them. Like she's, she's existing in, in an after and he's her before. And, and having the past all mixed up with the present really causes a lot of conflict for Camille. Like the tension really ratchets up as Sullivan's time in Paris kind of draws to an end. And Lawrence's return is imminent. And Camille seems progressively more tense. And we kind of start to worry about her. And there are several shots of the river and signs for the river that scared me. (laughs) Um, And so Lawrence returns. Camille lies to him. And she's like, I have to go on a trip right away. And she's secretly planning to visit Sullivan in Marseille. But a train strike ruins her plans. Eventually, she gets a letter from Sullivan breaking up with her. And her mom finds her on the floor sort of weeping the same spot where she had tried to kill herself. And her mom picks up the letter and she's like, him again, not him. When are you going to get over him? And Camille sort of looks up at her mom with tears running down her face. And she's got this expression that's like, can't you see? Never. Um, (laughs) And so in the, in the final scene, and there's a reason I'm describing all of this in the final scene, sort of Camille is back at her family's house in the countryside, which she had visited with Sullivan earlier. And we see her on her own, repeat all the things she and Sullivan did together. She puts on the straw hat that Sullivan had bought her. She walks past the same beautiful neighboring house, past the same well, down the same road, into the same valley. She sets out her blanket in the same spot. She weighs it down with stones, just like they did. And she prepares to go swimming just as they head. And suddenly, the hat that Sullivan bought her blows away and it floats downstream. And we watch Camille sort of splash into the current and start swimming. And it's unclear whether she's trying to catch the hat or not. Thank Um, you. Thank you. Yeah, right. Because they're really <laughs> and- like, oh, it's so it's so sad that she's chasing after the hat. I'm like, but does she see the hat? <laughs> yeah, it's totally unclear. And because this is a Mia Hansen Lowe film, there's a sticky, sweet acoustic song that punches in to end the film. But I just like <laughs> it's so to me, like, it's just so hard to express how much tension there is in the final scenes. Like the threat of Camille drowning herself because Sullivan left, it really persists, especially throughout the final scenes for me, especially because Hansen love keeps showing us street signs for rivers including the river that she swims in at the end and so that's because there's this tension this concern about Camille like that's why it's so powerful it's so powerful when just one step at a time all she does is go swimming yeah it's it's suspenseful and it's a relief all at once sorry go ahead but I was going to say it's also like a realistic triumph for the character like it's not like she's just finger snap and she's over it and she's got a new love it's not like a hollywood movie like it's just like yeah no it's gonna take time and it might not ever really totally heal yeah Um, yeah i mean even the bergman island variation on this story when she's explaining it to tony uh, the character's in a state like she could hang herself or like like she she throws out the the bleakest possible ending as as an idea maybe just kiddingly but i guess i forgot about like the first time i watched it like was i thinking that um that it could end in like tragedy because i think i just I don't know. I mean, you're right that it could, it, it's building towards that possibility. Um, I think th- this is just one aside, like the trope that I mentioned earlier that she keeps returning to is the, um, the euphoric dance scene. And the closest mm. that we get in this, I thought was interesting was that the, um, it's that work event 
where she's, <laughs> she's she's transformed her appearance to like visually signify you know the, the passing of time but it's the um it's like a melancholy variation on the techno that you know we come to hear in eden like it's all minor key it has lyrics about loss and losing you know the love of your life or whatever like it's almost like a parody of the kind of things that like are celebratory in all the other films and she's just kind of walking through it and it's all very kind of cold and impersonal I, I just thought that that was something that it's something i didn't think about the first time i watched it but it's the way it contrasts with all the other films um mm. that moment because everyone else around her is dancing and she's not yeah that scene it's so funny because so she works at like a conference center where all the people who work there have to wear the same outfit and so like the first time we see her at work she's wearing like a little stew dress outfit it seems like and that seems like they're <laughs> but this time there's a big event and all the people who work there have to wear these like little mini skirts and these blonde wigs mm-hmm. And all the girls, we see like the changing room and all the girls are like putting on tons of makeup and they're like, you have to put on makeup, Camille. And she's like, okay. And she goes over and she puts on like a tiny bit of mascara. And then the next time we see her, she's in like full on clown makeup, like not clown makeup, but like really Las Vegas makeup. Yeah. Um, and I think it's funny because someone has clearly like taken her in hand and been like, no, you, this is what has to happen now. But um, it really emphasizes how kind of radically unstyled she's been this whole time and that's true for all of Mia Henson Love's protagonists they all seem like they're not wearing makeup even though they clearly are for the lighting but um just to to go back really quickly to like how tense the final part of the film is like we we've talked about addiction as a recurring theme in Henson Love's work and in this part of the film Camille's second clandestine affair with Sullivan for me that really felt like the first true addiction narrative in her filmography Mm. um Camille was like on the up and up after her suicide attempt she'd moved on and then bam she relapses and the tension from her past kind of builds and builds and builds and we get more and more concern for her until there's this kind of breaking point and a kind of resolution when we see her face on the subway she's lied to Lawrence she's about to go see Sullivan she's clutching this bag that's bright red in a very black and white steely subway scene it's this soft bag and it looks like she's holding this oversized heart like she's clutching it next to her Mm. and um, her face just looks so externally determined but internally panicking clutching her heart bag she really to me seemed like she was someone in the throes of a fixation that she couldn't control and that in this case was unhealthy and self-defeating and it uh, this kind of leads into something else that I noticed, uh, which is how much more visually eloquent Goodbye First Love is than her other films. When Sullivan and Camille meet again as adults, their physical reunion, their kiss for the first time, it takes place under a broken streetlight. So we're kept in the dark for this moment that any other filmmaker would really have highlighted, right? And But from that point on in the film, it grows increasingly darker. We go from having sort of spring tones to these very wintry jewel and earth tones that get deeper and deeper and grayer and grayer as Camille feels this increasing tension between her life with Lawrence and her affair with Sullivan. And then right when Sullivan's about to leave, it starts snowing and the film goes entirely grayscale after that until, not entirely, but mostly grayscale after that, except for her heart bag in the subway, this cumbersome, saggy bag that's weighing her down. And it's, it's, this film is visually eloquent in other ways that we haven't seen before for Handsome Love. Like she, she uses a pupil effect 
to hone in on the hat in Sullivan's hand. Yeah. Um, because an hour and a half later, the audience needs to remember that Sullivan brought, bought her that hat. And, and there are just some really nice sort of traditional shots that show Camille's conflict when she's looking at herself through like partially cracked mirrors or there are strands of hair like cutting her face in half or we see her walk through these sort of warped, divided panes of glass. It's just a nice, it's a nice film to look at as well. Yeah. I think like there are a lot of similarities thematically and stylistically with her first two films, but I think what differentiates this film for me is how much control over the narrative the young woman finally has. Like the biggest division in time isn't really Sullivan's absence, it's Camille's suicide attempt. Like when we next see her, the film is in a completely different phase. She has a new haircut, she's in school, she has a job in an apartment. And the next biggest leap forward comes after she's initiated a relationship with her teacher. It seems like we don't know how Sullivan and Camille met, but Camille takes over the active roles in her second relationship. She pursues Sullivan this time. And even better, she, like Camille, not anyone's dad, is in pursuit of a vocation. So this film is really the one in which the young woman has control over the narrative the entire time. Um, And it's really wonderful to see this really understated, albeit understated, focus on female agency and growth before Return to Eden, which is a film about a young man who pretty much ignores or rejects the women in his life when they're inconvenient. But I was looking at interviews with Mia Hansen Love, who is like so beautifully articulate about her films. Like she is not a director to shy away from from thinking about her cinema. And someone asked her, like, why architecture as a vocation for Camille? And she said, architecture deals with similar issues to cinema, space, light, the relationship with time, the fact of being both an art and a very practical discipline, the mixture of large scale and small details and the highly technical aspects as well. I think this this is kind of only vaguely related to architecture, but one thing that this film conveys solidly but subtly is sort of this conflict between the freedom of the countryside and the repression of the city. Mm. And it's it's especially conveyed through the character of Sullivan. Um, He feels like he can only find himself outside of Paris. He's apparently in like rural South America. But his, his conflict is that Camille is there, his family's in Paris. And the last time we see Sullivan, he's about to leave again. He pauses to watch a TV report of an escaped horse running away through central Paris. And the horse is slipping on the frozen streets. And Sullivan looks so visibly moved as if he relates to this horse. It seems to confirm his feelings that in Paris, there can be no freedom. He can't find himself. He's just the horse slipping, you know, trying to run away, but slipping and getting caught. But this tension between the the urban and the rural is more complicated for Camille. Like she's an architect, um, but she also like seems to really flourish in the freedom of the countryside and her parents' beautiful house in the countryside, you know? And she's like, oh, my dream house is this neighbor house next to my parents' house. And in deep despair, she sort of checks herself into a hotel on her own. And she seems so crushed to find that the window, it doesn't even open onto the street. It opens onto the inner lobby of the hotel. And she's just like (laughs) totally oppressed by the city. So it seems like it fits... Even though Camille is an architect, it fits within this broader narrative of Mia Hansen Love's work, which is like cities are a little bit entrapping. They're necessary, but they're entrapping. Whereas in the countryside, characters finally have the space to breathe and they get the kind of perspective necessary for accepting loss and moving on. Well, that's funny that you say that because that's also Pauline and Eden, you know, mm-hmm. when, when that relationship is finally like they're finally mature enough to be a couple. The fact that she can't deal with Paris that breaks them up for good. And in, yeah. in, in in Maya, I mean, it's a case where 
she's only there because she couldn't deal with was it london i mean she couldn't deal with yeah. the cities he wanted she needed the the lazy pace of of home you know and family is part of it but also just she's not a a city person you know mm-hmm. and it's just a theme that yeah it, it comes up on, on in a lot of them i mean even things to come or love and yay that separation between the city with the the protests and the 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 radicals living in their little country commune like there's that they they feel like worlds apart mm-hmm. um yeah yeah, you comment on the water that uh, that folk song that you're always singing, and uh, <laughs> I, I think that's like angry singing because I don't actually like it. Yeah, it's but, very catchy. But I, I, I th- it, that even um, ties with the use of a Nick Cave song. I think at the end of Maya, but like yeah. she talks about how she likes the the tension or the dialogue between a male and female voice in those songs and i don't know i mean the river feels a little on the nose i mean but i, mm-hmm. I still kind of go with it <laughs> it's used in the film mm. but. yeah yeah i feel like this like if i was to write a cheesy tagline for goodbye first love it would be like i don't know like first loves never end we just learn to swim instead of wanting to drown you know like it's like and yeah. she uses the water water flowing as a as a metaphor for time moving ahead all the time well, and it most especially in this scene yeah. well, we talked about art before and i think it's it's noteworthy that one of the earliest scenes with sullivan he's selling art that he found just to get out of town like he's, mm-hmm. he's selling some art that might even be a forgery but he doesn't care he's just like whatever money he can get and then when camille and and sullivan reunite as older characters I mean, she buys him art that he just forgets about it. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's it, he doesn't get the French films that she likes. He's not going to go excitedly to the Louvre with her the way Lawrence would. They, they don't have the things in common. It's either psychological or, or animal instinct that kind of keep bringing them together. Mm-hmm. Um, what you say about addiction is interesting because, yeah, it is. It's the first time we have the, the female protagonist as the addict, the way mm-hmm. that you have in the first two films. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the one that feels like the least sensational, even though it's dealing with like suicide attempts and such, because it is feels mm-hmm. like, you know, it doesn't it doesn't build to like the movie tragic endings that you have in the first two films. Like it feels like grounded. Oh, and I, I have to say, I feel like Lola Creton's performance is so much a part of why this film works so well. She was 17 when she made it, man. Like, And from the beginning of the film where she's like, kind of lethargic at the same time as she's rough, restless and euphoric and despondent all mixed together because she's a teenager in love and then over time she sort of finds more solidity in herself and more resilience and she conveyed this this aging so authentically for someone who like physically hadn't gone through it yet right yeah like this this film ostensibly spans nine years i think from 99 to 2003 to 2007 she's sort of 16 at the beginning which would make her like 25 at the end. And she's just, uh, her performance is so good. It's so good. It's watching just, it's worth watching just for that.
Did you ever say something in the air? No, but I want to. <laughs> I want to. Actually, that's kind of a good lead into a talk about Eden because um, apparently, like uh, Olivia Asias had been making that film about his generation in the wake of the 1968 revolution in Paris. And Mia Hansen-Love decided that she was going to make Eden as the story of her generation. And who better to be sort of the figurehead of her generation than this DJ whose work only was celebrated for a brief period and whom she knew very intimately because he's her brother. Yeah, well, Something in the Air also has um, the first appearance of Felix de Givray. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Um, who is the star of, of, uh, of Eden as Paul. Now, I think this is probably one where we don't love it the same, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your impressions of this one. I'm just going to start talking and then you interrupt me when you want to, because I have like kind of a lot to say. Is that all right? Okay. Well, before, before yeah. we begin, I'll just say that this was a film that, that came out in 2014 and it is essentially the rise and fall of a house music DJ based on her brother Sven. It takes place over, I think, between 1992 and 2008. Might go a little bit later. I think that's roughly where it stops. It has some kind of overlap with the time period that Daft Punk rose to prominence in popular music, but they're kind of more used as an illustration of someone making it successfully in music, whereas Paul is really... Uh, is only going to achieve so much before kind of free falling. Um, so it is kind of, like you said, a, uh, a portrait of her generation. And it is the most sprawling, shaggy hangout movie of her career. And it's the only one shot on digital video. And it has, I think, I don't want to say documentary-like aspects, but it does feel like because they did not have the costs of shooting on celluloid. It feels like real parties being covered to me. I mean, it is all staged. It isn't a, uh, I mean, there, there is, there is captured party footage at PS one, I think in New York, but it is the most indulgent film of hers, but it's also the one that I think, I think if you get on its wavelength, that it's the most, um, uplifting, um, joyful of her films it, when it's going well. It, it, is, it follows that same kind of, you know, boogie nights or whatever, kind of fit like, you know, it's great until it's, you know, until there's a Coke problem, <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of uh, narrative. But um, yeah, Eden was the film that kind of, got, kind of solidified my interest in her work after Goodbye First Love. But I also would be the first to acknowledge that it's a more shallow film than the films that kind of bookend it. Yeah. Yeah, I think like, like maybe we could start by um, by looking at how it fits into her filmography, like up to this point. Mm-hmm. Like, so she's talked about her first three films as a trilogy of adolescence about that particular age where you separate from your family and become an adult. She says, mm-hmm. uh, she says it's not accidental that the daughters in All Is Forgiven, Father of My Children, and Goodbye First Love are all fifteen, sixteen, or seventeen for the majority of each film. So after her trilogy of adolescence. This, her fourth film, I think, shows adolescence stretched to the breaking point until it snaps. Eden focuses on the delayed adolescence of a DJ named Paul who ages from 17 to about 40 before he starts to become an adult. Unlike the other characters, like he finds his vocation right away, right when the film opens. But it will be decades before he kind of reaches the emotional and psychological maturity to sustain relationships or sustain himself in the world without relying on drugs and burning through other people's money. 
just like in All It Is Forgiven and Father of My Children, we see men who fail at their vocation in the arts, who are plowed under by debt and by ennui and addiction. And the inability to come to terms with their situation sort of brings about trauma that requires the women around them to grow emotional resilience or leave or do both. But in All Is Forgiven and Father of My Children, halfway through the film, our focus switches to girls and women as they learn to handle the men's inadequacy and absence over time. But this isn't the case in Eden. Uh, In Eden, we stay with Paul for the entire two hour and 20 minute uh, running time. Like her films of the past, we do get clear breaks in the story. In this case, we have title text introducing the next section. But rather than split the film clearly into two parts, addiction, recovery, youth and adolescence, before and after death, in Eden, there's no, there are no real single losses for Paul, but like several tiny losses, not tiny, but several losses sort of sprinkled throughout his story before he ultimately breaks down and shows some vulnerability and self-awareness at the very, very end. I think for me, Eden was a much harder film to watch because Paul's addiction and his failure to come to terms with his vocation kind of losing its traction is a very long, slow kind of sinking that takes up most of the Mm runtime. And in Eden's second half, we kind of see that everyone else in Paul's life pretty much is like moving on, maturing faster than he does. But for Paul, the train has kind of slowed and stalled Um, And Mia Hensenloaf has said that the film is, quote, about this feeling that time, the fluidity of the passing of time can be dangerous because you don't feel the time passing. But for me, I really felt the runtime of this film. (laughs) Uh, For me, it was really uncomfortable and unpleasant to spend this long watching this kind of mild, uncharismatic character just stubbornly fail to recognize that his life was falling apart and that his emotional maturity had stunted and, and that he's the cause of all of this. And instead, he sort of just pursues his artistic passion to DJ this specific type of house music as the tide of audience interest gradually ebbs. And yeah, like for me, the the main reason that Eden is a much more difficult film to watch is that Paul is this really uninteresting character for me. I mean, like Victor, he's self-centered, he's violent, he's dismissive of the people who care for him. But unlike Victor, unlike Paul Blaine, he just has so little magnetism, so little power to keep us invested in his story. Like, I'm really, truly struggling to think of a film with a more colorless main character than Paul. Like, he's, he just seems to have no interior experience. Like, we never know what he's thinking. He doesn't seem to be thinking, only reacting. Like, he's our focus just because he's at the center of every scene. And it's really tiring to focus on someone so leached of personality. Like, apparently he's able to participate in and follow foster a vibrant creative scene but with so little of Paul's music in the film like his talent never makes any impression like we rarely see him actually making music and we only hear the result in very brief clips in passing and like Mia Hansen co-wrote this film with her brother Sven and the character Paul is based on Sven who was once a DJ and it's it's weird though then that this film never really gets close to its subject I feel and like maybe the co-writer was just not ready to open up I don't know We watch things happen and Paul react, but we just have no interior context. There's no psychology. He seems to be like a person without the capacity to reflect on his life until the closing scene. It's to watch someone without self-awareness. It's like watching a film with a hole at its center. You know, it's and it's so frustrating, right? Because he's surrounded by these really interesting, magnetic, funny, vibrant characters. We have Roman Kalinka, Cyril, Paul's best friend, Pauline Etienne, who is Louise, his girlfriend early on, Golshif Farani as Yasmin, his girlfriend, and 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 um. 
Vincent Macagna, the club owner who is close to Paul, like each of these actors is super, super charismatic and super interesting. And they burn so intensely from the sidelines that it's really painful to continually refocus on Felix de Givry's character. I'm going to pause here to see if you have any comments. Well, no, I mean, I don't think Paul is an interesting person, but I don't find that distracting because he's just our guide through a colorful world with characters that are actually more vibrant, like Louise or like Arnaud or like Julia or, I mean, all the people that he's the least interesting person in it. But I don't know that him being interesting is necessary for the scenes to work for me. I don't know. Like it, it, he, he only really seems engaged by music, like the sense sensitivity to kick drum sounds or the sensitivity to voices that inspire him or just to the beat of the of the of the records like he's he's kind of just tunnel visioned on that and I think what I love about that film I mean first I love just the atmosphere of how it opens with the 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 music that he loves with the little flutes and like Mm. how they move through the misty mornings after an all-night rave and it's just like this confident way that the letters Eden show up me hands and love is here <laughs> like you know like it like it feels like very authoritative kind of like announcing it of itself and then it's just the euphoric moment of all is forgiven or Bergman Island or whatever like those moments where characters have that release I don't really feel it so much for Paul so much as I feel like he's always in these situations where people are experiencing that and like people are singing along to all the songs and it's like even when uh, like the train is slowing down like you know he's not going to make it like those scenes never take on a tragic element even (laughs) i mean maybe by the time you get to like him spinning at like at, at family parties it's a little bit sad but like like the music scene is never is never the problem <laughs> like it's always it's always a place of joy and i think that it because it's so feminine and so like devoid like it's it's not like like there's something just warm and inclusive about the music environment that those parties take place in that i i just always enjoy returning to hang out in those rooms like i enjoy all the music and it's not like a scene that like I personally grew up with like my experience with techno at that same age was like kind of more the, uh, you know, the, the, the drum and bass or the industrial or like the things that were like a little bit like more kind of macho and progressive. Like this is a lot less self-conscious and like a lot more, uh, like there's a greater emotional palette to the techno music in Eden that, um, you know, it became a, a film where I, like after I saw it at New York Film Festival, I, I constructed a little playlist and I would, for the rest of the times I've been going to that film festival, it's always like the music of my subway rides <laughs> is mm. the is the music from Eden. So, I mean, that's a big part of why I think it kind of resonates with me. I mean, and I, I like the fact that, you know, it is kind of like one of those rise and fall kind of films, but it, it doesn't really kind of rub your nose in just the pain of losing. Um, like it's not like a film that is apt to punish the character for being this irresponsible fuck up for like two hours of its running time. Like it's just like, no, you're just not going to have any of your money and you're not going to get your know, dream fulfilled. But, you know, you'll find other things like maybe you'll get into the writing that you abandoned early on or, you know, because he still has that taste for literature. Like he has possibilities. Like it's not like a film like Goodfellas or Boogie Nights, like kind of a more macho take on it where it's like, nope, they're just going to, you know, wind up ruined like no there's like a hope for that character the same way as their hope at the end of goodbye first love like it's like that initial um that initial driving force didn't pan out but the character still kind of survives but I, I think it's also just i mean it's a hangout movie and it's like if you 
if you enjoy just scenes of like people like inhaling helium and goofing off or like running around in costumes or I mean, I, I totally get why this film collapses under its own weight if you're not into it. But it's the one I find most excited. I, I, I watched it multiple times preparing for this and I was excited each time and I never felt like restless during it. But it is it is definitely like a film that I always acknowledge from day one the flaws that it would have for for other viewers so it's kind of like a tricky one for me to talk about because it's like I kind of uh I, I can see all of your points I feel like probably most viewers might agree with them but I only get an uplift when I watch it <laughs> yeah I'm so glad you do I um I know that that was the intent I know that this was a very loving portrait of a scene that she had experienced herself and really loved and of a person that she really loved. And for me, that love did not shine through. And for me, I would have, I would have really enjoyed a film about sort of like using Paul as our main character as like a little boat through which you navigate the sea of these exciting music scenes. Like maybe that boat wouldn't have to be very interesting, but the scenes would be interesting. Like the music scenes would be interesting. That would have been a great film for me. Mm -hmm. Instead, Eden felt like this, it had way too much focus on Paul as Paul grew increasingly less interesting, more misogynistic, more selfish, he comes across as unfeeling. He's hypocritically judgmental of the women in his life. And he's manipulative, especially of women. The way he gets money out of his mom, the way he's literally like physically manipulative of Louise when they argue in New York. It seems like, for example, there's this motif that shows up throughout her work. We see a character let someone sleep over, mm -hmm. but then clearly say no to sex. And Paul mm -hmm. says no to Louise the first time they spend the night together. And it's fine. She stops trying to have sex with him. Everything's fine. Incidentally, I wish more films should saying no go more smoothly. Like, it's empowering to see that go well. <laughs> and it feels kind of refreshing as well. Yeah. Um, but by the latter half of the film, when a woman named Margot will sleep over, but she says no to sex, Paul ignores it and he keeps trying to sleep with her. And he's like, I can't help it, baby. And when she explains that she doesn't sleep with people who are emotionally unavailable, he storms out slamming the door. In Paul's mind, he paid for her drinks, so she owes him sex. And we later hear him tell Louise in front of her young daughter, like, I spent three years trying to sleep with Margot to no avail. Bitch kept me on standby. I could have killed her. Yeah. And he's become this fragile, brutal, macho idiot. And I'm wondering why the portrait is still uniformly loving by that point. And eventually Paul gets a girlfriend who parties with him and she sleeps with him, which seemed to be his only two criteria since he doesn't talk much. Yeah. But he continues to see Louise. And then three things go very wrong for him. He learns that Louise is moving away from Paris because it's better for her kids and she doesn't like Paris anyway. Mm -hmm. He's upset that she apparently is not considering any future with him, even though he's seeing someone else. He learns that she had an abortion when they were together and he storms off leaving Louise to excuse his absence to her daughters. Um, and then he plays a New Year's show and like only a few old friends show up. They've all moved on with their lives. They seem happy and Paul distraught. He overdoses and his girlfriend, who is still mysteriously compassionate about him, comes home to find him kind of crying and delusional. And then he wakes up in his mother's house and her fear and concern are actually quite alarming. And he like confesses all his debts to her and... At the end of the film, he's got a day job. Now he's trying to write and he's joined a community writing group, but he's too self-conscious to share his writing when it's his turn. And a woman he likes in the group gives him a poem and we leave Paul sort of thinking over this poem on his bed. And it's like, oh, maybe he's finally becoming a self-aware person. Maybe he's finally thinking about himself critically. He was self-centered, irresponsible and brutish. And now he's just become sort of mundane and standoffish, but possibly thoughtful, like, oh, great ending. And it, it's just like, I don't know. I, I wish this had been about the joy of music. I wish it had been about the joy of the scenes. 
I wish there had been more music in the film. This could easily have been a film with no dialogue and it still could have been beautiful. But we we retain our focus on someone who is not worth focusing on, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm fine with films about men who are assholes as long as they're interesting. And this isn't interesting. Yeah, I don't think the film, I mean, I don't know that you're arguing otherwise. I don't think the film is on his side when he's being horrible. Um, I think it's it's I mean that that part is the tragedy of, of the of more of the second half that is that, that he's just so un- unreasonable with all the people in his life but yeah I don't think that the film is I mean even to the degree that if you compare it to father of my children I don't think the film is forgiving him necessarily or at least not or at least not um, sugarcoating it like I, don't I disagree think... I think there's no criticism of Paul from anyone in the film right oh, like, I don't I don't agree there yeah <laughs> like right when Paul's like bitch kept me on standby and then he he he's hanging out with louise and her younger daughter mm-hmm. and he says all this like weird shit like oh maybe instead of the marrying the mom i'll marry the daughter when she's older and louise finally says something critical of paul which is like she won't want a washed up dj so you better get a different job but like then they just go like playing in the sea paul and the daughter and louise just looks on with fondness and nostalgia and it's like there's no no one is criticizing paul in a way that ever feels serious in oh this i, I disagree I, I i don't think the film is on his side at all i think that those scenes are like i think he's a cringy character by that point and yeah i don't think no i don't think that like i don't think we're laughing along with him when he's complaining it's just so we just think he's a pathetic character at that point mia hansen love has said that this was nothing but a love letter to her brother and to the the generation she describes their generation as rejecting the political in favor of a way of living where you care about the poetry of life about the instant about the present about love basically a love of music in this case she said that she can see how this film seems sort of vapid and purposeless to some people, but she really admires her brother and his friends who live for the poetry of life. And this really didn't come through to me. Like, it didn't seem like there was any love in this film. Like, I don't need anything glowing or hyper real, but Paul's joy just seems so fleeting. Like, we barely watch him make music or listen to music very often. He seems quiet and dedicated, but irresponsible, never never joyful. Like, he's, like, late to his sets, and it seems like his partner has to do all the work. He said that, uh, Hanson Love has said, like, what happened to Paul perfectly encompasses the aspirations, ideologies, and fragility of that time. And it makes perfect sense that she would focus on the most fragile character in any circle of people, because that's kind of her deal. And sort of like everyone moves on in a way that Paul can't. But I found, I just found it so frustrating to see Paul remain so fragile despite all of his privilege, despite his miraculously steady sources of financial and emotional support, with nothing really sympathetic about him to balance it out. Like his fragility to me just manifests as emotional illiteracy and violence and irresponsibility. And like, in interviews, she's just, she's so insistent that she was drawing a lionizing, loving portrait of her brother's rise and fall. But apparently Sven, having seen the film, like felt that it was critical of him. So he, like he, he saw it from your point of view, Bill. Yeah. She said, quote, he had a feeling it shone a harsh and brutal light on his life at the time. I mean, when we made the film, he was already in the process of leaving that world behind, but the film accelerated the process a lot. So it was brutal and cruel, but it was probably good for him as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I ever thought of any, like, I think by midway, I think, I think once the drugs become a pronounced part of his character's life, like when he's not showing up on time for things and, and getting more irritable and, and, and not treating uh, Louise, who he, he almost would cheat on with Julia if Julia wasn't grown up and domesticated and having a child. <laughs> 
you know, like I don't think he's sympathetic for much of the second half of the film, you know, in terms of like, I, I don't, I don't know, as, as an audience member, I don't ever remember thinking he was in the right with when he's being petulant. I mean, I just think that it's showing that he's immature, but yeah, I mean, wh- whether, you know, Mia Hansen Love intended to be a love letter, I don't know if she's thinking about the film as a whole, because I don't think that that's the film that she made, but I, I don't know what the context was for her quote. Because I mean, certainly like early on, I mean, you do root for him. I tend to like, you know, films that like about like, so, you know, artists that like are pursuing their passion and bringing people joy. And I mean, that's what he's doing early on, like these these celebratory kind of party events. But yeah, I mean, I don't when he's trying to seduce Margot in bed, kind of the way that Pauline tried to seduce him. But it's like the flip side of that kind of moment where it's almost played for laughs in her efforts to seduce him where it's 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 kind of more played as a as a dramatic scene when he's you know in that position and he does not have the grace that louise had he just acts like a child um which is what he does in several scenes i mean that's how they he's always just kind of like taking his ball and going home you know when he doesn't get his way yeah yeah, I I mean, I don't see any criticism of Paul in this film. Like I said, like, I see it as just a love letter. And it's one that she wanted to be even longer. She wanted this, this is kind of like the ultimate two-part Miele Hansen love project. Like she wanted it to be, she wanted it to be two separate films, like mm. one charting his rise and one charting his fall. Um, but no one would fund it. Um, although the producers initially said yes, because they just said yes to uh, Von Trier doing Nymphomaniacs 1 and 2. So they were like, I guess this is a thing now. Like, um, But like once they saw the script, they just like couldn't give her money for it. But um, yeah. but yeah, so this was initially going to be like a much longer tribute. I think, I think for me, when I watched this film, I was like, oh, this is treating someone like a martyr to his art that certainly doesn't deserve this much attention. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we just see this one differently, I yeah. guess. But like, uh, well, I was, what I told you once before is that um, I remember the first time I saw it, I remember thinking, had this come out in the 90s through Miramax, it would have been, <laughs> it would have been 40 minutes shorter. It would have yeah. been like, you know, bitching in the press because, you know, Harvey Weinstein has like, you know, disserviced another artist by like shortening their film and recutting it. But it also would have had Greta Gerwig on the poster. It would have had like a soundtrack album with the Daft Punk songs and everything on it. Like yeah. it would have probably made like a lot of money and like been like a much more fleeting train spotting ish kind of success but it would have been recut to make it less loose and shaggy um and then people would have debated the merits of the longer shaggier cut when it comes out you know 10 years later but uh i i don't know i mean this one i i know it has its cult following but i don't know if um i don't know if any of these films have really reached a wide audience in america i think the next one we're going to be talking about is still her biggest movie but yeah. as time goes by, Eden looks more like an outlier more and more. Um, I mean, it, it kind of does stand apart. And I, I don't know. I root for her to make a part two, but I, I might be in the minority on that. <laughs> I'm glad someone loves this film. I really am. I um, There were other things that made me angry about it. Can we, yeah, <laughs> can yeah, we yeah. go into them? Is there sure. time for me? Thank you. Um, so toward the end of the film, there's this scene between Paul and a guest performer who is this black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and... She like suddenly demands this upgraded hotel room that Paul can't afford. And her her real role in this film, like she does, we do get a snippet of her singing later, but her real role in this film is to make unreasonable demands. 
And the purpose of this scene is to show how broke Paul is. To me, this really felt like a quick kind of shallow installment of the angry black woman stereotype that has been harming people for more than a century. Like in vaudeville shows, like white male performers used to put on blackface and a comic fat suit and go on stage and like be unreasonably demanding in a funny way that would make their audiences laugh. Mm -hmm. And so this trope is obviously carried on in media all over the world. And like at the end of this scene in Eden, like Paul and Stan even joke about her weight and I was just like oh god what are you doing and why because this didn't need to be there yeah. and there are other there's like there's some other India by the way is the name of the singer you're talking about right thank you there are some other things that made me uncomfortable too like at one point we see how Paul and Stan are marketing their DJ duo cheers like mm-hmm. um Paul is frustrated that Margot won't sleep with him so he's he storms out of his own apartment and the door slams and we see a cheers poster on the back of Paul's door And it shows this like beautiful black woman sitting on the floor and smiling seductively. And that's all there is on the poster, like a hot black lady being hot. Mm -hmm. And Paul is white. His friend group is mostly white. His DJ partner is white. The vast majority of their audience is white. But the kind of music that Paul is DJing is strongly rooted in like black and brown communities in America. Mm -hmm. Right. And gay culture too. And gay culture as well. So it seemed to me like these were white boys selling sexy blackness as a way to authenticate their participation in this historically black and brown genre. Mm -hmm. And like the film never took a critical look at any of that tokenization. It just expects us to keep caring about Paul. And there are two women of color who are recurring characters in the film. And it's unusual for people of color to get to speak in Mia Hansen Love Cinema. Um, But in this film, we get Anais, who is uh, Cyril's girlfriend, and Yasmin, who is Paul's girlfriend. But I mean, just like all the other women in this film, they are totally reduced to the provision of services to Paul and his friends, right? The Mm. women in this film, they either provide sex, they provide unobtrusive company or practical support like money, drugs, help with events. Like, rarely they get to be objects of desire from a distance. But whenever a woman makes waves, she says no to Paul, she asks him uncomfortable questions, they disappear from the film until Paul needs something from them again. And with the exception of Louise and Paul's mom, like, we never hear a woman's desires or thoughts. And when we do hear from them, their thoughts are usually about Paul. Like, Louise wants sex or she wants to have a conversation or she doesn't feel loved. Paul's mom is worried about him or angry with him. Like, no woman feels like a fully-fledged character with an independent life that we or he bothers to find out about. And Paul's friend group is pretty misogynistic. I was really surprised to hear you describe the scene as feminine. Because Paul and his friends, they're like, they like joke the about music, how he doesn't... The music, I would describe as feminine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair. That makes sense. Yeah. Like, Paul and his friends like joke about how he doesn't know how old his girlfriend is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> and he's I, like, yeah, yeah. He jokes about like he jokes with Louise about planning to marry her five-year-old daughter. And like they use the word feminine as a pretty standard insult, right? Like Cyril's like, don't be so feminine to his girlfriend because she's mad that he's drawn dicks all over her pores. <laughs> it's like, don't be so feminine. And then yeah. Paul, we get one scene finally of Paul actually making music with his producer. And Paul says that a certain beat won't work because it's too feminine. And the producer's like, ah, yeah, I see what you mean. It's thin, it's superficial. And Paul's like, yeah, yeah, it's a little stingy. And in the scene immediately before this, he'd been asking his mom for like yet more money and refusing to come to his sister's PhD defense. It's like, who's stingy, Paul? Like, who's withholding them? (laughs) But apparently like the direct, like I thought, so I thought this was Mia Hansen Love, like finally being critical of Paul. But someone brought it up in an interview and she apparently didn't intend there to be any irony or criticism of Paul. Like she just said that she almost cut that scene, but she thought, it was important to show Paul thoughtfully working on his music. Mm. So 
I don't know. I mean, it, and it should I should I give you an opportunity to jump in here? Um, no, I mean, I I don't disagree that the the male friends. I mean, that you know are are not the most enlightened <laughs> when it comes to gender. I mean, I, when I say feminine, I mean that they the the music is coming from black gay culture primarily. Yeah. Um, and black or gay, I mean, or both, but you know, um, but it's not like a macho type of music for yes. given, given that it's a macho type of crowd sometimes that he runs in. Word. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But I think that's Sorry, interesting. I, saying word. What's that? <laughs> I just, I just said word and I had stopped saying that cause it was stupid, but yeah, I'm sorry. Go on. But yeah, no, no, but, but I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, it would have been a different film had it been more critical of white boy DJs appropriating American Chicago black and gay culture. But I don't know. I mean, that's just how it was. I mean, I always find it a little odd when like any of the white dance culture from the UK and from Europe, you know, had, had that. But but I mean, that's I mean, that's that, that's rock and roll, too. I mean, that's like the Rolling Stones appropriating the blues like that's like there, that's there's a lot of traditions in popular music that are that are like that kind of appropriation. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm conscious of it with Eden because, you know, the talent that he brings in is all black. Like the singers, I can see your point when it comes to India being portrayed as a diva, but then I feel like that's undercut when she actually is amazing live, um, as as all of his singers are. Like he's always bringing in pros that deliver the goods, whether or not that they are easygoing or not. I think that they provide the heart, where he just provides the enthusiasm. <laughs> Uh, you know, but I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can see like a, a view of that film, like viewing it critically because of how it isn't um, maybe always being overtly thoughtful about matters of race. But I mean, I, it doesn't stop me from thinking about it as a viewer. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I think as far as whether or not the film is, you know, we keep com- coming back to the point of like, is this film a celebration of Paul at his worst? I, I just, I just never saw it that way. Yeah, I know. And um, I think I think if the appearances of Paul's hero, if those characters had gotten to say more than one line each, or if we had seen their performances for more than a few seconds, mm-hmm. I could see where you were coming from. I don't think they got the chance to contribute the heart of the film. I think these appearances of these characters are only token appearances. They only symbolize where Paul is in his trajectory in his career. They serve the story, which is a lionizing portrait of Paul, I think. Yeah. And so I think... Yeah, I don't think we get to see their talent very well. And I don't think that like a much better film would have had some kind of criticism of Paul's appropriation. And it would have given these characters much more of a chance to speak and or perform as they chose or as the filmmaker decided. Um, It doesn't feel and you're right, like it doesn't it doesn't it's not critical. It doesn't give room for any criticism of this kind of appropriation that is true for so many types of music and that's because it is just a portrait of Paul and I think that's that's the my main problem with this film is that it's way too easy on Paul and it's so glorifying that it feels really substanceless it, the, the, the film itself seems without self-awareness like Paul is to me well I think well, I, I would just clarify that it, I feel like those those performers are the heart of the music not the heart of mm-hmm. the film if, if if that's a distinction worth you know, noting, like, I don't think that those characters are the heart of the film, but I, I think that they're, they're what gives any kind of heart to the music that he makes or the music that he plays. 
I would um, have loved to have seen more of their performances because what the little bit we did see is fantastic, like really, really good. Yeah, I agree. I, I would, I would love to have had more time with them. I mean, it, I, I don't, I don't know what kind of footage they had versus what we get. Like as far as like if the performances were longer. I mean, I wish that those were commercially available because that's mm-hmm. that's music that is exclusive to the film that I don't think has ever circulated. Oh wow! Yeah, that but been um, wonderful. I don't know if I have any additional points to make. <laughs> Yeah, I just I really love Pauline Etienne. <laughs> and I really I just want to talk about Louise for a second. Well, uh, you, that's you, okay. well, well, one thing you said was you didn't feel like that the characters, uh, the female characters, were all that well drawn. And I, I, I would you would you say that about Louise? Because I feel like she's yes. kind of a complicated character in herself. I mean, she's studying theology. She's she's assertive in a way that um, Paul is not. You know, as far as like taking over a scene. I don't know. I, I I think she's the most compelling character in the film for sure. Um, but you, yes. you, you think she's underwritten? It's not that I think she's underwritten. I just, uh, what I say is like, I think this film sort of absorbs Paul's racism, misogyny and lack of self-awareness. And I think like that's clear in the fact that the women in this film provide sex, company, support. They're providers. They su- they're supporters of Paul. Hmm. And I think like if, so, so if in Paul's world, right, femininity is to be avoided, we're in Paul's world, we're locked into his perspective, it makes sense that the woman who lasts the longest in Paul's life, Louise, is a little bit masculine, right? Like, she has this really short haircut, she wears masculine clothes, no makeup, she's a little crude, like, to wake up Paul, she, like, nudges him with her foot, and she gives him the finger to get him to chase her. She wears a Wonder Woman costume. <laughs> she does wear a Wonder Woman costume, and that is fantastic. But I do think that that character is pretty masculinized, uh, even when we see her with her daughters. Early on, she imbues the film with humor and God knows it needs it. Um, especially, I love the scenes between her and Cyril because Cyril is so grumpy and, and self-centered and she just like knows exactly what to do with him. Um, we admire her cheek. We admire her unflappability. She stands up for herself. It seems like she does what she wants. She isn't shy about asking for it. But then she and Paul get together and her spirit seems to fade as soon as she gets into this relationship. She gets indifferently dragged around America as Paul's security blanket. Um, She says, you know, I knew I didn't belong here. When she finally expresses some agency, she says no to him. She says that she doesn't want to do something, meet his ex. Paul can't handle it. He flips out. He calls her a bitch. He tells her to get lost, but he keeps like grabbing her to keep her from leaving. And Louise finally sits down and she's like, I knew it was stupid for me to be here. I have no business here. And Paul's like, you can't say that. I wanted you because I need you. Without you, I'm sad. And this is as much insight as we ever get into the interior life of our protagonist. And their their relationship remains really opaque after that. It's unclear what Louise or anyone else sees in Paul. Like, does Louise have interests or talents? Like, we hear that she had studied theology. What happened to that? Like, it seems like now all she's done is is being dragged around to his shows and she does coke now. And it's unclear whether she even likes his type of music. And all she all she really gets to be is supportive when they're together and a little bit nostalgic when they reunite years later. And it's a real relief in the final interaction when she doesn't hear Paul say, what about us? Because she's too focused on her own kids. Like, that... To me, I was really glad. I was really glad about that. Yeah. yeah, well, I always saw her as a kind of a variation on Camille from the previous film. I mean, and I, I feel like when I think about that character, I think that part of the obsession is how aloof that the object of desire is. And I think that for Louise, Paul's distracted kind of preoccupation with his own self and career and music is part of what draws her in unhealthily until, until she realizes that it's not right for her and moves on. But I think that that's kind of a, it, to me, it plays like a variation on the goodbye first love dynamic 
in that in that the, the man is behaving unworthy, but they keep kind of reconnecting because of for whatever reason. There's like a a, a chemistry or, or a psychological need uh, for them to try to make an effort, but uh, and, and the same kind of dynamic also with like city versus country being a factor and and talk of like a parenthood shared parenthood that doesn't really work even though the childish nature of paul it's like the other men in the films and that like he gets he gets on with kids well enough until until he's just too petulant to to try but i think that the film kind of roots for louise like i think that it knows that she was the healthy partner of all the women that he dates but um he just was not mature enough to to be there for it I don't know that the film is trying to argue that the Greta Gerwig character, Julia, is like some kind of lost love because she rejects him kind of the way that Sullivan rejects uh, Camille in the first film, like through a letter and then kind of just moves on. But I don't know. I mean, that's that's kind of the dynamic with a lot of them is like he keeps coming back to the women of his youth and they're all kind of in stable relationships with children and like, you know, nice, boring husband guys. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he he's kind of still i mean the the film even kind of jokes about it like you know he's he still looks like a boy even though he's in his 30s and i which i guess is something that really happened to sven as well so it comes from life but but yeah no i i uh i don't know that louise character is i think that was the same year as another movie um that i saw at that festival um my golden days and it's similar kind of character in that where it's just this kind of fireball of energy as the as the female love interest for the clueless young guy but i don't know i mean i think of her as like the main character and so, and, and she really does not have as much screen time as i remember her having because she stands out so much in my memory but she's barely in the second half i until... would love to see your version of eden it sounds so much better than the one i saw like yeah. it would it would be like yeah it would be much harder on paul and and louise would have more screen time yeah that's all i want really <laughs> a little, yeah. little less racism as well yeah um yeah. It's yeah, I I for me, maybe I'm being unfair. I actually don't know. I don't think I am, but I'm not sure. Like for me, I think it's I think you're being too kind to the film by comparing it to Goodbye First Love because Sullivan always made sense. Even when I didn't like his behavior, he's always made sense. He had interiority. We understood his feelings because he expressed them. Whereas Paul, it's just speculation about what he's going through. I, I don't think there's any interiority. And so like anything we're doing, any work we're doing is just guesswork um, mm. in terms of like speculating about what he's going through. I don't think he knows what he's going through. Well, that's why we get such different impressions of what he's going through. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, word. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny. Like it's it's nice though that like from this point onward in her filmography, like her films only focus on adult characters. Like Paul has like leached the adolescence out of these stories. Do you kind think, of? Do you think so? Because I feel like Maya would be repeating uh, to this. Maya's a teenager. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I don't think we see much of the film from Maya's perspective. No, no, no. But, but I, but I feel like I feel like some of the objections to Paul could maybe. Well, we'll get to Maya, but I mean, we'll get I, to Maya. Yeah, yeah, but her protagonists are adults. I would say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe with the exception of Maya. Oh, my love. Oh. Darling, I've hungered for your touch. 
So, like, her next film is a portrait of a character who is mostly elided in Eden, like the mother of mm. Paul, reduced to this nagging source of food and money and support. So it's nice that her next film focuses entirely on this woman and showing her gaining her freedom from her responsibilities, from the familial roles she's taken on. So it's kind of a, it's a nice blossoming out of Eden. Yeah. And I, I would say with, with, with love and year or, uh, or things to come, I like, I like that they changed the title because they wanted to avoid confusion with the Miranda July film. So they changed it to the title of a Wil- William Cameron Renzi's uh, H.G. Wells <laughs> film. But, um, yeah. but this was the one when I saw it, that was the first time I'd gone to one of her films having already like a long history, having watched the star, because mm-hmm. it's funny, you mentioned the mother in Eden and that's Arsene Kanjan, who is the star of all the Adam Agoyan movies. And so mm-hmm. I had like long been familiar with her, um, at least since the nineties rather, but like, um, but she's only a supporting part in this. And this is a case where Isabel Huppera have like a long history with, mm-hmm. you know, as the star. And so it was kind of unique in that respect that it was like a, a star vehicle as well as a, another personal Mia Hansen Lowe film. And I remember the night that we saw this because I was kind of nervous because it was like we were seeing it on a double bill, essentially with Elle, the Paul Verhoeven <laughs> film. And, uh, and I was seeing it with you and with Sam Deegan. Uh, and, and um, you know, I, I knew what Mia Hansen Lowe's other films were. And I knew that they were kind of, you know, kind of middle-class, kind of safe <laughs> kind of stories. And I'm like, is this going to seem like this kind of, superficial cream puff of a, of a movie next to the, <laughs> to, to the, uh, to the more abrasive Paul Verhoeven movie. The day um, Uper makes a cream puff, I will chop off my hand. Like she is not going to ever allow that to happen. I feel like. Yeah. Well, I hadn't seen it yet. So yeah, I, didn't, totally. I didn't, I didn't know what we were getting into. I'm like, Oh man, I hope that they don't hate it. Um, yeah. You know, more than I was worried that I was going to hate it. I was just going, right, well, let's, let's see what it is. And so this is, kind of uh, inspired somewhat by uh, Mia Hansen Loeb's uh, own mother, but it's about a philosophy professor kind of ad- adjusting to a, you know, a series of difficult life changes, both, you know, personal and professional. It covers, uh, I don't know if it really kind of defines this stretch of time as quite as clearly as, as even as far as like the specific years. But I mean, it's a kind of film that opens with like a pre-credit sequence and then immediately jumps several years later. So it kind of bounces through time similarly to her other films um but not in like as cut and dry as the first two films as far as like people dealing with the aftermath of something years later i mean it's a kind of a gradual evolution through time but yeah i mean what are your what are your opening thoughts on this one because i know that this one might still be your favorite i know that you you know this is probably what prompted you to suggest this episode to me (laughs) yeah yeah so so like you say we have a philosophy teacher 
and author in her early 60s, Natalie, and she's navigating this series of big life changes, right? Her work becomes unstable. She learns that her husband is leaving her. Her demanding mother dies suddenly. And the only friend of hers that we see, a former student, he moves far away sort of physically and ideologically. And at the start of the film, it seems like Natalie is like this skilled tightrope walker. She's balancing as she moves quickly between her school, her publishers, her mom's house, her own house. She's balancing everyone's needs and her own intellectual pursuits all at once. And she's just perpetually in motion, right? Like when she reads, it's standing up on the subway. When she teaches, she's pacing around the room. But then like dominoes, like each of her responsibilities falls and disappears. So all of a sudden she's a tightrope walker, but she's got no rope, no poles, no audience. And she's adrift, right? And she has to decide through her grief and her shock how she's going to move through this space and what she's going to fill it with. Suddenly, she's not just a tightrope walker. She's also the owner of the circus, right? And so for the first time in her life, she really has the freedom to choose and to live for herself. And she feels unmoored. She has this lightness of being that's almost unbearable, right? But she eventually accepts these feelings and embraces the void, which is something a philosophy professor is very well, you know, able to do. And she even she even gives away the last tether to her old life, which is her mother's cat. And in the process of all of this, she sort of gains this strength and this warmth and this serenity. And I think the idea of balance is really key to L'Avenir. Like the, the film, and especially the characterization of Natalie, it shows balance expertly, I think, in a few different spheres, right? Like the balance between the life of the body and the life of the mind, the balance between empathy and hard boundaries, and the balance between radicality and open ambivalence about the world, maybe open-mindedness or ambivalence if you're left uh, sympathetic to her stances. And like, if we have time, we can kind of look at these three balancing acts one by one. We, and have, like, we, we have time. Yeah. And like along the way, talk about what I think some reviewers got wrong. But do you want to go back and talk about the opening sequence first? Like when she's on the ferry and they're going to visit Chateaubriand's grave? Yeah, I think what is that the I'm trying to think like what what the the quote is it's it's is it can we put ourselves in the place of the other like yes. it's 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 asking about empathy she's grading the paper it's are they on a ferry it's kind of like a foreshadowing of the imagery of a of a of a future film in that way but yes. it's also like uh they 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 find a grave where the the what is it's like a great writer wanted to be buried here to hear this sea and wind so honor their <laughs> honor their wishes something that was like a uh, you know respect the the peace and tranquility of this environment essentially is yeah. what we're learning and it, so it's 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 kind of an interesting kind of like somewhat cryptic way to begin before jumping ahead like we're given this information but it's like we still haven't really learned who anyone is yet mm. um, yeah yeah. <laughs> I think I think for me this scene is really interesting like first because it's her first time working with a star like you said and she does this really curious thing which I think is really effective like she really resists showing us Isabelle Huppert's face for a while like mm -hmm. we open with this mid shot of the ferry with the back of we can see the back of Huppert's head and shoulders in the midground and from this angle she's just this kind of nondescript figure hunched over probably writing and um, and her husband knocks on the glass and he's like come out onto the deck and she's like yeah yeah I'm coming and we watch her from behind and we sort of feel the ferry rocking in the rainy weather and we creep slowly slowly forward until we can peer down and see what she's doing she's grading an essay and only once she's done does she stand up and like a child we see her from below like we're the child mm. and she's Isabelle Huppert 
And so we get this very tentative approach to Natalie's character that gives us a real chance to enter the scene, to feel the fairy, to feel this disconnect between her and her husband, this disconnect in time. We, we know that she has a family, a job, demands on her time. She's working while she's on holiday. And we get all of this information. We, we see the essay she's grading, which is about empathy. We get all this information before we get sucked into the orbit of charisma that is Isabelle Huppert, right? Like, <laughs> before we start thinking of this as an Huppert vehicle, like her orbit is so strong that it's really smart to hold off showing us her face until we get to take in other important information about the world of the film and sort of put down roots in it ourselves. Yeah. Um, I think that was super deft. That was really good handling. Yeah, well, it's interesting compared to the other films in that I don't know that any of them quite rest on the shoulders of someone with so much authority. Even yeah. even the first films that have kind of like fairly charismatic, charmer, father figure type protagonists in their first halves. I don't think it's the same thing. I mean, this is, I'm speaking as someone that like comes to it having already seen, you know, things like The Piano Teacher or things that mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I have like expectations that she's smart. She is strong. Like she mm -hmm. won't be broken by any of these other characters that are like blocking the building of her classroom. Like she's somebody that is tough. And I think my memory of it, whenever I think back on this film is like, I, I forget about all the times that she breaks down crying because mm -hmm. I just think of her as having steely resolve mm -hmm. um, and that she's never really hobbled for more than a few moments by death or, you know, people changing the cover of her book or even the, uh, the, the end of her marriage. She just picks up the pieces and moves on. And maybe it's because she has that grounding in philosophy that she's able to think about these things in context that kind of gives her kind of a structure that like say Camille does not have in goodbye first love. Like she's never mm -hmm. thrown into the, uh, to the deep water without like any kind of recourse. And maybe mm -hmm. that's, you know, it's funny because it, it, it is a film that like throws out big ideas. Like even the beginning, we since we talked about the beginning, like you know, music should be seen as well as heard. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, you know, it like we're, we're being thrown these kind of like Rousseau quotes or whatever like that. And it's like, do we do the heavy lifting? Do we grapple this like it's a philosophical lecture? I mean, is this meant to be interpreted all symbolically or is she just intuitively telling the story of a philosophy teacher and so these are the things that she's tossing in our way like it's a kind of a it's kind of a denser text in that way especially compared to something like Eden where you don't have anyone really saying anything profound by design here it's like you're gonna be faced with you know like real deep thinking and arguments too i mean i think that it you know it opens with her reading the radical loser and i think about how this film might be responding to critics i don't know that i mean her if her films come under fire for not being more politically engaged but it's like if she is and it feels like like a defensive move on her part to make the character that we most identify with the one that is the centrist or at least the one that is more radical than her husband but less radical than her student and i don't know i mean do you think that she's trying to say one particular thing about the you know in terms of like the political uh, message of the film? Yes, I think she's privileging people who think seriously and think deeply, mm -hmm. but who respond not based on personal conviction or ideology, but on like a, a topic by topic basis. And I think we'll get to that if we can talk about the three balancing acts. Yes, um, let's do that. Yeah, I because you talked about 
you brought up the Rousseau quote and you also talked about her crying more than you remembered. And I had the exact same experience. I was like, I forgot how much she's sobbing in this film. And it's a little bit scary to see Isabelle Huppert cry because you, I'm so used to seeing her as this figure of empowerment. Like even if her character is quite cruel, she always feels really empowering to me. And so when she cries, like, I don't want to see mama cry, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but anyway, um, yeah, but, but, but I think that really speaks to the first balancing act in this film, which is between intellectual fulfillment and physicality, right? Like, so we have this short, like you say, like this um, short but emphatic scene in which Natalie reads to her students from Rousseau's novel, Julie. And it's this beautiful excerpt about like how desire and imagination and hope, these three exercises of the mind are all more fulfilling than like immediate carnal pleasure. And Julie is about like letters written between two people who love each other, but never meet. Right. Mm. And so After Natalie's husband leaves her very early in the film, she and her friend and former student Fabian, they're talking and Fabian's like, he keeps assuring her that she'll find someone else. But Natalie is like, no, like, I'm lucky to be satisfied intellectually. Like, that's enough for me. Like, my life is engaged with philosophical texts. And it really is like, instead of a eulogy at her mother's funeral, like she reads a passage from Pascal, right? Like she is engaged intellectually. Like, that's who she is, right? But right from the start, right from this first conversation with Fabian, like, Natalie's body betrays her reserve, right? Like, a tear escapes and she apologizes and Fabian, like, rubs her arm. And this is the first real sign of physical warmth in the film, even though we've seen her already with her husband and her kids. And Natalie will cry more and more as her losses mount. And always she's doing it isolated. She's in bed. She's alone among strangers on the bus. But finally, we get to see her have company when she's crying and we get to see her have physical contact. And it's this cat. And just when she thinks that this cat that she inherited from her mother, this cat that she didn't want, she's allergic to it. Her last link to her old life, her last dependent has run away and will never survive in the wild because it's always lived in an apartment. The cat shows up in the morning and it brings her a dead mouse, like to see, look, I can survive and I can even hunt, right? Like, <laughs> and it reminds her that we carry within us this capacity to survive unfamiliar conditions, to survive loss. And upon seeing the cat, Natalie's physicality is like unlocked. Her face breaks into this grin. She starts cooing and she picks it up to snuggle it. And we see her holding it or wanting to hold it throughout the second half of the film, even though she grumbles about it, until finally she has something else to snuggle and to be met. And this is a baby grandson, right? Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate in this film that there's no contradiction between the pleasures of the intellect and the body. Physicality isn't valued more. It's just something additional that Natalie gains to achieve a kind of harmony in her life. And Mia Hansen-Love has kind of talked about this. She said, like... There are two different interior movements in the film. They are almost the opposite, but actually they're the same. One is about finding your freedom without depending on anybody. You can understand that statement as a rejection of the body. But actually, I think the film is also about reconciling with your body. And I think we see that with Natalie and her increased physicality and crying and snuggling. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Sorry, should I? Yeah, no, no. Keep going. I have too much to say about this film, man. I love it. I the, the second balancing act that I think Things to Come achieves superbly is kind of hard boundaries, hard emotional, relational boundaries on the one hand and vulnerability and empathy on the other. So I watched this film in the cinema with my mom mm-hmm. and she thought Natalie was 
terrible. She was like way too cruel to her mom. <laughs> and she's like, hey, my mom hated this movie. Um, but like always, like I left an Isabel Luper film feeling totally empowered by the way. She seems completely unashamed of what she needs and how she defends her needs, mm-hmm. often in these unexpected and impressive ways. So like she's she's Isabelle Perry like she's super tough right like I think I think the beauty of l'avenir of things to come is that it shows what grief and vulnerability look like for someone who begins maintains and ends the film with strong boundaries with like a clear personal sense of morality mm. um this film is it's really funny and a lot of the humor comes from Natalie's like snappy comebacks right she's someone who knows damn well who she is and what she will and won't take and Isabelle Perry apparently like really appreciated Natalie's character because she doesn't fight, she doesn't beg, she doesn't concern herself with battles that are already lost, like with the publishers. Uh, Uther said, she has a sense of dignity. She always remains very upright. It's nice. I like that. I know that Isabelle Huppert has many dozens of credits and I've seen many of her films, but uh, the films I associate most with her are this, The Piano Teacher and Elle. And I think about them all kind of together in my head, even more than I think about this in relation to other Mia Hansen love movies, because I think about that mother-daughter dynamic and the way that there's like issues with boundaries with with Isabella Pear character and the mother that for, for all of her kind of toughness out in the world, it's like a, a source of real anxiety for those mm-hmm. characters is that relationship with the mother. And, uh, and even seeing it back to back with Elle only further, I mean, there's even a cat in both. Like, I mean, they, they felt like, they felt like weird sides, two sides of a different coin, but you know, but I think that's interesting that your mother reacted <laughs> with some alarm to Natalie's of her mother, because, because I feel like the mother's totally unreasonable in this movie. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, the Edith Scope character, I think, is, you know, like calling the firemen all the time to like, she, she's like the mother in Chili Sins of Winter, which is my favorite movie, but just like somebody that is like just too, too in the business of the child, like too present in their life in a way that it's like demanding their attention in a way that feels like it doesn't feel like the correct boundaries. But um, what do you think when we're talking about like the the uh, the melodrama that you might expect I think that the first time I watched this, I was expecting Fabian to become her lover in the wake of the marriage dissolving. And I I think it's interesting that it only kind of suggests that without pursuing it, because it's more interesting to not do that. But what do you feel about that? I mean, did you did you have that same expectation the first time you saw it? No. I didn't expect them to come together because it just didn't seem quite like that's where she was coming from. I thought Fabian maybe had feelings for her. But yeah, I appreciate that this is a film in which she makes all her decisions and they don't end up with her being with anyone else. Like, I think it talks about just how, I mean, what can I say? Like, so Isabelle Luper in a different interview, she's like, I think the great statement of this film is that she really shows us somebody, Mia Hansenlove, really shows us somebody who finds inner resources in herself rather than in others. Her salvation doesn't come from the outside, but from the inside. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's still unfortunately noteworthy to have a film dedicated to showing a woman feeling liberated by the absence of her loved ones and to keep that character entirely sympathetic right Mm, like it's unusual enough to see it's unusual enough to see a woman kind of finding love and hope outside of any relationship like watching things to come I sort of realized how codependent we expect characters especially female characters to be yeah, I think there's dialogue in the film. And I don't know if I have it to the ready as like far, but like that she's at that age where like maybe she won't have another lover, you know, mm-hmm. or that, you know, that she won't 
have another relationship. And I think part of our reaction is like, oh, no, I mean, Isabel Huppert, you're going to find... <laughs> I will date find you. Some- I will date you right now, Isabel Huppert. Yeah, like you're gonna you're gonna find somebody. But it's yeah. it's but it's interesting that it's like maybe she'll fall in love five minutes after the film that we've watched ends. Like we don't mm-hmm. have like any kind of window into her future. I mean, anything could happen to her. Yeah. But it's it is nice that it is a happy ending without that being a requirement for it to be a happy ending. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But yeah. But at the same time. It depends on how you read it, I guess. I mean, if you feel like she's right, that she's never going to fall in love again because we didn't see her fall in love at the end of this movie. Like, I mean, it depends on how you, you know, you want to feel about how, how, how definitive you feel about the ending meaning something. But um, I mean, I always kind of feel like the character has already won the victories of like all these challenges. And then, you know, if she falls in love, she will fall in love on her own terms. But it's like yeah. the fact that it doesn't need Fabian to be like her uh justification for happiness is 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 definitely nice but it's also kind of it's 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 kind of a sad dynamic because of the i I think she wants some kind of reassurance that like he still looks up to her and like the the um you know their their disagreements in in that in that scene are it's definitely like the most painful scene in the film for me to watch because i i feel like so bad for 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 natalie in that moment that he's being kind of a prick Mm. but yeah I mean, it, it's so, it's just a testament to Apera and the writing, I think, that she can be so strong. Like, she really holds her own in that argument. And she mm. leaves it on a great line where she's like, like, we may not agree, but I, like, you're attacking me for, because my, you don't think my actions line up with my ideals. Yeah. But I've devoted my life to teaching kids how to think for themselves. And I, if you, if you recognize nothing else, you should at least see that, like, you know, implying the fact that he was her student, like she did this for him. Yeah. The fact that he has this vocation in philosophy is because of her, which is something he's already said in an earlier scene. So, yeah. but, but it is really painful and she does feel very vulnerable in that film. And I think that's kind of the second brilliant balancing act that this film pulls off is this like, this mix of vulnerability and toughness. And it, it like it's interesting because I think for me it comes out most strongly in her relationship to her mother. Like despite her hard boundaries, mm-hmm. like when the mom's like, Oh, why can't I move in with you? She's like, What, you're gonna sleep in my bed too? Like, come on. Like, no. <laughs> but uh, Isabella Per I'm sorry, I can't stop reading interviews with her. So she was she spoke about this and she was like she said, women seem like they've won so many battles and they have. But actually, I think that even in fiction, it's so rare just to show a woman is not a victim. Like at the same time, Natalie's not a warrior either. She remains very human, but she doesn't collapse either. She doesn't make herself a victim, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't feel things. And yeah, like even in this relationship with her mother, which is so barbed, she has to have such strong boundaries because her mother is so manipulative and annoying that her vulnerability for me shows the strongest, like in the tender way she watches her mother sleeps or when her mother calls in the middle of class, once again, threatening to kill herself and call the fireman. There's this kind of tragicomic scene in which Natalie gets really flustered and she's like half running away from her students apologizing and like struggling to get her arm in her jacket. And it's <laughs> It's it's really vulnerable, and we, we feel it kind of... It's vulnerable and it's comic at the same time, which is the brilliance of Isabel Huppert. But we feel it kind of... I felt it most deeply, most painfully after the mother dies and Natalie has to sum up her mom's life to the priest who's going to give her eulogy. And in this scene, we realize that Natalie has totally understood her mother's seemingly mad behavior all this time. She explains to the priest that her mother had spent her life suffering from having felt abandoned. And in that moment, she kind of breaks eye contact with the priest and seems 
briefly unable to take the next breath. And it's this really stunning performance. And it seems to respond to the question that opens this film, which is, can we put ourselves in the place of the other? It seems like in this moment, Natalie is really holding her mother's fear of abandonment and understanding it and empathizing with it. But this background information is only new to us, right? Like Natalie had no- has known this all along and it didn't stop her from being necessarily tough with her mom. And so I, I, I don't know, I think this film shows without sentimentality, but with love, right? That elderly parents can be a burden and there's no fake compassion anywhere in this film. You know, Yvette, Natalie's mom is like, she's more like a young kid than a parent. Like she treats her daughter like a provider and she lies to manipulate Natalie into giving her more time and attention. And Natalie's own kids are grown, right? She and her husband are also very like independent and even antagonistic, even before they split up. So this relationship with her mom is really Natalie's strongest relationship, her deepest bond. And we hear just how crucial the mom was in forming Natalie in the eulogy because we hear that like the mom had really regretted never going to school. So she really pushed her daughter to study and become a teacher. And so this is why in classic Mia Hansen love fashion, the biggest tragedy in the film comes right at the midpoint with the mom's death. It cuts the film almost exactly in half. Yeah. And it's like Natalie can't live her own life when the mom is alive. She's constantly interrupted because she needs to handle the mom's crises, right? And Mm -hmm. so of course it's this death It's the death of the mom that devastates Natalie the most, but also frees her up the most. And this is where I wonder about the people who reviewed the film, because most reviewers talk about the breakup of the marriage as the big loss. But Heinz is like almost a superficial character. He's like one loss among many others. Like the totally irreverent way that she handles their breakup and their later encounter, like kind of gives the film a lot of its buoyancy. Like he just, Heinz just seems like a pouting baby who refuses to reconcile himself. I I mean, at one point, Natalie gets the book, The Obsolescence of Man, as a a gift. And I I don't think that's like an accident. (laughs) Ah, that's lovely. I was going to say, with the the death of the mother, I I agree that that's the that's the the more crucial change in her life that versus the marriage. Um, But I also was going to say that for um, for filmmaker that really kind of avoids manipulation through music uh, in a lot of dramatic sequences. This is an instance where she uses opera. I can't remember the specific cue, but when uh, when she's returning to her mother, there's opera on the soundtrack like it is the mo- it, like she's she gives into the the pleasures of melodramatic cinema <laughs> mm-hmm. you know in, in in certain moments uh and like like with this one but um something i noticed watching all the films and sequences is that she's always taking digs at at french politicians <laughs> um, <laughs> you're talking about chirac no yeah Hollande? because yeah. Because, because in all is forgiven the kid brother makes uh fun of sarkozy being ugly and then in this one they make <laughs> the mother makes fun of chirac and then i think there's also a dig in maya in i can't remember the specific uh one but it's like politicians only get mentioned to be ridiculed in their movies <laughs> yes there is one in maya yeah that is true and like let's just just pause to talk about Edith Scove because like it just makes so much so Edith Scove plays Yvette Natalie's mom and it just makes so much sense to put Uper in the same lineage as Edith Scove is like epic actress because like Uper Scove never stopped working since she made her first film decades ago but unlike Uper like Scove apparently isn't so famous even in France but to cineast she's like of course super iconic from films like Eyes Without a Face and yeah, but I guess people know her from Holy Motors now. But yeah, it's just, it was such a pleasure to see her. Like, rest in peace, Edith Scope. She's lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's amazing in this. I, yeah, I associate her with Eyes Without a Face, but I, yeah, Holy Motors, I guess, is maybe what more people, like, of a different generation would, would associate with her. Yeah. 
but she was she was her IMDb profile is so epic like it's really impressive well done scope um, when um when she is weeping until she sees her husband with the new partner on the street and then she starts <laughs> laughing <laughs> what did you read on that scene so yeah I actually have that picture of her starting to laugh as my desktop background it's just <laughs> I think it's just a lovely reminder that our losses are never insurmountable and that kind of lightness and weight are totally inextricable and that Heinz is a buffoon. He's not someone that she felt totally passionate about and seeing him with these wraparound sunglasses and his young lover, it's just, it's, it's funny. I think it, it shows us that Uper is sitting on the bus. She's thinking about whether there's any evidence of God in the world because we hear her, her quote in voiceover and, um, and instead of evidence of God, she shows us this buffoony guy and his young girlfriend and she just has to laugh and yeah I it makes sense to me and I'm not sure I can fit it in into the film in a very smart way but it, it just seems to make a lot of sense yeah well as far as scenes that and how they fit into the film to, to question them I, I think of the scene where uh Natalie goes to see Abbas Kiristami's certified mm-hmm. copy and like mm-hmm. someone tries to pick her up in this in in the theater, and I just I know that I saw an interview with her where she talks about like oh just uh, as far as actress titans of French cinema like Huppert going to see Binoche in a movie you know just I think appealed to her, but I just think it's so funny of all the films to imagine like sketchy guys trying to pick up women. Abbas-Kiristami <laughs> psychodramas feel like like such an unexpected choice. <laughs> Man, it's so strange. Yeah, so yeah, I think I've read somewhere Hanson Love was like, yeah, I just felt a bit like wicked making Uper sit in a cinema to watch Pinoche because they're such <laughs> they're such stars. They're both such stars. Um, but apparently she, this film is based on her mother and she had said it in a specific year and um, she was just flipping through like old newspapers seeing what was on in the summertime and, and she saw like, oh, that's, that's the kind of film my mom would see. I don't have notes on this to speak to the um, to the politics of France at the time, but I know that in the I want to say it was at one of the New York Q and A's when this movie played, you know, premiered at the New York Film Festival, that someone did ask her about the changing political landscape in France after the time that the film is set, and did she intend that? And she said that she did. That it was not speaking to issues that would become the subject of discourse in the years that follow things to come. And I don't know if, if he's talking about immigration issues and racial tension in France in the wake of the time period or, or, or what, but it is apparently purposeful that it's set in this time beyond just the, um, you know, whatever kind of time in her mother's life she's commenting on. But yeah. Um, yeah. And I think she said it specifically during this time where there are like intense student protests because she wanted that to be part of the plot. Mm, um, uh, it's uh, the, the, the scene, so Natalie's in the cinema and she, it just seemed so unnecessary and weird to me that this man sits next to Natalie, he gropes her thigh and she moves and he follows her and then she leaves the cinema and he stalks her for 10 minutes, pulls her around, force kisses her and she's like, I'm not in the mood and he leaves. And just like, what? Like, are we just... Was that there to just show us that Natalie's still attractive? Like, it's her choice not to be with anybody? Like, people are still attracted to her? It just seems so unnecessary. And I just, I wonder why filmmakers are so obsessed with showing Isabelle Huppert handle sexual assault. Because it's in a lot of her movies, man, a lot of them. And here it just felt like such a useless interlude in such an otherwise excellent film. I don't know, like, Huppert is known for playing these strong, irreverent characters. 
And I wonder if seeing sexual assault handled in this way doesn't downplay its threat, doesn't downplay its violence. Because seeing, seeing Uper respond in this strong, totally effective way that she always does, whatever effective means to her in that film, mm-hmm. it always makes me feel a little bit like the filmmaker is saying, like, see, sexual assault doesn't have to be life-changing. It doesn't have to be that bad. It can be funny. And you're opening the can of worms that L's conversations yeah. that we seem to lead to. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Because I have, and it's I have a few friends that were really offended by L for, for the reasons that you're saying. And this is only one straight scene in, in yeah. this film. And we've, I mean, we've talked about it. And I've, I'll, if you want me to like summarize this brilliant feminist reading of L that I just read, I can. But like, it's just, it's, yeah. I, I wish we weren't so obsessed with watching Isabella Pair handle sexual assault. But on the other hand, like, Maybe it, like sometimes it's really empowering to see her do that. So I don't know. I, she 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 says that she's always drawn to portray winning victims, and I think that's a big part of it. I like that concept of winning victims. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no. I mean, for all I know, that's like written into her contract. Like we have to have at least one scene of this. So uh, somehow I, I feel like that's not her demand. <laughs> I'm just gonna be honest. I feel like that's forced it upon her in scripts. I'm just gonna say. Um, yeah, I, we're too quick to expect Isabella Pair to handle sexual assault. We're too quick to expect a woman's romantic relationship to be the most profound loss in her life. And that's why I think reviewers didn't give enough weight to the loss of her mom. Possibly they didn't want to give away spoilers, but there are ways to avoid it without, I think, assigning undue emphasis to a romantic relationship. Well, it's funny because, yeah, I mean, when it comes to spoilers, we're talking about all these films, some of which haven't been widely seen, you know, and spoiling things. But I don't know that her films, there is the, the element of surprise with them and suspense that you talked about at the beginning of this talk. But at the same time, I, I feel like they, they are rewatchable films with even out the surprise element because yeah. they're, not, they're not dependent on that um, to work. Yeah, but. yeah, totally. I totally agree. Yeah. So we've we've talked about sort of like these two sets of opposites that this film balances really well, like intellect and physicality, boundaries and empathy, like all of these things kind of come together and Natalie just sort of balances them beautifully and kind of reaches this harmony. And I think the third balancing act in this film is radicality versus ambivalence or open-mindedness, depending on how sympathetic you are to Natalie. Mm -hmm. It's just funny how, like, in the first full day of Natalie's that we see in this film, she's, like, effortlessly navigating discussions about communism, leftism, anarchism, and gaudy market capitalism with her publishers, right? And so she sort of, she listens, and she seems to respond to each conversation on its own merits. Like, she's not someone who seems to have immovable convictions that dictate her behavior. Like, in her classes, too, she's always playing devil's advocate to each of her students' arguments, kind of balancing out the other side to get them talking and get them thinking. And so she's criticized in the film by Fabian, who claims that she has no conviction, that her politics don't go far enough into influencing her behavior or her lifestyle. And then an anarchist friend of Fabian sort of really smugly suggests that by being, as Natalie says, too old for radicality, Natalie is really ignoring her responsibilities, right? Like the world doesn't change, like even if you grow older. Mia Hansen-Love has said that she doesn't think Natalie is less radical than Fabian. It's just that he's in this kind of uncompromising ideological relationship with the world, which means that he has to defend certain ideas and she says this requires an implicit incomprehension of other ideas. Whereas Natalie, on the other hand, has a much more nuanced relationship with the world, 
Henson Luff says ideology makes us create a simplified form of the world and Natalie doesn't accept that simplification. And so like, I don't know how I feel about this. I feel mixed about this. I think Mia Henson Luff shies away too much from statements, but I think this stance that she's describing is really well articulated in this film. And Uper kind of points out that there's an interesting reversal in Fabian and, and Natalie's relationship. Like she says, like, Usually we expect the older generation to have more firm political convictions and to be narrow-minded as a result of those convictions. Um, But here she says the younger generation is more politically certain and judgmental, and the older character has reached the stage of kind of open-minded ambivalence, which she kind of considers things deeply, but she doesn't always fall to one side as a rule. Yeah, I think with the radical student character, I I think at first we're given this impression that he's going to be in the wrong because we we know that Isabel Huppert's character is more nuanced and reasonable and he's kind of stubborn in his conviction and and maybe maybe we think because of their age difference like he's he's impulsive and young and doesn't have the wisdom of her character and therefore his position is inherently you know the one we are less likely to believe is is correct but then when we see him like after some time has passed and we see him like, you know, with his, uh, you know, his donkeys and his, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like he, he he's trying to live uh, something like a domestic life, but like by like still honoring his core principles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think the film is necessarily judging him too harshly, even though it's yeah. kind of inviting us to see him as, you know, flawed just by, by putting him in opposition to our most sympathetic main character. But I think that it's still trying to respect his way of living too, which because I think that 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 just seems more like how me Hanson Love operates is to mm-hmm. is to see everyone's point of view as best mm-hmm. she can, which is tricky with politics because compromise is not always uh, something that is like viewed favorably, depending on you know how militant people are, and you know, if people see, uh, I, I'm sure there are viewers that like walk away like agreeing with the, the the commune's criticisms of Natalie, even though I think the film doesn't. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, for me, I'm someone who would tend to agree with the anarchists mm-hmm. just personally, but for me, I really did see a radicality about Natalie, and that lied in lay that lay in her self assurance, really, her refusal to bow to external pressure, her refusal to feel guilty when others intended her to and that's the mom the anarchist the ex-husband hoping to stay to dinner at the end and there's a radicality in the way that she stubbornly remains perceptive to new feelings and ideas even those that are painful and in the way that she's resilient enough to cut loose from her comfortable kind of illusions and disengage from losing battles like those with the publishers so I do think there's a radicality about Natalie what you're saying about kind of seeing everyone's perspective and I think she is a handsome love like really is respectful of Fabian and his anarchist friends, but she also takes this kind of playful, ambivalent stance toward him as well, and and sort of anarchism as, as well in the film. Um, Why? Because like he has a copy of the Unabomber's book. Uh, no, no, that, I, I liked that because it shows that he's like at least curious about. I mean, it's he has like a conservative, uh, centrist sort of anti-Marxist conservative ish 
politician and thinker's book whose the name is uh, abandoning me. But yeah, he's got a lot of different books and she sort of looks at his bookshelf and exclaims at the variety, including the Unabomber. Mm. But I think that does credit to Fabian. It shows that he's not so grounded that he's disinterested in other perspectives. But what I think, the way in which I think she's kind of playing with his anarchism is like Fabian is apparently like writing books championing like countervailing power structures and alternative lifestyles. But yet he and his friends, like they all drive cars, they all smoke Marlboros by the carton, right? Like, yeah. and it's, it's like, how radical is that, man? I don't know. It's funny. It's funny that also, like, while they're discussing sabotaging the idea of authorship, like, Natalie is yelling desperately for her black cat, which is a symbol. The black cat is a symbol of, like, anarchist syndicalism and anarchist sabotage and the IWW. But this black cat has gone missing as soon as it's reached the anarchist's farm. Yeah. Um, a cat named Pandora. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And there's a, there's another kind of interesting alignment I saw ideologically. Like the, there's these smug German anarchists and they want to abandon the idea of authorship and they find Natalie hopelessly unradical. But it's suggested that Natalie is fired by her upscale publishers because she did not abandon the idea of authorship enough. Like she asserts herself. She tells the marketing team what she doesn't like about their plans. And it seems like she gets fired as a result. So it's almost like abandoning her stake as an author was exactly what the slimy marketers were hoping for. They were hoping she would abandon authorship and she didn't. So I think, yeah, I think there's a kind of playful tension with the ideas that run throughout this film. Yeah, you're not going to find too many auteur filmmakers that have a, uh, you know, people be against authorship, you know, and, and having it be like, yeah, the film's on their side. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, Other than like Godard, you, maybe. He would probably be the only, but he'd be contrarian. yeah. <laughs> What wouldn't good I do? I wonder. Um, there's there's another nice role reversal between Natalie and Fabian, and it's that like early on in the film, Natalie is like the stable one, like, and Fabian says like when he was in high school, he was mourning the death of his dad and he was smoking too much pot, and Natalie was the one who saw potential in him, and she pushed him to further his studies, and now he's sort of like he's in the process of moving and he's sleeping outside to protest evictions and Natalie invites him to have lunch with her and her family in her like beautiful bougie apartment and he clearly feels uncomfortable being so unshowered in her space so but Natalie is like this very stabilizing force like she gives him writing gigs and that kind of thing but by the film's end Natalie is the one mourning a parent she's the one feeling lost and he's the one looking after her he welcomes her into his home this beautiful farm in the countryside and when she accidentally like gets too high one night like he takes care of her right yeah well I was gonna say doesn't she get him off weed and he gets her on weed like when they're both like in their in their in their in their morning of a parent yeah 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 it's not like I don't think it's it's stated like so explicitly but yeah it is exactly that like it's it's very sweet kind of and and both actions are seen as kind kind of you know and it's and she's not like natalie isn't this demanding needy older person but she does tell fabian what she needs in that moment like what care she needs from him and she's like just sit with me for a while and talk to me and he does this happily and it's just like one of the film's warmest moments someone's finally taking care of natalie you know it's really nice yeah, well, it's I, it's that notion of the mentor figure. And, yeah. you know, this is something that, you know, goes back to the early films, you know, but like, 
it's it's interesting to see like the, the mentor as being the cared for character in this sense because it's you know in the coming of age films it's usually like someone like the the teacher that offers the vocation offers the way out or um you know in the case of her real life like the mentor offering you know yeah like someone like Humbert Balsan or, or even Olivia Asias, like like these older men kind of like offering her chances for creative expression. Like the mentor figure is usually up until Bergman Island, you know, kind of treated respectfully, I think. Mm-hmm. And and this is an, in, an interesting kind of variation on that where it's the mentor being cared for by the pupil after mm-hmm. after they've had like some kind of tumultuous moments, but not sexually driven, really. I mean, the yeah. just ideological differences. I don't know. Yeah. And, I, and in some ways it, it, it sets up Maya a little bit, but it it in a different way. Like as far as like those, I think Roman Kolinka in a way like that character. There's a lot that we don't understand about in in Maya, but I think that if we have that experience with him as Fabian, we understand like maybe maybe we project a little bit of that character's um, ethics or ideals onto that character. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. I kind of want to tie this into her filmography a little bit just by talking about time. Because yes. Hansen Love is like, she's always said that making this film helped her get over her fear of aging. Um, she said, more than any of my previous films, this film scared me. I was very pessimistic about the conditions of women. It was a tough film for me, living with the brutal truth of what it is for a woman to be left alone when she's past 50. And at the end, I realized that just like the character, like I wasn't afraid of the void anymore the void that the film deals with. It was as if the character of Natalie had taken me by the hand and helped me through it. The void is there, of course. It's about accepting it. And she said that she could only have written Love in Year, uh, Things to Come and confronted this fear of aging because she was also working on Eden at the same time. She said that, you know, like Eden is about kind of like hope, sort of youth, hype, music, partying, being 20 with everything right in front of you. And because she was focusing on this, she could write things to come on the side. Like she kind of needed both at the same time. Mm. And what's interesting to me is that there's this mixing of ages that's really persistent throughout Love and Year. Like we've got high school students striking because of a race to the pension age. And we've got the sounds of young kids playing, underscoring all the scenes at the mom's apartment. And also the scene where Natalie falls asleep in the park right after Heinz breaks up with her. And the sounds of kids playing keep these, these scenes from feeling too heavy. And like looking back, like this portrait of a woman in her early 60s is actually like totally stuffed with kids and teenagers. Like we've got Natalie's favorite high school students visiting her apartment. Her trip to the cinema is like cross-cut with lots of shots of high school-aged kids and 20-somethings hanging out outside, including Constance Rousseau from All is Forgiven. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the cinema, when Natalie gets this, you know, horrific call notifying her of her mother's death, she's standing next to some high school kids chatting, and their background conversation is actually really high in the mix of the soundtrack, even when we've got our main character receiving this life-changing news. And I think it's significant, too, that Natalie teaches, like, high school in particular, because this is the time in life when young people are really starting to think for themselves and promoting this as her vocation. But it's also an age where you feel really lost, like you've outgrown your home, but you're not totally sure where you belong. And I think this kind of mirrors Natalie's position. She's also right now in this kind of inchoate state where her old roles have fallen away and she hasn't yet embraced new ones. Um, But the difference is that like 
when you're in high school, you experiment with different looks and groups and identities. But Natalie has the experience and the wisdom and the tenacity really to kind of accept doubt and grief and isolation. It's just like a part of life. But I think kind of having this collision of ages in the film, including the baby at the end, it keeps Natalie's character like framed within the flow of time. It's kind of like the young people in the film are a guarantee of life of growth, even when death and doubt seem like they're closing in on Natalie. And this kind of fits in with the filmography because in all of her films, there's this sense of disrupting time. And then if you're lucky, rejoining the flow of time. Like Mia Henson loves characters, they suffer the most when they resist or are unable to cope with the flow of time. Like Gregoire can't face the inevitable dissolution of his company and Paul can't acknowledge that his fans have moved on from his music and Camille can't let go of her old love. And in the opening scenes of L'Avenir, like Natalie and Heinz, they ask exactly the same question of each other. They're like, are you coming? And in both cases, each says, like, in a minute, and they continue doing something independently. And they're visiting the grave of Chateaubriand, and, like, each family member sort of leaves the gravesite at a different time for different reasons. And there aren't that many scenes with Heinz, but we see him sleeping when Natalie's awake twice. And they just always seem like they're in a kind of temporal disconnect between them. And it does seem like time sort of pauses when Natalie's mom dies. She's sort of stuck, but life continues. And there's just more and more shit she has to deal with, like the cat getting the cat out of the radiator. She doesn't have time to really pause and cope. So what differentiates Natalie from like Paul, for example, is that she's really able to cope with the flow of time passing and with not knowing what the future holds. While Heinz is like another guy in this filmography who is kind of stuck in the past, imagining that his breakup will change nothing between them. His political views haven't changed since he was 18 years old. He's like close-minded and he's easily threatened by Fabian. And he just comes across as this kind of like fragile, egotistical man who's like stuck in the mud. Someone we kind of pity a little. Whereas Natalie, who is adaptive to the flow of time, just she only seems to gain resilience. And it's, I think it's a really nice touch that we leave Natalie like comforting a crying baby because the only way to do this is to like get on the same time plane as the baby, <laughs> right? Like you have to be soothing for a baby to be soothed. Yeah, yeah. Um, like you need it to get on your level basically. But it requires this kind of unity. And in the other room, for once her family seems entirely united. They're all engaged in conversation. They're all laughing. Um, so it's a, really, it's a really nice way to close the film, to kind of leave Natalie and her family in this temporal unity. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, uh, I've got nothing to add to that other than I, I, I like that reading of it. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, I think about like um, yeah, that character towards the end, I was talking about like, like intellectual pleasures of longing, I think maybe mm. like, and I, I think that that's just such a different kind of happy ending, but I, it's, it's definitely like the most moving conclusion other than maybe goodbye first love for me of like the endings uh, mm. of her films, as far as the one that is, and maybe that's also the, the use of that uh, Fleetwoods song, uh, yeah. the cover version of uh, Unchained Melody is, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just, like a great movie moment, I think. But uh, I challenge anyone not to be moved by the final <laughs> scene in Love in You. I'm not someone who's like that into babies, but I was, yeah, someone was chopping onions, as they say. <laughs> yeah, well, the, baby, the baby also uh, is central to an interesting uh, moment of tension right like a few minutes before when the uh, her daughter kind of tearfully says, give me back my baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They don't elaborate on what that moment means. I guess it's how the viewer wants to to take it. But uh, I thought that was, I mean, again, again, just like a beat you don't expect to see in movies. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, like Natalie's like, she and Heinz ended up 
in the hospital room at the same time by accident. And so they're kind of bickering and like, who gets to hold the baby? And then Heinz finally leaves and Natalie's like, oh, I thought he'd never leave. And Chloe, the daughter, Sarah Le Picard, who's like really great actor and also has the blonde bob. She's the blonde bob character in this film. She starts crying. And Natalie's like, I'm so sorry. Are you upset about what I said about your dad? And she just shakes her head and she's like, give me back my baby. I think this is there to remind us that Natalie, while excited to be a grandma, like still doesn't really have an anchor or a dependent in the world. Like she's still free. It's not her baby. But I also feel like this gives us, this gives humanity to the character of Chloe because it's her who told her dad, like, listen, I know you have a girlfriend like Johan, my brother also knows, like you need to decide. And so here's Chloe again, kind of reconciling with what she started, which is the breakup of her parents. So, yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I, I read it that way also that, that it was initially the guilt motivating the tears, but which is mm-hmm. why her demand to have her baby return to her seemed like such a, a uh, I, I couldn't tell if it was like based in need or because she wanted to have a a different reason why she was crying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sort of like when and Natalie, like she gets lonely in Fabian's house and she kind of can't sleep and she comes downstairs and she's like, have you seen my cat? Like she wants to hold her cat one last time. It's a great, it's sort of a great tenderness to this film. Yeah. The way she gets to act a little bit like a little girl without it ever seeming infantilizing. Yeah. 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 I, I think, um, I mean, we can talk about, you know, the other films and, and certainly I think there's probably an argument to be made for Bergman Island, but I think that, um, you know, so far, I think when her filmography is assessed, like what are the major works, I think she will probably have a hard time coming up with anything that is more profound and moving than things to come. So it was kind of like, as someone that's kind of like rooted for her, as someone that's like enjoyed the films, like leading up to this, like this at the time, I was like, okay, good. Like she's, she's at this level now. about Maya now. I've, I've been talking a lot. Okay. You know, the next one that comes in her filmography is kind of an odd one in some respects, which is Maya from 2018. This is a story uh, starring Roman Kolinka as Gabrielle, who's a war reporter. And uh, he has just been freed after being taken hostage by ISIS. And uh, so after uh, returning home, he leaves France to renovate a house in India uh, and there he, uh, well, kind of exploring the area, uh, he, he gets involved with the daughter of his uh, godfather, uh, played by 
Arshi uh, Banerjee uh, playing Maya. And um, this one, I think because of the casting, they um, at, at one point Juliette Binoche was attached to, to appear in it. But then when that didn't happen, this was a film without any major stars. And uh, because it was primarily based in India, I think that there were certain kind of funding incentives that just weren't in place. So it was a harder film to, to get made than... Uh, than some of the other ones and it's still never been properly released in the united states i saw it when it played a uh like a, a french mini series at the film society of lincoln center it's i think it played it as part of a uh mia hansen low retrospective in the wake of um bergman island but this might be the hardest one to see now in a weird way i mean there's you know pirate copies circulating and it's had editions that are not english language friendly in other countries as far as home video releases but it's it's kind of become a slightly more invisible film bracketed by like her two biggest successes i think and so it's it feels like kind of an outlier just because of the location and also because it's the first one. I mean, there's a lot of English language dialogue in Eden, but this is one where big chunks of it are English language is primary language in the film, but it's dealing with characters that that is not their native language. So it gives certain scenes and performances a kind of maybe maybe stilted quality in places because it doesn't feel as fluid as what you get in Bergman Island uh, in that respect. But um, yeah, I, I guess what, what was your first impressions of this one? Cause I don't think we've ever talked about this one. I, 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 I know this one has kind of a mixed reputation, so I don't, I don't know if you will necessarily uh, you, you, you might agree that it's got some problems, but uh, what do you think of this one? Yeah, I definitely think it has some problems. Um, the, like my main takeaway of that is that this is I think the the quickest way to talk about this film is as like a, a celebration of transnationality and of a very privileged type of transnationality, right? Like our main character's dad was a diplomat. Uh, he grew up in lots of different countries. He can recognize a hotel in Istanbul like just from one glance at the inside of a room. Being a, a journalist, a war reporter is is who he is, he says, and he refuses to settle down for anyone. And this suits Maya, the transnational teenager. You know, she's Indian. She dropped out of high school in London, and now she's back in Goa, and she's living at the luxury hotel her dad owns uh, with her Scandinavian wife. And um, she's about to attend university in Sydney, and she's always traveling around on her motorbike, and she corrects Gabriel when he assumes that she listens to Indian music just because she's Indian. Um, like him, she's sort of, she's fluidly multilingual and our two lovers are just continually on the move throughout the film together and separately. Maya traveling locally and Gabriel traveling and nationally and internationally. Um, so basically, like, I think this film is just like love in motion, but it's also a love of motion, right? It lingers on hotel rooms, on passport pages, on map montages and montages of trains making different stops. And we see Gabrielle and his friend like show each other their surroundings on the phone. So we see like Gabriel's garden in India framing a street scene in Turkey. And I mean, we do hear about the downside of his life, like his kidnapping, his the execution of a colleague. But the film is really remarkably free from details or images. It just it feels much more like an homage to a life of constant travel released one year before the pandemic shut everything down. So it's a little bit nostalgic and in retrospect, it's a bit sad looking back. Um, and of course, this interest in transnationality will extend to Bergman Island, like you've said. Maybe we could talk a little bit about like the ways that it fits in with her filmography up front and then talk about the film more specifically. Yeah, I mean, this character, I, I think when we were talking about 
Paul in Eden, I think I was expecting maybe we might say that to some extent Gabriel is also he's not he's not quite as flawed as Paul, but he is definitely emotionally reserved and not very forthcoming and 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 maybe a little bit self self-involved in the point where he he risks being sympathetic, especially when he gets involved with a character like Maya, who's a lot more open and vulnerable. And he's kind of like the Sullivan character in Goodbye First Love and that he's aware of her attraction and he's he's not on the same page, but he's he's willing to go through the motions of a relationship just when it suits him. But at the same time, he has like echoes of the character he played in 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 Lavender and Things to Come, in that he's kind of driven by a certain kind of righteous ethics and he even runs into conflict with his mother i mean i, I think i mentioned to you in, in in messaging you know i thought of the darjeeling limited mm-hmm. uh, a much sunnier film about young men kind of trying to get their bearings in india after you know some kind of trauma and and encountering their estranged mother and, and actually even india is evoked in the first film too because all is forgiven mm-hmm. giselle makes reference to getting away from the uh, the light that they have in Paris to explore India. And, and it's, it's dismissed by Victor in that film as, you know, some kind of just hippie lark. And it's, you know, so, but, but just the idea of like going to an exotic country and finding yourself, man, like there's a certain kind of cliche to that. But before you saw this, I think you might have said something to me about worrying if it was going to be, I don't know if the word was like, I don't know what word you use, but like maybe like the thought be like kind of kind of um, not touristy or um, like the colonizer kind of approach to this kind of story. I mean, do, do you feel like that you had certain kind of misgivings going in that were borne out as far as her approach to the setting? I thought Mia Hensonloff was going to have a much more nuanced approach to this topic. And I think I knew that she was going to have a really Eurocentric gaze because I'd seen the rest of her films. <laughs> but um, but. Yeah, by the end of this film, yes, it's a celebration of a very privileged transnationality. And I think that's the strongest takeaway from the film. But it's also a very tired Orientalist trope, right? So we have this professionally and financially privileged guy from the West traveling to the global South and East to relieve himself of a private burden. And in the process, he has sex with this beautiful, very young woman, breaks her heart, and he emerges restored with little care for the mess that he's left behind for her to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, can I unpack that a little bit? Just yeah, it'll, yeah. it'll help us like talk about the plot of the film. Like, so actually, you mentioned... Um, you mentioned Eden, right? So like, unlike in Eden, first of all, I think Roman Kalinka like carries this film extremely well. Some mm-hmm. reviewers disagreed, but I think he's quite a powerful actor and some of the power in his performance comes from the contrast between like, he's got a very brooding face, but this he's very quiet, he's very gentle. He's, his kind of quiet, gentle mannerisms are unexpected from someone who's just survived torture. So I think that that mix gives, gives his character a lot of interest and a lot of depth. He also has the talent of conveying a great deal without having an expressive face, which is something his grandfather, Jean-Louis Trantignon, was also like really skilled at. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Kalinka's expression does change to usually express horror, like it, it's quite impactful. It's, it makes a big impression. But the big difference between Gabriel and Paul is that Gabriel is an adult. Like he's very self-aware and articulate. Um, he's decided what his values are. He acts on them accordingly. He's a little bit more like Natalie in the sense that like he's healing from his traumas and attaining or in his case regaining a sense of freedom and that's like a very physical freedom to to move around to start working again to take assignments but whereas like things to come showed Natalie 
finding freedom in finally being on her own and making choices for herself, Gabrielle, at least in part, finds his freedom through this relationship with Maya. And this is unsettling because Maya is not yet an adult herself. And he leaves her with these really ambiguous feelings that include hurt and confusion. So it's like, at what price did Gabriela gain his freedom, gain his healing? I, I found this to be another sort of wholeheartedly loving portrait of someone who may not have earned so much admiration, right? Like thinking yeah. thinking again about sort of this this you know privileged guy from the, the West who goes to the South and East to find himself and relieve himself of this burden, he goes to Goa in India to fix up the home that he lived briefly in as a child. And he says that this will serve as a different type of therapy rather than write a book or stay in France and go to therapy like his colleague has done. And when he arrives in Goa, it's great because he feels at home because he's around other people who are also in transition like himself. Like he sleeps with a tourist. Uh, He meets his godfather who's running a hotel in its last legs uh, and the godfather's daughter Maya is about to leave for university in Sydney. So there are none of the claustrophobic sort of attention and demands made on Gabrielle in Goa that there were in France. And he does find the emotional space there that he needs to heal, right? He fixes up the house, he burns old documents and photographs, he finally meets his estranged mom. But his emotional baggage is replaced by other baggage, right? Like after his brief affair with Maya ends, he hears her voice calling him in the middle of the night. So he's no longer replaying the traumatic scenes from his captivity, but he's got other baggage weighing him down, which is this love affair. And as his therapy, quote unquote, in Goa ends, he leaves a lot of emotional baggage for Maya in his wake, right? Like he shows up at her family's hotel over Christmas after hearing her voice in his dreams. And he knows that he broke her heart earlier and that this would be her first trip back from Sydney. And she's like, why, why did you even come here? And he's just like, I needed to see you again, baby. And she's like, no, you hurt me. Like, and instead of responding, he just like pulls her into a hug. And her face shows that she's like really torn between hurt at seeing him again, longing at seeing him again, resentment about the way he handled their breakup, confusion. They ride to a hotel. She leans in to kiss him. But this look of like harsh, ambiguous, deeply painful feelings never leaves Maya's face Like, it seems like Gabrielle's heart is revived after his ordeal in Syria, but hers is now overburdened. And the next morning, we have this triumphant montage of Gabrielle leaving Goa to meet his colleague in Jordan, and he's back in the saddle again, man. He's healed. He's courageous. He's admirable. But the film and its author, they never seem to acknowledge that Gabrielle's freedom, his healing, came at a cost to Maya. Like, all we get is this nostalgic, sentimental, soaring music this Nick Cave song over their last encounter and his departure. And that carries into the film's credits. Um, I feel like that moment, that final moment of intimacy between Gabrielle and Maya is is replayed in the film within a film in Bergman Island, Mm because it's the same beat that Joseph uh, persuades Amy to have sex one last time, even though they've already established that it's not going to work out. And it's, it's just that that fatalism, but also just like, you know, you know, you want it anyway, uh, even though what I've just said is breaking your heart. It's the same. It's, it feels like the same scene just in Maya. It, it doesn't really judge that character harshly. It stays with his story rather than Maya's, whereas in Bergman Island, we stay with Amy and her heartbreak. So it's it is interesting because yeah, I do struggle with this one a little bit more because that character is not one I, I particularly like as a person because of because of this part of the story, but I'm sorry, I interrupted you. 
No, that's good. No, that makes sense. Like the the main difference between the goodbye in Bergman Island and the goodbye in this film is that in this film it's an adult breaking up with a teenager. Yeah. Maya's 17, right? Amy in Bergman Island is like in her 30s. That's the main difference. Like we it's it's we we spend this film sort of locked into our curious admiring gaze at Gabrielle and this film really has no time for Maya's experience at all. We don't focus on her grief, her heartache, her time in Sydney. Once Gabriel breaks up with her, she's out of sight and she's out of mind until he hears her voice in his sleep and she becomes this sort of almost cliche ghostly romanticized other, right? She's someone our hero may have feelings for, but he doesn't mind dropping her suddenly again a second time. And so it's it's disappointing to me that she ends up just being this plot device to sort of unlock Gabriel's like liberation. And this is like especially unsettling because he's white and from the West and she's Indian, right? Like he came, he got what he needed with his dick, like he left pain in his wake. And he's like completely lionized by the film, like made in 2018. <laughs> like what? Like, I don't know. It's really disappointed to me. It's really disappointing to me that like the character of Maya is so dropped and diminished because the first half of the film sets her up as as kind of an equal to Gabrielle, like someone equally worthy of our attention. Uh, she's she's a traveler like him. She's self-assured. She's perceptive. She's funny. She's knowledgeable. I was reading for another project. I was reading this um this really great essay by Professor Priya Jaikumar about the film Silent Waters, mm-hmm. and she's writing about the what she says the the seemingly irreconcilable, incommensurable alternatives presented to a South Asian woman on screen. And her last example of these, like, irreconcilable alternatives is the alternative between repressive traditions on one side and a history-erasing modernity on the other. And one thing I did really appreciate about the characterization of Maya is that, like, this isn't a binary for her. Like, on the one hand, she's, like, riding her motorbike in shorts. She's, like, living easily in the West. She's sexually forward. But at the same time, she's like, she's full of local and regional knowledge. She gives detailed tours of like these historical sites and she loves living in Goa and she wants to stay there. So like none of these facets in Maya ever seem to conflict. Like traditions aren't repressive in Maya. If anything is repressing Maya, it's Gabrielle, though the film never takes issue with that. But like he takes charge of where she can be and when, right? Like one afternoon they're like sitting on his porch and she's listening attentively to him, like spilling out his life story and their eyes lock. And Gabriel's response is to tell her to go home. Like he's uncomfortable with their chemistry. And Maya's like, oh, are we doing anything bad? And he's like, of course not, but night is falling and I think you should go uh, before your dad starts worrying. So Maya, like she stands up, she's hurt and she's annoyed. And it seems clear to her that he's using her dad as an excuse. And she even says like, I'm sorry if I embarrassed you. When he starts denying this, she just like walks off, um, kind of brushing him off. So it seems like it seems like Maya's mobility is like really helpful to Gabriel. She shows him how to get to the hotel. She shows him around Goa and Hampi until she becomes too mobile and too powerful, too romantically and sexually compelling. And then he has to curtail her mobility. Right. He mm-hmm. wields his authority as an adult because she's still a teenager living with her parent. However, this does not stop him from sleeping with her, (laughs) right? Like Maya's parents allow her to travel alone with Gabrielle to Hampi. And he allows Maya to come with him to a coastal village afterward if her parents say it's okay. Mm -hmm. And it's on this trip that Maya like takes his hand and he eventually initiates sex. And the next morning he finds out that Maya had lied. Like her parents actually had no idea where she was. And he sends her home angrily. And she's like, I love you and I want to go where you go. And he's like, you can't. And she's like, why not? I'm free. 
And he's like, you are, but I'm a war reporter. It's my life. I can't steal you from your dad. You're too young. You have to study and grow up and then you'll know what you really want. And then he sends her off in a chauffeured car. And it's like, yes, it's totally responsible to send a teenager back to their worried parents. But you can't have it both ways. Like, he's happy to sleep with her. But he's shocked and outraged when she behaves like any teenager and lies about her parents, right? Like, he (laughs) he treats her like an adult when it suits him and like a wayward child when it suits him. Yeah. Which I think you've also made this point. It feels like he can rationalize bad behavior. Yeah. Uh, So he doesn't really carry the guilt around about it. And because he's still kind of dealing with this death of his friend and his traumatic experience as a hostage, you know, he's he's too preoccupied on that to really give the treatment he uh, he puts Maya through like real consideration. Um, Yeah. And it's so convenient for him to be like. No, I'm cutting off your mobility because it's your dad's wishes. Like, I'm acting on behalf of your dad. It's like the patriarchal order is, like, well alive in this film. And Gabrielle is the one administering it in India, right? Well, like, Well, it's funny because, in, again, like, you know, you, you bring it back to something like Goodbye First Love. And it's like, it's not quite like he's the Sullivan and she's Camille. Yeah. It's, it's not quite like as extreme as that. But you know that if she's clearly returning to this dynamic in different ways and there's things that seem to kind of combine this dynamic with the goodbye first love dynamic in the Bergman Island film within a film you know the fact that she's you know putting us in the shoes and I don't know if she's rationalizing Gabriel or not but like the fact that like the the woman that we might assume that she's going to empathize with more I mean the film kind of treats her the way Gabriel treats her a little bit Mm -hmm. yeah exactly Um, which given who the author of this material is, is interesting mm-hmm. to me just because um, I, I can't tell if she's trying to like um, have us question, question that character in a way that the film is not questioning him. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Like, it, like it's because I don't think when we see the hurt in Maya that the film is blind to that, but maybe Gabriel is blind to it. But we see we see her hurt so much in passing, just in flashes. There's one instance in which we see Gabriel through Maya's eyes, but we spend almost no time looking at the world through her perspective. Uh, to me, this felt like a really loving homage to Gabriel's mobility and his savviness as a traveler. And it never found it problematic that he's the one curtailing Maya's mobility. Yeah. And it's it's so sad because it works, right? Like Maya had seemed so independent and determined. She leaves whenever she's supposed to and the film leaves her. And it only returns to her briefly when she's kissing our hero again through her tears, right? And it, I, I, it's funny because I think the film is titled Maya, not because Maya gets much attention as a character, but because this is just the Maya interlude in Gabriel's life. Mm-hmm. We never get enough critical distance from him to really see him as the subject of the film. We just kind of go through the world in his eyes and sort of look at him admiringly. But calling this film like Gabriel or the war reporter, it wouldn't make <laughs> sense because we're too locked into his experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it does make sense. Yeah, I, yeah, it is kind of ambiguous as to why she went with that title, but I like that reading of it, that it is just the Maya chapter of his story. Yeah. It's sort of like Mia Hansen-Love like, set out to celebrate the dedicated wanderer who loves women all over the world in her well, own gentle way. But like, did that film need making again? Did well, it? I, I think I it, was, was it was it her grandfather was the war reporter. Like, it, it has some oh. kind of tie to her personal life. But I mean, just... As a jumping off point, I don't think anything else really ties to the, her. I, I think that she had gone to India like 
after, I don't know if, if after like some kind of negative experience, like this was a place to clear her head and maybe the location's just, she wanted to tell a story with those locations. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a curiosity, I think, a, among her films. And it's not one of my favorites, but I find it, I find it interesting. I mean, it's, I think that she definitely rebounds from this one with Bergman Island. But I think that, I think if you're following the whole career, it's, I don't know. I mean, do, you, do you think that there are things about this film that feel like new to Maya that we don't see in the previous films that like she gets better in Bergman Island as far as hmm. things she's doing as an artist? I don't actually see that much similarity between Bergman Island and this film. Mm-hmm. I think this film really fits into her filmography because of this line that Gabriel, he has to do one like mandatory therapy session uh, right when he arrives back in France from being released as a hostage. And his therapist is like, so are you going to have therapy regularly? <laughs> and he's like, not, not if I can help it. I, uh, I've just spent four months analyzing my past as much as I can take with my fellow captives. And the therapist is like, yep, that could be true. But for you, there is a before and after. Like, you will be changed by this experience. And I think this film is sort of unique in the filmography in the sense that we never see Gabriel as a captive. We never see the trauma. We open looking at his bruise uh, while he's in the shower. But the whole film is, it takes place in the after. It charts his recovery. And like, yes, he has setbacks. Yes, he suffers losses, but it's mostly just dedicated to his recovery. And so that's sort of new, but it still places it within the the general concerns of her work with time and trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about the moment when Naomi, who we haven't really talked about yet, mm-hmm. but the, 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 the woman that he had been involved with before being taken hostage and again like Maya like he knows it's over but he still will have sex with her yeah you know when she is the aggressor I mean in both cases he's kind of passive about them but uh but when she's kind of compelled by the group to sing do you have any feeling about that scene it was a lovely scene. I don't really have smart things to say about it, but I think it does set the tone of, of France as a place of sort of like nostalgic longing and loss that she's not singing a happy song, right? She's singing this very forlorn kind of aria. And I think, yeah, I think it sets the tone as, as France as a place for Gabriel of lost love. Yeah. We're admiring this woman, even as he knows that she's already in his past. Um, I think it's very evocative and I found it really affecting. And I thought her performance was really great. But you can see, you know, after she's sort of, she's sort of like, she's trying to have sex with him and he's like, but we broke up. Like we broke up for good reasons. And she's like, none of those reasons matter anymore. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sorry. And then they do it. And then in the next, in the morning, he wakes up crying because he's having flashbacks. And she, she rolls over to hug him. But the way we see this is her arms kind of choking him. They're surrounding his head and neck. And his, mm. his head just seems so vulnerable in the middle of these arms. And you can really feel that all this attention on him is really claustrophobic. So it makes sense that he needs to leave again. Um, I found the France sequence is really affecting. And really, they did the film service, I think. Yeah, yeah I remember the first time I saw it, just think like there was a very... Because I went into it knowing nothing about the story. Like I go into all of these kind of just cold. And I'm like, okay, this is building to something I don't know what it is that that but you talk about suspense being a factor in her films and I remember that being like feeling like one of the most suspenseful opening acts to one of her movies was yeah, yeah. it's nice the opening scene of Maya is quite nice I hope I don't sound like a creep when I say this but like it's quite refreshing to open a film with like this long shot of male nudity it's mm-hmm. not sexualized male nudity 
but it does grab the audience's attention because like humans are just fascinated by each other's bodies. But like it's it's not it's not the bum and panties that opens lust in translation. This one actually <laughs> <laughs> this actually provides a lot of context, right? Like it's this long shot of Gabriel finishing up a shower. We have time to like admire his nice body, but we also wonder about this large bruise on his lower back. And and we can see we have time to notice that he's in a hotel room because of the impersonal bathroom with the little neatly arranged travel size toiletries and the hairdryer built into the wall. And, and he gets out of the shower and he has this big unkempt beard and we hear sort of the call to prayer on the soundtrack. So we, we think maybe he's in like a Muslim majority country. And, and then we get this very visceral tight close up of his head in this very vulnerable pose, kind of very peering into the camera with his neck outstretched and his eyes sort of pleading and he starts to clip his beard away. And his expression is much more like Christ on the cross than like Richie Tenenbaum's sort of blankness. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's just a very grabbing, it's a very engaging opening sequence and it gives us a lot of key information. Um, I think she's just really skilled at smacking us into worlds right away while seeming to do it very gently. Um, yeah, it's very efficient filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the lingering thing this time also was just the um, the fish out of water comedy of mm-hmm. um, all of the Christmas songs mm-hmm. at the, <laughs> towards the end, and and just I think about Christmas in relation to things to come. Also, like as far as like mm-hmm. that holiday, like just just trying to avoid the Bollywood cliches that you think you're getting with a film like this. Like Maya is not like, like her record collection is more diverse than just one kind of music that he expects or even just the the performances that we witness are not what we might think we're going to get like i mean this does not have the same dance euphoria thing it's funny because again like if you if you go into it with like your, your primary knowledge of indian cinema being like you know rooted in bollywood or something you might expect her tendency towards musical dance scenes like having kind of some opportunities in India, but she doesn't really go that route. She has, I, I feel like she's consciously trying to avoid certain cliches in her films. Mm-hmm. I think even, um, I don't know, but whenever she would talk about this one, I'm, it seems like she was most excited by this really kind of brief montage scene that mm-hmm. doesn't really have a whole lot of narrative purpose, which is the scene that we shot in Super 16 mm-hmm. with her. And I think like a, it was like a three-man crew, like going around just like his adventures around uh, exploring, was it was it Mumbai? I'm trying to think where he's mm-hmm. going to visit his mother, but like just like him going into restaurants or going into shops. And it's just, it's just all improvised scenes. I think she's doing the sound herself. Like me and Love was the sound yeah. person on it. But it's just like something off the cuff and not over-deliberated over, um, which is not something, I don't mean, I don't think of her films as like being like super stylized in that way but like i mean it, it when i looked at it this time i was looking for th- what if there was anything that felt like a logical bridge between things to come and bergman island that this film is doing but i'm, I'm still kind of grappling at what that is um other than just you know it's it's one of the films that like isn't like kind of rooted to paris and maybe yeah. as much as some of the earlier ones and, and, and making it more kind of apparent just how serious she is about that location as inspiration idea, which Bergman Island makes explicit. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with the with the prevailing knowledge that this is kind of a misstep, but I still find it interesting. I want to talk a little bit about this is related. I'm not jumping to a different topic. I um I wanted to talk a little bit like about that travel montage and the Darjeeling Limited. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So like the. 
The travel montage, like we see Gabriel and we get to see how he is when he travels, right? And he travels rough and he travels like, you know, he's talking to people. He's staying in lots of different types of uh, place. You know, like sometimes he shares a home with other people. You know, he dries his clothes on the balcony. He sleeps outside sometimes. He's always making friends and chatting with people. And I think this is trying to convey to us that he fits in anywhere. And that's something really admirable. Eh, I don't know if I buy it. I don't like I think... So, like, the Darjeeling Limited, it plays with its characters' status as privileged white Western outsiders, mm-hmm. right? It plays with their privilege and their ignorance. Whereas I felt like this film just attempted to sort of paper it over with shots of Gabriel, like, playing with local kids and, like, hanging his clothes out to dry on the balcony like we imagined the locals do. And it just, it felt a bit cheap to me. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I'm not saying the Darjeeling Limited is, like... I don't know, like a woke movie. It's not at all. But um, but I think it at least acknowledged outsiderhood in a way that was more interesting than this film, which I don't think acknowledged it nearly enough. Yeah, no, I think Wes Anderson is definitely poking fun at his character's privilege in a way that Me Hands in Love is not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. In this film, it's nice. It's great that we finally have multiple characters of colors who get to speak more than a few lines and they get to have some psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm especially thinking about... Um, well, Maya, obviously, and um, Gabriel's closest colleague, Frederick, who is black and he's played by Alex Desca, who's like super famous and wonderful. And he's worked with Claire Denis. Maybe not super famous, but he's really recognizable if you care about sort of European cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just really, I want to talk about Arshi Banerjee because she's brilliant. Like she was a model and this was her first time acting and she's so good. Like I, critics complain about like this flat, oversimplified dialogue for her. And some people have written that like they felt like the character of Maya was reduced to a colonial representation of India as sort of like this helpful, giving, healing, mystic East that's like not too complaining when it gets plundered and abandoned. But I I didn't quite see her as like the the embodiment of that at all. Like I I was really impressed by the vibrancy and the nuance of her performance. And I was shocked when I found out it was the first time she'd acted. And um I just hope she's in more things. I really thought she was. I think it's her only. I I don't know. I mean, I don't know. IMDb is not always accurate, but I don't know that it has any other credits for her since this film either. Yeah, I don't think it does. I mean, she's she's great. (laughs) Please hire her to work in more films. Yeah, I mean, I think she's great. Also, I mean, I think she's very. I mean, I like that character. I don't know if I see Mia Hansen-Love putting herself in my shoes the degree Mm -hmm. that I see her with other teenage girls and like father of my children or. Goodbye, first lover. You know, even the um, the adult version of that kind of character, Mia Wasikowska in, in Bergman Island. But like, this is the film that is one of the more obscure ones we're talking about. I feel like most people listen to this, unless they're Mia Hansel of hardcore <laughs> fans, probably haven't seen it. Uh, I always wonder if it finds a wider audience, if if it will ever develop any kind of fan base, or if the you know the criticisms that you you know I, I kind of agree with, you know, that you're raising, it will be the uh, the overwhelming kind of consensus on this one. But I don't know. It's... Yeah, it was it was kind of nice to me to see critics in a lot of really mainstream and also kind of like local news type film coverage be like, yeah, I don't know about this relationship. It seems really unhealthy. <laughs> um, and so I wonder if like it seems like people didn't talk much about the colonialism in the, this film, but they did talk about the age discrepancy. And I wonder if there's any intentional kind of withholding of this film. Probably not. But I 
like on her part, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it'll get ever get a release yeah. and whether she wants it to. Who knows? I mean, like I said, Juliette Binoche was attached at one point. And not that Juliette Binoche being in the cast guarantees that a film will come out here because plenty of her films do not. But I feel like the fact that it wasn't as rapturously received by critics as some of her other films and didn't have any names that an audience mm-hmm. would recognize, I think, plus whatever people feel about like the colonialist or age gap kind of dynamics. I mean, it was just too many, maybe there was just too many barriers or or just the distributor, you know, whoever owns it maybe wanted too much money. <laughs> One of the yeah, other. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see Roman Kalinka in more things too. I think he's sort of, I, the reviews I read were quite harsh about his performance, but I think he's great. Not great. I think he's good and I want to see more of him. Yeah, yeah. no, I agree. He, he. Uh, I mean, maybe he'll, I, I haven't followed what he's up to lately, but you know, it, it seems like he's got definitely like a, a good kind of history as a collaborator with me. And love, I could <laughs> see him returning for future films. I haven't peeked at the cast for the new film, so I don't know if he's in it or not, but I feel like he might not be. Yeah, I also feel like he might not be, but I've tried to stay away so I didn't get too speculative because God knows I have too much to say already. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, no, no, stay in your lane, no. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so after after Maya came out, I'm trying to think when the the pandemic emerged in relation to when I saw Maya. I think it was the year after because I'm trying to think if, if it made it to America's like art house festival circuit in 2019, maybe. But like um, Bergman Island was a film that was impacted by the pandemic. I mean, as far as the distribution of it, I, and it was a film that got. Like had to be done over the course of two years because of the cast uh, got reshuffled. But it's um, came out in 2021, and it's about a uh, a couple, both filmmakers, uh, visiting the island of Peru. And uh, Chris, played by Vicky Creeps, is uh, having some insecurity about her screenplay that she's writing, which we see visualized uh, in much of the second half of the film. Uh, her partner, Tony, is uh, also there. Uh, he was invited to talk and show his work uh, at, a, uh, at a Bergman uh, festival, and uh, he's played by Tim Roth. And uh, the second half of the film has, like I said, the visualization of the, of the film that she's working on, which features Mia Wasikowska as Amy and Anders Danielson Lee as Joseph and it's kind of a uh a variation on the on the ideas of goodbye first love uh but done in a with older not necessarily wiser but older characters now i if 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 i'm correct in thinking is this is this one that you feel is one of her stronger ones absolutely yeah yeah so yeah so like you say like both both people in this couple that travel to fura are are filmmakers um tony and chris and during their stay, sort of divisions in their relationship and their approaches to life become more apparent and more disturbing to Chris, who's our real focus. And we kind of gradually explore the blurring of identities between her 
and the main character in her screenplay. And it seems to me like this film shows us a space, an island, where the preoccupations of Bergman's cinema, anguish, doubt, isolation, they're kind of revealed to us to be the basis of reality. They, they underpin creativity, they underpin relationships, this anguish, this doubt, this isolation. And so as the couple enter the island, it, it really felt to me like they were entering a horror film without any catharsis, which is a description that Chris gives to uh, Cries and Whispers. And there's no catharsis to this, this horror, this Bergman horror because it's inescapable. It's revealed to be like the truth of adult existence. And Chris comes to accept this in a way that Tony doesn't. She also pursues, though, what Bergman failed to pursue mostly in his films, which is the other side of life, which is lightness and happiness and freedom. And so I think this film... This film is like Mia Hansen Love's early work in the sense that it has two main parts. Like you say, it's, we got the main reality of Chris and Tony and the main film within a film, which is the world of Chris's screenplay, which we enter and which sort of like overtakes the other reality in different ways. But the transition between these two worlds is extremely subtle and it's very unsettling. And that's one of the film's strengths. And another of the film's strengths, I thought, was that it really engages with Bergman's like personal persona um, and his work without ever losing its own coherence and integrity as a film. Um, from early on, we sort of see in Bergman Island's like themes and structure, we see references to two of Bergman's films in particular, Summer with Monica uh, in Chris's search for intuitive, spontaneous sensuousness at the beach. And also Persona in her frustration with enforced emotional isolation that sort of culminates with this obscuring and melding of identities. And ultimately, this, what I think of as a horror film, it ends with Chris kind of entering the belly of the beast alone, confronting what is threatening to tear her apart, which is the dichotomy between obligations to family and to her art. And she does this in Bergman's own home, which is believed to be haunted by the ghost of his wife. And having confronted this dichotomy, she's able to finish her film and she's reunited with her family. But the horror persists, Bergman's horror, the doubt, the isolation, the anguish that underpins our, our loves and our creativity. These things persist because Chris remains within the orbit of love and art. Um, she's reunited with her family. She has a love affair. Um, her work continues. And it, it suggested also that this horror of adult existence is already kind of passing on to her young daughter in a kind of indoctrination as the daughter enters the island and starts asking her dad questions about who Ingmar Bergman is and the existence of ghosts. And I only hope that... <laughs> <laughs> There's a long string of sort of Bergman Island horror sequels because I would love that. That's funny. I didn't think about the fact that, yeah, the daughter starts asking questions about death <laughs> as they approach Bergman Island. Oh, God, I did yeah. also think about folk horror films in that when they get there, you have that uh, all those Robin Williamson kind of uh, folk ballad instrumentals on the mm -hmm. soundtrack. And then you also have the local villagers won't help them. Like no mm -hmm. one will help. Like they are secret packs, secret societies. And so it's like, only um, only Hampus uh, will kind of offer a guide. And this is actually a question I had for you. I, I don't think that they're doing this, but one of the times I was watching this and thinking like, is Hampus real? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because we never see him with anyone else and he can just show up anywhere. Yes. And he even yes. shows up in the film within a film mm -hmm. as the same character. So it's like, I don't think there's anything to reveal him to be a ghost, but... 
At the same time, he's almost like the imaginary friend that she has to kind of guide her through her mostly private journey uh, to kind of work out this personal script, but using using this landscape to find it. Yeah, definitely. He's, um, like you say, he's kind, he's a supporter. He springs up unexpectedly, kind of like this like waifish, helpful spirit. And he opens up the island to Chris in a way that no one else sees. Yeah. Um, he even opens up Bergman's house and exactly. gives her free reign. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so he's validating, right? And he's the only person on the island who seems to recognize her as a director and he's seen and loved her work, but he's always just about to leave the island, right? So any sexual chemistry that's there is never acted upon because we know Mia Henson love, loves people who are about to leave. Like it's, it's <laughs> immediately sex time when someone's about to leave them. Um, yeah. But there's also something really uncanny about Hampus, like you say, he's he kind of, the first time we see him, he springs up in the mirror as she's trying on the glasses from yeah, Persona. Yeah, yeah. And then it, suddenly he's magically in the cemetery right afterward where he, he shows her Bergman's grave. And then he drives her to some dunes and he tells her that doomsday is near and that like the locals like link that to these specific dunes that he's taken her to. And of course, he's this ghostly figure in Bergman's house at the end. So on the one hand, he's this friendly mediator, but there's also something really spooky about him because he's of the island, right? Like he has family. He kind of grew up there. His grandfather, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he's, so he's able to sort of traverse the space between Bergman's ghost world, this inaccessible island where the locals don't want you there, and this tourist world where Chris lives. And he sort of helps bring her out of that world and into the other one. And just like as a side note, like apparently Mia Henson Love like did meet Hampus Nordensen on the island during one of her many visits. <laughs> and she just like wrote him into the film because he's so adorable. Like who wouldn't? But yeah, and so he's, he's also, like you say, like in the screenplay, um, so Mia Henson Love wrote him into her screenplay and she has Chris write him into her screenplay. And he's he's a very similar character to Amy in the screenplay. Like he plays games with her and he's sort of there for her when she's feeling the most lost. But I hope he's an actor and he's in lots of things because I thought he was lovely. Yeah, well, it, I was also going to say, like, you mentioned the the notion of, of horror without catharsis. And mm -hmm. I think that that's something that I, I don't think of Olivier Assias as a genre film director, per se. And I, I, I'm sure people are encouraged to read Tony as a stand-in for Olivier Assias. Mm -hmm. But um, the film that he's showing there is a horror film with a female murdering their assailant. So there is that catharsis for the woman's story kind of thing that he's presenting in his art. So that's kind of an interesting contrast to what she's working on, which is a story with no ending, which is in keeping with Bergman, even if, if her, um, I don't know, I, I don't think of the story that she's telling as indebted to Bergman uh, as far as the writing of it. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, when I was watching it this time, I mean, I, I'm conscious of like, like the way that they frame the two characters looking at the window in a shot that kind of resembles like at least five different Bergman movies and even like things that rip off Bergman, like interiors all take it <laughs> like that. There, there's certain kind of shots that evoke Bergman, but it's they're fleeting. Like it's not really a film that stylistically feels like influenced by Bergman movies to me. I mean, I definitely see what you're saying about Summer with Monica and uh, Persona thematically, though, but it's not like a film that's trying to appear to be a Bergman movie the way that like some films kind of play as like feature length homages to films like this is constantly calling attention to issues people would, might have about Bergman as a person or as an mm -hmm. artist yeah I want to can I go like I won't take too long but I kind of want to go like beat by beat and talk about like why this is a why this is a genre film and also like just to kind of map out a little bit further like the Bergman references is that okay yes yes please do okay cool 
So it's like, so like having watched all of Mia Hansen Love's films like in a row to prepare mm-hmm. for today, like by the time I got to Bergman Island, I was like, I wasn't expecting a lot of surprises and I was dead wrong because like right from the start, I was blown away by how much this felt like a genre film, by how ominous it was, by its suspenseful undertow right from the beginning. Like as usual, we're sort of like drawn blindly forward in time and we have to stay alert to kind of keep up with the film's many jumps forward as the train continues. But, but this is the only one of her films so far that carried us along with this real sense of dread right from the beginning. Like the folk music that you that you mentioned, it feels really eerily medieval. We've got these like sudden drums, like thunder, and then like this other instrument that sounds like a rattlesnake. And right away I was like, what? Is this is this a folk horror film about marriage? Like, is this her Antichrist? Like, and it kind of is. <laughs> like, can you imagine this and Antichrist on a double bill? Like, that would I be can. mad. Yeah. Oh. But like, yeah, like you mentioned um, the person being like, no one here would have helped you if you'd gotten lost. There's a secret pact among the people who live here. And apparently like when they came, they filmed Bergman Island over two different summers mm-hmm. and when they came back the second summer like um they found that like people had blocked off a lot of the roads to prevent their trucks from getting through and so there was like quite a bit of tension along along the way with the shoot and going back to kind of like just a few of the horror elements early on in the film like Chris finds the silence and the untouched perfection of the countryside like really oppressive too oppressive to work in mm. and Tony just like brushes off her concerns he's like ah, no one's expecting persona from you which is a bit of foreshadowing I would argue um, <laughs> but then like that night they have dinner with some people from the Bergman Institute and Chris is asking questions to two experts who are sitting side by side and they give really weirdly rapid fire overlapping answers to her questions it's kind of like they're one creature with two heads like one is deadly serious and the other one's like eerily mischievous looking mm-hmm. Like when Chris is like, so did Bergman like actually believe in God? They both answer at the same time and they're like, Bergman believed in ghosts more than anything. And then the other one's like, when you live alone on an island. And then the first one's like, yeah, he felt his dead wife's presence. He felt like she was there. And so it's just like really fucking eerie. <laughs> like it's really quite <laughs> scary. But the most foreboding thing in the film like comes from the evident divisions between this couple. Like the relationship that they bring to the island is revealed to be very tenuous and like possibly dissolving or in some way degraded, like past its expiration date. And despite Chris's misgivings, they do end up sleeping in the room where scenes from a marriage was shot, which is the film that made millions of people divorced, they hear. Mm-hmm. And when they appear together, they're always doing different things or they're disagreeing. She's trying to connect with him. He pulls out his phone she wants to have sex he doesn't she asks for his advice and he like insults or deflects um her question and we come to realize that they're just like super different people like chris finds humor in small things and she keeps looking at tony to see if he finds him funny too and he doesn't even return her gaze and he's very like curt and snide and business-like and chris is really intuitive she's like alert to her environment she's a little goofy she's like prone to awkwardness prone to laughter and she feels everything more deeply than tony and it's this kind of intensity of feeling that opens the island to her because in her intuitive way she sort of like finds out things about it that he misses on his guided tour and it seems like like when he's hurt tony becomes really like brittle and snarky but chris explores her ideas and her feelings she feels the hard feelings even though they're painful and that's what pushes her to kind of grow and take chances in her work like she really has courage that tony seems to lack although it's never really clear to us or to chris what tony's thinking but the one glimpse we get inside tony's brain is like super horrifying 
actually. Like, I'm talking about like the scene where Tony's out and we watch Chris enter the house to get some ink for her pen. But we see this in a long shot. We see her walk into the house and then from room to room through the windows. And because of this distance and the pacing, it, it feels like a real sense of dread and suspense. Like we know that this woman is venturing into her husband's personal space and she's going to find something upsetting. Mm-hmm. And then we get this close-up of Tony's desk and he's been reading Inferno. And then the camera like slowly tilts down and bam, we've got this big splash of this unusual color that Hanson Love reserves for key moments, which is bright red, like Camille's bag in the subway. And it's this bright red notebook. And Chris, like we look up at her and we see her like disapprove of her own desire to open the notebook. But she does. We see this close-up of her hand like slowly turning the pages. And it's just filled with this like really tight writing and these drawings of women in like increasingly explicit S&M bondage. And then on the final page, we see a woman chained up, hanging from a meat hook. And then Tony's written in huge capitals, who are you? You or me? And Hanson Love has this habit of planting questions in her films explicitly like this and never exactly answering them but instead using the questions to like introduce themes like the theme of the limits of empathy in things to come. But this question in Tony's notebook, it introduces kind of the bondage associated with artistic creation and the frightening blurring of identities and close relationships. And like right away, this blurring is linked with Bergman and this horror is linked with Bergman because we see that bright red right in the next scene in the opening credits of Cries and Whispers. And it's reflected against the face of the projectionist who looks like he's from Inferno in that moment. (laughs) Um, And then we cut to the close-up of Ingrid Thulin's face as she self-mutilates and we see Chris's reaction of discomfort. The scene you're talking about where she finds the script is almost kind of like the shining moment. Mm. <laughs> but instead of uh, revealing the madness, it's it's only fleetingly on screen. But like the script begins with like a, kind of a treatise on like the cinema of Amar Bergman. But it kind of gives yeah. way to these doodles that get progressively more uh, explicit and bondage-like in terms of the the look of them. But it's never really kind of addressed again in the, in the dialogue or anything. And the next thing we get with, as far as like an insight into his artistic process is just when he talks about you know, he feels kind of insecure in life. The central characters need to be female in his stories. Just they are what draw him into like the fiction that he does. But it's not really kind of elaborated. Like, I mean, because we only see just a horror scene in the clip of Tony's movie. So I don't know if we're supposed to intuit that the the bondage imagery somehow informs the next script he's writing. We only hear that he's working on something with ghosts, um, which I don't know if that's a reference to Personal Shopper or or if it's or not. But I, I don't see him as like totally villainous either because it's like our first time that we meet them, he's kind of comforting her while she's anxious on the plane. And then when she forgets her sunglasses, he gives her his pair. And he doesn't know how to communicate effectively in terms of encouraging her as a writer. And, and weirdly becomes almost like a competitor when she's really just asking where to go next and kind of shuts down that dialogue while he's very secretive about his own projects. So it's a weird dynamic as far as like fellow artists that at the same time are competitors professionally, even though you would think that their work is quite different, um, maybe more different than Asias and Mia Hansen Love's films were in terms of the um, audiences that they played to. Um, but I, I think about how different a film it would be with the original cast because it was originally Greta Gerwig and John Turturro in those roles. Oh, and I'm so glad it wasn't Greta Gerwig. Yeah. Well, it would have she's just not changed expressive the tone. enough for Chris. Yeah, she's too deadpan. It wouldn't have worked, I don't think. But yeah, yeah. John Turturro. Yeah, Vicky Creeps is brilliant. I think she does a great job. Yeah, no, no. I think she. I mean, it, it's a, it's the same kind of thing as Love and Years, Things to Come, where it's like 
the central performance really kind of elevates it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also got like moments of like, like when she comes into the room while he's at work and she just puts the duck down and then quacks as she walks out the room <laughs> that I just, I, I think about like just what they um, like, if it's just, I, I just take those things as to mean that like she's playful and going a little bit stir crazy. Like, but do you have any other feelings as to what those scenes are about? Like the scenes where she just starts cracking up as she's brushing her teeth? Yeah, I think, I mean, she, the reason she cracks up when she's brushing her teeth is because the water is shot out at her. And mm-hmm. so she's, I think that's just her finding joy in the everyday. Uh-huh. And that's something that differentiates her from Tony, who seems totally unimpressed with everything, even though he's apparently the bigger Bergman fan. He seems totally unimpressed with his surroundings and unaffected by everything. Yeah. Um, when she puts the duck down, it's this wonderful scene where she wants to have sex and he doesn't. So she is lying on her bed in the windmill where she's meant to be riding and she can't think of anything. So she comes down to the house and she goes into the room and she's taken off her pants and she's unbuttoned her shirt and she's just kind of like lingering, like kind of hoping he'll notice her. And he does notice, but he's not interested. So he's like, do you need anything? And she's like, no, no. And he's like, no. And she's like, no. And then she just kind of like, she's been like fiddling with the things on his desk and she just puts the duck down and quacks at him. Because like, what do you do in that situation? Um, but it's just, I, I really appreciated that scene because I think it's it's rare to show sexual frustration as just kind of a lighthearted fact of life, you know? Yeah. Like it's just, especially in a dynamic of where it's like a younger wife and an older husband, like yeah. usually her sexual frustration is like this big drama and it leads to infidelity and then the stories about infidelity and jealousy. But this isn't that at all. It's just like, yeah, this is this is life you guys like we just deal with it and that's fine and i yeah that's like a it's like what i said about people people saying no to sex and having it be okay like i think that's a real quality in mia henson loves work is like she just shows us that that reality that it doesn't always have to lead to drama you know yeah yeah, yeah. it's really healthy i think what did you think about the film within the film when you saw it did you draw the same comparisons that i do with the with the goodbye first love story Definitely. It seemed like the next stage in Camille and Sullivan's relationship because we hear that Amy and Joseph had um, had met as teenagers, fallen in love, broken each other's hearts, met again as adults, decided that it wouldn't work. And this is their third time meeting. And so we only get the first two in the story of Camille and Sullivan, but in this one we get the third meeting. So it's sort of like we could imagine Camille and Sullivan in these roles. Mm-hmm. When we first start watching that narrative unfold, I think our first inclination is to try to draw parallels with scenes that we saw with Chris and Tony and plug in Amy and Joseph. But it's like, it does a little bit of that, but it, it's not really like trying to reframe the previous scenes as heightened romantic melodrama. I mean, we have the same kind of car ride into town and in the opening, it's like, you know, we have Tony doing the cardinal sin, you know, in Mia Hansen Love's filmography, which is talking on the phone about business when you should be having personal time. Mm-hmm. But then in the retelling in, in Chris's story, it's this kind of great romantic tension and they're kind of almost playing roles a little bit and pretending not to know each other. Like she's reframing the events as something exciting. I mean, going to the beach with Hampus and like kind of reframing that as like the idyllic time away from the wedding party. Like she's using the locations and the and the uh, experiences, but as a way to kind of tell another another go round for this story that I, I don't know like how autobiographical this like if if the guy that inspired the first film of that 
if he comes back again or not, but even just the way that he can allude to how he's represented in the film that she made about their life and how, you know, I thought I idealized you. Like they can have fun with it, but it's still kind of commenting on the existence of Goodbye First Love uh, as being just part of their story. It's so interesting to hear you talk about um, the screenplay within the context of Mia Henson Love's filmography and within the context of it as sort of like a rewriting of the events that Chris and Tony had experienced, because it totally makes sense what you're saying. And I love that reading. Um, For me, the entry into her screenplay is a continuation of Chris grappling with and encountering Bergman's themes and sort of playing with the themes of uh, Summer with Monica and Persona out of having seen Cries and Whispers. Mm. Can I? Can we go back a little bit and talk about that progression? Because I think that yeah. leads into the, the world within the world from like maybe a different point of view. Like, so we have them, we have them seeing Cries and Whispers. And then that night getting ready for bed, Chris is like, oh, usually when you come out of a horror movie, you feel reassured because you know that what you saw can't happen to you. But that's not true with Cries and Whispers because the solitude, the agony, the horror of dying, like that's just the way things are. And Tony dismisses this. He's like, no, 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 life isn't like that. That's not Bergen was saying. Like, he just made a nightmare. But we see these themes, this solitude, this agony, come to characterize Chris's experience. On Bergman Island, Bergman's preoccupations are revealed to be what reality is made up of. But it's not only those things, right? Like, this isn't a Bergman film. It's a Mia Hansen love film. So that night, Chris also wonders about all the other elements of life that Bergman never seemed to, to grapple with, never seemed to engage with, really, which is like happiness and lightness. She had wanted to see Summer with Monica, which is a much lighter film, but Tony had vetoed it. And so as if in response, like Bergman Island becomes more like Summer with Monica, Chris blows off her, you know, structured life, her plans with Tony to explore the island with a stranger and a film student named Tompas. Um, And they bond and they drink and they go to the beach and they flirt a little bit. And Chris has fun for the first and only time in the film. And this is just a brief interlude, like it is in Summer with Monica when they go to the beach um, and they live in the beach. And Hampus, the male character, wants to return to the city like Harry does in Summer with Monica. But, um, like, it's not as sensual as Summer with Monica by any means. Like, Henson Love is not in love with Vicky Creeps, clearly. But, like, there, it, is, it is this unusually sensuous interlude in the film in the sense that it's, it engages the senses more than any other part of the film, especially the sense of touch. Because Chris and Hampus, they swim with jellyfish and they, they even end up, like, tossing the jellyfish at each other. And it's this very touchy scene yeah i just would just say one thing but before she experiences any kind of fun with hampus Mm -hmm. there's a scene where they go to the ocean first and she's sitting at the edge of the water and the frame is almost all blue because Mm -hmm. of just how much sky and water exists in the frame and she's like a kid at the beach laughing and splashing tony is kind of reserved and you know the artiste but the um the fun of the location I mean, she experiences it right away. I think that that's maybe what compels her to insist that they go find the beach again. And and Hampus suggests the more private beach without tourists, but with jellyfish that aren't going to sting you. Yeah, I think Chris can have fun on on her own and she has to because Tony is not going to have fun with her. Mm. But but this is the first time she seems to really be enjoying herself with someone else. Yeah. Um, And it's really it's a nice it's like. It's like the dance sequence for her that she doesn't get. We do get it with Amy later in the film, but this is just a moment of lightness that sort of acts as a pressure valve. But at the same time, like nothing is ever totally simple in a Mia Henson love film, right? Like, because this moment 
in the film is also the moment at which Persona really enters the film because right before she meets Hampus, Chris buys a pair of sunglasses modeled on those that B.B. Anderson wears in Persona. And before she had been borrowing Tony's lenses through which to see the world and she exchanges these for BB's and the first thing really that Hampus says to her is like how are things through BB's glasses and right away without missing a beat she's like much better right <laughs> and so in case in case people haven't seen Persona who are listening like BB Anderson plays Alma who's this gregarious young nurse who is caring for this actress who has stopped speaking even though she can speak she's resolutely silent right and the two women spend time isolated together on Fuda Island and the actress's aloofness and and silent judgment, they gradually just fill Alma with like loneliness and rage. And then tensions rise and the two women's identities begin to blur. And over the course of Bergman Island, Chris grows increasingly isolated too in her relationship with Tony. She's frustrated by his aloofness, by his smugness, by his judgment, by the withholding of his thoughts. And Chris's anger really erupts with this line that could have so easily been Alma's. She says, why don't you tell me anything? I tell you everything, you know? And Chris's identity at this point begins to blur, right? Like not with Tony's, but with the main character she's writing. And so like right when they're having this fight, she starts narrating her draft screenplay and we see what she's imagining. And it's this plot, like you say, it's very similar to Goodbye First Love about like these people who meet on the ferry to Fura for the third time in their lives. And so they're traveling to a wedding on the island. Um, and during the time on the island, Amy's love and passion for her first love, Joseph, it's still really strong, but he seems ambivalent. And one night they sleep together, but in the morning he feels guilty and he's distant and he ultimately disappears and Amy is distraught. And like back in the film's present, like Chris is really frustrated and upset because she can't figure out how to end this screenplay, which is called The White Dress. And she's like, maybe Amy, Amy will just hang herself or fail trying at Bergman's house. As she tells the story, we get mad at Tony for interrupting with the phone, like mm-hmm. at these like really look like kind of crucial uh, romantic moments in the story. Mm-hmm. Like, like, are you are you paying? Did you zone out? Like, you know, like, like yeah. it was like kind of like it's painful for her because this is clearly like a personal story, maybe even autobiographical. And his distraction or or his, his, his refusal to engage with it which is odd because he says earlier in the film that like you know i love your work mm-hmm. but his, his lack of curiosity uh you know is painful because she's not just telling a fictional story but she's working through things mm-hmm. yeah yeah, exactly. And he's not even curious, like you say. And, and it's not like he, it's not even like enough that he's not sleeping with her. Like he's not even listening to her sex scene, which is quite a hot <laughs> sex scene, right? It's like I would listen to that. Um, I'd, I'd put calls on hold for that. But and watching, watching the scenes like within the world of the white dress, I was, I was struck by how tightly the focus is on our female character's desire. Like, like when we're in the world of the screenplay, we're totally locked into Amy's experience as she navigates her sexual passion and her desolation. And the rest of the time, we're totally locked into Chris's experience. And in cinema, it's still unusual to have one female character as the central, most powerful, most desiring agent in a film. And Bergman Island gives us two of these protagonists, right? Amy and Chris. And what's even more unusual is that both of these women are mothers who are never defined by their motherhood, right? Mm. Like it's almost an auxiliary fact. Their passion is the focus. And Mia Hansenlove draws our attention to the fact that this passion is considered unruly and inappropriate for moms when both Amy and Chris express the desire to have multiple kids with different men, just like Bergman did with women. And a bunch of Bergman fans 
judge them for it, whether it's Anders or Tony or the people. And like, and like the emphasis is on sexual desire in the white dress, but Bergman Island is more concerned with Chris's desire to create art and the conflict that this causes in her life. And it's like, the conflict is like, on the one hand, she's intuitive and she's spontaneous and she's pursuing freedom and passion. And on the other hand, she wants to make films and raise kids, both of which require practical, like relentless hard work and stability and planning and scheduling. And so she's really grappling with these things. And, and this comes explicitly in a question, which she asked the people at the Bergman Institute. So do you think you can create a body of work and raise a family at the same time? And someone points out that like a female director, any woman couldn't have done what Bergman did, have nine kids with five different women and then just like farm the kids off to the moms to raise while he kept making movies. And it's like, it's like Chris's conflicting desires and her frustration with her work and her isolation in her relationship, they kind of boil over into this dizzy melding of realities when she's finally left alone on the island, like left to her own devices, left to her screenplay. And Tony, Tony's been unhelpful, but he's been this very confident kind of presence in her life. And when he leaves, it's, it's treated as another ominous horror film moment. He's like, you sure you don't mind if I take the car? And he won't freak out at night. And we're like, uh-oh. <laughs> um, and so in this long shot, we see Chris wave goodbye and walk toward this huge windmill where she's been riding in the distance. And it's like, it's like she's finally left alone with this monster that had been kind of quietly looming all along. And our next glimpse of her is really startling. Like she's wearing Amy's t-shirt. She's leaving Amy's bungalow on Amy's bike. And from her pocket, she removes a note that Amy in the screenplay had written. It has the one word Lauder, which is the location of Bergman's house. Mm-hmm. And she bikes there. And the spooky medieval folk score returns. And it's it's suspenseful because it's like, oh shit, like she's really upset. Like, is she going to follow her plan for her character and hang herself in Bergman's house? <laughs> like, I was really genuinely worried. And, the, yeah. and then we have this, this kind of, this other horror scene where she's approaching the house very slowly. Like she's compelled by a kind of uncanny inner force. Mm. And we peer through the windows and there's this like tall, lean, silhouetted figure inside the house that appears in a flash and it's gone. And it's like, is that Bergman's ghost? Like, he believed in ghosts more than anything, right? He thought his house was haunted by his wife. And she hears music from inside the house. It's like this old film score and the music gets louder when she enters the house and she goes from room to room. And the the rooms have this like very golden, like sealed up glow. Like they've been kind of trapped in amber. And just when the suspense becomes unbearable, we see Chris's hand, like close up of her hand on the doorknob. And she opens the door and she finds Hampus. It's just Hampus. It's just her friend from earlier. And he's about to leave, but he's like, no, stay as long as you want. And here's this room where it was Ingrid's meditation room. And there's this portrait of Ingrid, Bergman's wife. And looking at the portrait, Chris falls asleep, which feels like the ultimate culmination to this very tense, suspenseful scene. She's finally safe. She falls asleep. For me, it felt like a real bridging, a real culmination because... She's wearing this guise of her character and she's entered this room that is like a shrine to her question at dinner. Can you produce a great body of work and raise a family at the same time? Mm -hmm. Because she's right at the source of the cinematic brilliance and the creative despair that is Ingmar Bergman's work in life. But she's in the room in his house that is dedicated to his wife, who is dedicated to getting his family together and reuniting them ultimately. And she's kind of, she's under the portrait of Ingrid who's smiling down at her. But... This isn't the end. This film isn't done surprising us. Like, Chris opens her eyes to find, we think, Joseph, the the love interest in her screenplay, staring at her. What? 
But she calls him Anders, and we realize that the train has moved forward, and that in this like classic braiding of reality and fiction, Chris, the director, has developed a passion for her actor. And the shoot for the white dress is finished, and Anders is leaving the next day. Oh no! Chris, like her character Amy, is like completely distraught by the thought of his absence and by the fact of his absence because he does leave. And so again, like she's sort of she's in the position of her protagonist, right? So distraught by the by the absence of this guy. And in the closing sequence, we're back on the ferry. Chris is not there, but her daughter is there with Tony. And she starts asking questions about the island and about Bergman. And there's this real tone of dread, especially when she asks if ghosts exist. Like, and then they arrive at the house and there's no sign of Chris. And it's suspenseful because there's no score and because Chris is apparently missing. But the windmill is looming prominently. And I was like, is she okay? Like, she hasn't actually hanged herself in Anders' absence, has she? Like, her character was going to do? I don't know why. This is like a real, a real fear for me throughout this film. But the little girl approaches the windmill and we hear this hoarse voice call her name. And Chris runs down and wraps her daughter in a hug and she's smiling. She looks up and when her eyes meet Tony's in a flash, her smile is replaced by this look of doubt and this look of dread. And then we snap to black and the medieval folk horror score resumes. And this resolution that Chris seems to have felt earlier under Ingrid's portrait in Bergman's house, this resolution seems to have been very short-lived, like this gnawing doubt and loneliness and alienation in relationships and desire and creation. This, this horror of life that Bergman was obsessed with showing us, it doesn't go anywhere. Like the monster isn't vanquished as long as we keep trying to create, as long as we keep loving people. The horror just passes down to new generations. Um, and that's why I think this is a classic horror film. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's I love. I think this film really works. It really works well. But I'm I'm curious. It's curious to me that like Chris and Tony have a daughter. Mm-hmm. Like, why is the child female specifically? And I think it's because Chris is torn apart by these desires that appear to be conflicting. Like to have passion and stability, to make art and a family all at the same time. It's like these questions that are wrapped up in elements of Bergman's horror. Like none of the men in the film actually seem to be feeling any of that conflict. None of them seem to be burdened by these questions. Um, and I think Mia Henson love might be suggesting that these questions are more specific to women who have less freedom generally to pursue vocation and more pressure to be family driven. Yeah. And like, this isn't groundbreaking feminism. It's, I don't think Mia Henson love is a feminist at all, but it's it, this, I think this one film and maybe love in here to some extent um, is kind of like a, a tentative step into the territory of feminism. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was thinking watching it again this time, just how, Bergman almost always dealt with female protagonists as well, mm-hmm. just like the character, you know, just like Tony, just like Olivia Yassias, mm-hmm. you know, and just um, the questions that Chris is asking about, you know, the balancing of motherhood and being a, a, a film, a filmmaker, you know, I mean, that's something that I think Mia Hanson-Love like explicitly talks about. I mean, as far as like, that's her own battle. So, I mean, again, it's super personal filmmaking, you know, and, and it's funny because I, I know that you're not as keen on it, but the um, the souvenir films, like the, the second souvenir film from Joanna Hogg played the same festival that I saw Bergman Island at. I was thinking about just the, the contrast with like these female filmmaker self-portraits. We need more of them. <laughs> I think they should all, I think also female directors should be like given the budget to make at least one <laughs> that explores what their feelings are about the, their role as artists. But um, no, yeah, this one, yeah, this one um, I mean, the first time I saw it, I was so thrown when she, when she lays down in the house alone in Bergman's house. And then when she wakes up, we know that it's fair game for us to be in a dream at that point. And so for mm-hmm. what we think is Joseph to appear, it's like, okay, well, she's entered the world where her fictional characters are coming to speak to her, but it's not. And <laughs> it, it, it's easy to miss it if you don't catch 
that she calls him Anders instead of Joseph. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you have to be paying attention to the names of people (laughs) because then it becomes, yeah, it becomes a a totally different kind of scene rather than like her talking to her creation. She's talking to her actor that's employed on her film. And uh, no, I, I, I think it's a, a, it's a great reading that you have of it as, as a horror film. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, I, I was, was recognizing the, certainly the horror elements in the opening. But yeah, the whole thing. Because uh, um, I think I, I thought of the ending as happier than just because of the reunion with the, with the daughter, even though we don't really get to hear too much about their dynamic. And even when um, June is introduced as a character just through a video, it's something that I think Chris's mother sent Tony because mm-hmm. he's her favorite. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that there's like this kind of weird distance between her and the child that even though she loves seeing the video and seems quite at peace with it, it's like you don't get a sense of her longing for family. She's dwelling on this adolescent heartbreak, you know, in this fiction that she's trying to articulate or or enjoying, you know, you know, a flirty escape herself with Hampus and some jellyfish. Like she doesn't seem like she's like, where is my daughter? Like she's she's not like yeah. she's not an anguished parent. Like no. for some, you know, so it's easy to take for granted that she still has like a completely full heart for that side of her life when it's present. It's just we haven't been seeing it. Right. It doesn't make exactly like you're saying. It doesn't make her a bad mom. The fact no. that she's she's her anguish at the moment is about her work it's about her creativity right like i really like the portrayal of motherhood in this film because it it's um it's so understated it's just one facet of a woman's life and it doesn't define her like i said i think i think it's i think this film does a good job yeah and um yeah you you keep bringing up this moment that i really want to talk about and i feel like now might be the right time which is the um this is so i feel like bergman island is a departure not just because it's like her first film that feels like a genre film Mm -hmm. but also because I think it deals with gender most explicitly and that comes where we jump into the Q&A that Tony's having where he's on stage and he's talking about his work Um, and we hear Tony say like something about why his main characters are always female and this doesn't make a ton of sense to us because we don't have enough context for his statement and then Chris walks out of the Q&A at that point it seems like she's dismissing his ideas maybe these discussions feel useless to Mia Hansen love the post-feminist I don't know but I think I think the film does engage one trope in feminist film criticism and horror film criticism and that's the trope of the final girl Mm -hmm. and it's in it's in that screening of Tony's film that Hanson Love like explicitly raises the image of the final girl, but she links it weirdly to Chris because of the sequencing. Like, so Chris and Tony have an argument. Chris lies down in bed and rolls over, and then we cut to this film within a film where a teenage girl with a knife is running away from a man who's pursuing her in a car, and he calls out her name. And this character, the girl in the film within a film, she looks a lot like Mia Hanson Love. Her hairs, her eyes, her face shape, and she's like banging on the windows asking for help, and there's no one around to help her, and she runs into an industrial estate, and cornered, she stabs her pursuer. But then she looks up at the camera and we read on her face that there's been some mistake, that stabbing the man didn't end the horror, like the monster or whatever, the horror still persists. And I assumed that this was Chris's dream, but that's when we cut to the audience watching the scene and we learned that it was one of Tony's movies. Incidentally, the DP from Bergman Island consciously shot this film within a film to look like the films that he had shot for Asias in the 90s. Um, <laughs> so that was very intentional. That's yeah, but it seems like in that Chris is in the audience for this film, this 
film with the final girl and she's watching this ending. And when Gina, the final girl character, like looks up, her eyeline matches Chris. And that's when Chris turns to leave. And it feels like to me, this, this idea of the final girl is something that Chris embodies in the same way she like partially embodies the spirit of Summer with Monica and, and Persona. Um, I really saw Chris as a final girl in her slow, momentous, kind of frightening approach to Bergman's house. This idea of the final girl is a term that Carol J. Clover coined in Men, Women and Chainsaws to describe this sort of like boyish, isolated female character who's the only one of her group to survive at the end of a slasher film, in case anyone listening like doesn't know what we're talking about. And it's because this character is unlike the other characters that she alone can confront what's scary in the film. And the source of the horror is never really vanquished. It never really goes away. And final girls, like in slasher films from the 70s, which you know way better than I do, but like, they often have like boyish names like, like Chris does, right? And she's the only one of Mia Henson Love's characters to have this type of name. And her apartness, like you were saying, is really emphasized throughout Bergman Island. Like, she's invited to Bergman Week, but she's not famous. She's unpolished. Unlike everyone else, her feelings about Bergman are kind of passionate but very ambivalent. She's, like, definitely not another doting fan on the guiding tour. She has this very unconventional curiosity. And it's this unconventional curiosity that allows her to see what other people miss, which is another final girl characteristic. And Chloe... Oh, yeah, go for it. I I was just going to say, the Bergman tour is the horror for me. In that, <laughs> in that it's just a lot of dudes talking about Bergman facts in a very uninteresting yeah. way. Oh, so bad. <laughs> so bad. Where they like, I think it was The Shame in the UK release. And you should yes. shut the fuck up. And it's yeah. not really a trilogy, but he said they uh, were like, uh, yeah, uh, just, yeah, yeah, I know. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad you don't make podcasts like that. Bless you, <laughs> Clover writes about final girls. She says that they're the only characters to perceive the full extent of the preceding horror and of her own peril. And I feel like that that describes Chris because she's not Tony. Like she's the only one in the film who really recognizes and accepts that real life has all these horrific ingredients of cries and whispers. And like a final girl, like she's the one who lives to tell the story, right? It's Chris's film that gets made in the end. We know nothing and care nothing about Tony's plans, right? His work. And thinking about the final girl and like rereading Clover... She's, she writes about the fact that, like, the character of the final girl in slasher films, it allows male viewers to have this kind of unthreatening proxy for themselves. Like, the final girl is kind of distanced enough from them. She's pleasurably objectifiable because of her gender. But the male viewer can still leave the cinema feeling confident that, like, this tomboyish Laurie or Joey gets to save the day, right? But Bergman Island, like Bergman's films, like there's no catharsis. The threat remains. Agony and isolation are around the corner as long as we keep desiring, as long as we keep pursuing our vocations and having kids and stuff. But there's also like absolutely no comfortable distance from Chris. Like her world is the world of the film. She's a female auteur filmmaker who is the alter ego of a female auteur filmmaker, Mia Hansen Love. And she's also the creator of a female auteur filmmaker. Like there's no, there's no way to watch this film and not be within one of those people's shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's no, there's no sort of unthreatening proxy for a male viewer who wants to stay in a male gaze. And that's one thing I really love about the film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is great. This is my favorite reading of Bergman Island. Thank you so much. I, I love it so much. <laughs> There's this thing about Bergman Island in particular that I think like links it with the rest of her filmography. And that's the idea of the country house. 
Um, it felt like with Bregman Island, like Mia Hansen Love is using her privilege and her access to give this beautiful gift to cinephiles in her audience, right? Like how many of us have dreamt of going to Fuda and like taking this trip? And, and she even takes us inside Bregman's own house. Like I'm never going to get to, a, I'm never going to afford this trip, but she, she took me there and I'm really grateful for it. But his house is also kind of like the ultimate country house in her work. It's an ancestral home, but it doesn't belong to the family of one of her protagonists. It belongs to the family of filmmakers. It belongs to the story of cinema. And that's why it's so powerful when Chris bravely uninvited enters this house and she has the courage and tenacity to like take her place there. And she shoots there and she, she encompasses the house in her own filmography. She incorporates that space into her own narrative, just like Mia Henson Love did. And so I think that's kind of, that's why this is the ultimate the ultimate country house in her work. I'm not yeah. going to bring it back up to discuss it for more than a, a second, but I that just adds something to the the use of the house in Maya also to mm-hmm. me now. Just thinking about it is far, part of a tradition of country houses. That is a recurring motif that you see in, in so many of them is like that. I mean, it, it, well, it's always that like idea of like escaping the city for the country. I mean, and, which is the hallmark of so many folk horror films is mm-hmm. just that going back to that, to that older time and just like the, the clash of value systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, even the, I thought about that with the value systems imparted by the, the white dress and how, you know, even though that's the one that she feels prettiest in, it's a problem because mm-hmm. of these old traditions that, mm-hmm. that everyone kind of feels are like the customs you need to follow and you need to have something that doesn't indicate virginity and purity and you know like the like the, all these complicated things with the dress and i mean they don't really go into it i mean she just you know she'll just wear one of the dresses that she is borrowing but then she uses the dress to seduce joseph mm-hmm. um in a way that felt like it felt like i'm, tr- I'm I, I was trying to think of earlier examples but like just the notion of getting reclothed just to have something to take off i forget if that's something that comes up in all is forgiven or goodbye first love or not or even eden because there's like a lot of playful bedroom scenes in her movies but that particular one i just thought of as far as even after they've like made love it's just like but i still want you to see how pretty i'm in this dress mm. <laughs> like yeah it's, yeah i like it because I like this idea. Yeah, it seems like she's kind of in her filmography. She goes from like, like you're saying, like honoring tradition to having her characters kind of take on the country. Well, first of all, in Lavinia, like abandon the country house because they have to. Mm -hmm. And then in Maya, take over the country house and refashion it in your own image. Um, And I think I think before it ultimately gets burned down. Um, And I think that that in this film, she's not taking over the country house, but she's incorporating it into her own narrative. So in a way, like she is refashioning it for her own purposes. I I also wanted to point out one thing I noticed when you were talking about the scene in Goodbye First Love, where she goes to the bathroom and he follows after her um, at the beginning of the film. It it rhymes with the scene where as they're they're about to make love, she goes like, oh, I need to take a shower real quick. Hmm. (laughs) And, and And he follows her in. And it felt like a, a kind of rhyme, a rhyme to that earlier scene. Yeah, definitely. That's nice. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, it's that the country house thing is. Sorry, I, I feel stuck on it. Apparently, like it, <laughs> it's it's kind of. I at first this was like one of the first things that I was like, why is she doing this in film after film? What's going on? Um, <laughs> And like, so she always has these interludes of her characters spending time at houses in the countryside, usually houses that have been in the family of someone in the film for generations. Mm -hmm. And so like, this is obviously a limitation because it means you can only tell stories about people who are wealthy enough to have 
sort of country houses. Um, but <laughs> right, what you know? But, yeah, right, <laughs> right. And like, but like, but I think I've come to the conclusion that like showing families kind of gathering on holiday, which she does in a few of her earlier films, like it, it really suits her focus on family dynamics. But she also has these very long, very contemplative shots of our characters like isolated in nature around these houses. So we're invited to see them differently maybe with more clarity because she's kind of plucked them out of their daily urban grind and then displaced them with stillness in natural settings. So that keeps our focus on the character rather than the plot. But I think like the family house thing, it also it also serves her concern with time, right? Because like the train is always hurtling forward. We jump in and out at different points and we have to re- you know reorient ourselves continually. But the country house seems like a place where time pauses and it kind of loops, right? Like these are sites of, of repetition and memory. Our characters do the same thing summer after summer, it seems like. Country houses, they don't change the way that regular houses do, right? They're kind of episodic. They remain the same. We just grow older and they, they kind of hold memories of generations. Like Isabelle Huppert's character saying like, I'm going to have to leave the country house. That's where I watch my kids grow up, you know? And, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it seems like these houses are spaces to kind of reflect on time and then as the characters get older, like kind of destroy and remake in a, in a liberating way. Yeah. I don't know if I have the, the words to articulate this, but I, I, I guess I'm thinking now of like the, 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 the idea of, of um, the house being filled with ghosts, you know, because mm-hmm. of Bergman's house. Just, I mean, that being the draw for all the locations, for all the films, as far as like going to the places where raves took place or took, going to places where an epiphany took place in India, or go, you know, going to places that, you know, you have some kind of history with like the ghosts of your past being the inspiration for, for creating new fiction. Because this is the one that's the most explicit about her needing to go to places to find inspiration rather than going on a Bergman safari and just learning about other people's mm-hmm. films. Like she has to go and live life and that's the inspiration. It's not that she gets it from Cries and Whispers. It's like she, she gets it from throwing jellyfish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, yeah. which is, you know, as a former film critic turned director, but someone that isn't really big on film references, I think it's kind of explicitly showing that like, yeah, I mean, her, her cinema is a cinema of evoking poets, evoking painters, evoking mm. musicians. It's not just films about films for film fans. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a nice point. I love that point, Bill. I, I had a really stonery kind of silly thing to say about ghosts. But I want to sit with. Well, I want to sit. It's not really a response to what you said, but it's just kind of like on the theme. Well, go for, go for it. Go for the go for the stoner. Okay, so like I was thinking about how she's obsessed with. Oh, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but I don't. She's she talks about she she makes films, and I think this interview was from like before Eden times. Mm-hmm. So she's made three films by this point, and she's like, yeah, I always make films over such a long time period because I want I want the viewer to be able to see the characters' memories and associations kind of resonate in their present. But that means I have to show the characters' childhoods or I have to show them 20 years earlier. And she's like, someday I'm going to make a film and it's just going to take place over like one year or something, but I'm not there yet. And then she does. She does in like, um, I guess, Maya and Bergman Island sort of. I mean, but there are always these resonances of the past. Go for it. Well, I was going to say, Tony even commends her when he has like no real feedback on her script. He's like, oh, it's over three days. That's new for you. That's that's good. (laughs) Does he? What a dick. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was like thinking about the way that she engages with ghosts throughout her work, kind of romantic ghosts, familial ghosts. There's always this resonance of the past and the present, even though she's a filmmaker who will never use a flashback. 
the train only goes forward. It only goes in one direction. Oh but my she's gosh, still, you're right. Right? She's, it's mad. Um, and I was thinking about like the way that an obsession with ghosts is suitable for an obsession with cinema because there's a way in which every live action film is melancholic and ghostly. And that's because we're always watching a movie where we're emotionally, we're physically affected. We're responding to something in the present that is already gone, right? It's irrevocably past. It can't be repeated again. We go to the cinema to trick ourselves into believing that the past is present because that staged past is sexy or it's funny or it's scary or it's affecting. Mm -hmm. But it's like we're reaching out for the dead in the cinema so that we can respond to that as if it were happening to us now, as if this moment in the past that can never recur again is really happening to us in this moment, as if the past were still alive. And really great cinema reaches back and it, it affects us like it's happening to us in the present. And so I think, I think Mia Hansen Love shows us that this continual desire to connect with the dead, with our continual desire to drag the past into the present, it's not, it's, it's not just a condition of our encounters with cinema, it's a condition of our encounters with one another. Mm, yeah. Because our minds are constantly racing backwards in time, but time only marches forwards. And so we live in that kind of conflict. Um, and it seems like she's determined to show us that like, yo, I get it, but it doesn't have to be this way. Like it's possible to accept what's past and, and move forward because we really have no choice, but it's not always easy. And Bregman Island is, <laughs> it's not, it's not always forgiven. You know, it's not, there's no just acceptance and healing and moving forward. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Oh, a couple of things. Well, one, one I was going to say is, um, you mentioned the matter of fact nudity of Lost in Translation versus how it's portrayed in something like Maya. And I was thinking about Lost in Translation, watching Bergman Island again this time because it's it's also a film from a female auteur that's depicting their ex, who is also a famous director, as but it, but oh. maybe less less spacey than uh, how Spike Jones <laughs> is portrayed. <laughs> Uh, in in Lost in Translation. Holy shit, this is blowing my mind. Sorry, I think I just swore twice in the past like 20 minutes after not doing it for four hours. You can curse as much as you want if you want. This is an an explicit fucking show. (laughs) Hey, Uh, all right, yeah. But um, what I was going to say is these are just two unrelated thoughts, but one is that the dialogue between Amy and Joseph at their last conversation together and when he talks about how he's building something with the woman that he's ultimately going to stay with and not with her. Um, When she's asking for the reasoning, his answer is, uh, I don't know, it's just life. Mm -hmm. And I think about like that, like just, there isn't like a bigger point to be made sometimes. Like it's just like, these are just the things that happen and time's going to go, time's just going to move on. And like that being this kind of underlying kind of almost non-theme that carries over to all of the films. Like it's just whatever drama happens, it's just, it's just how life goes. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it, it, it's not something more profound than that, which is interesting in a, in a Bergman setting where it's like people have these big weighty questions and it's, it's not about something like that. Sometimes it's just, it's just how it goes. <laughs> that's so funny. That's such a funny, yeah, that's so smart. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say was just that the, um, you know, so we, we keep coming back to it, like, but the idea of the uh, the euphoric escape of dancing. And you were saying earlier how this was like kind of a maybe a, a sadder variation on that on those scenes. And can we talk about that a little bit? Just the the scenes at the wedding uh, reception and the use of ABBA and the use of uh, that with that disco song, I Love to Love. I mean, maybe yeah. they're commenting on it a little bit more explicitly with the lyrics. <laughs> 
Yeah. But it's a movie within a movie, so they can do that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I don't have anything smart to say about that. I think you're right. Like, everything you've just said is absolutely right. It's these songs that are about um, two people in a couple who want different things and who are always doing different things, like Chris and Tony. And then um, the ABBA song is about, you know, a woman trying to to withstand the loss of a love and, and stand on her own two feet and, and reclaim her life, sort of. And it's something that we see Amy, like, finally get into. She's finally not moping about Joseph. She's, she starts singing with these other women and she's like, yay, she's doing it. She's singing the song. She's living that life. And then all of a sudden she notices that Joseph is gone and, and she leaves to go look for him. And it's sort of like, yeah, we just can't stand in that moment of reclaiming our lives. We're too, or she is, she's too trapped into the orbit of her love. You yeah. know, this is something I was just thinking about now because, you know, one thing that you correct me if I'm wrong, I'm trying to think, does she ever deal with female friendship in any of these movies? Mm-mm. Because oh wait yes and all is forgiven. Uh, oh yeah 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 she does have. There's yeah. the friend who yeah. Yep yeah, you're, yeah, you're right the the friend who um, whose name escapes me but is there as her partner when she's reconnecting with her father but the um, but yeah because I think about like how she's in this melancholy space but then she's invited to dance to the uh, the winner takes it all and it's like mm-hmm. this this uplift moment that's like immediately like a punch in the gut when it's just cut short. But it's funny because on the one hand, it's like a moment where she's kind of engaging in the pleasures of sisterhood, you know, mm-hmm. like dancing with her friends and like not caring about this, this awful guy. But on the other hand, she's also using it to seduce him or trying mm-hmm. to. Or, so yeah. it's, it's got double, double purpose, you know, and that's, what is that? His last appearance in the film. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, I remember seeing that the first time I saw it, like when they got to that scene, like she's doing it again. I can't believe she's getting away with this <laughs> one more time. I mean, yeah. Didn't get all the dance scenes out of your system with Eden and it still works. I don't know. Why it still works <laughs> yeah, it does work. And I'm yeah. so glad because otherwise I think her films would just be too melancholy and too contemplative. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really, I have kind of two random points to make about Bergman Island left in my bucket yeah. of thoughts. Um, <laughs> brain bucket. Um, there's this, I found this, like, it's like she's giving another gift to cinephiles in this really kind of delicious moment of idolatry mm-hmm. in which we f- we see Tony, who's this famous director, give his masterclass Q&A and he it wraps up with like sustained applause and autographs and then bam, he steps outside the Bergman Institute and he's all of a sudden at like the lowliest rank of film nerd. <laughs> like he's like all alone waiting for his tour to start of like these meticulous sort of nerdy location tour with this bus full of people who are mostly male and mm-hmm. they're shepherded around the island and they're really nitpicking and just being obnoxious. And Tony looks humiliated and bored because he yeah. expected to have Chris with him and now she's she's off gallivanting. And, yes. But it's like Tony is finally where, in, he's in the humiliating position where all of us are who are cinephiles, where <laughs> there's, there's really no cushioning for him between himself and these other uptight nerds. He keeps right? trying. He's like yeah. always off to the side, like taking photographs. Like he's trying to keep himself apart from from the nerds <laughs> yeah but he's not and that's fun for me it's nice it's satisfying to see the smug director fall from his lofty position into this shitty guided tour it feels like retribution to this famous filmmaker yeah um yeah. like he has to like he can talk about his love of cinema but this is what a love of cinema feels like for the rest of us <laughs> <laughs> And I loved it. Um, I had a totally unrelated thing to say, which is like, it makes so much sense that Summer with Monica would surface in a Mia Hansen love film 
And it's, I, I think like kind of the core themes of Summer with Monica are really similar to those of Goodbye First Love in particular, which is like teenagers forming a bond in nature that can't survive their burgeoning adulthood or return to the city. One lover is more domestic, Harry, and another one is more adventurous, Monica. But also in Summer with Monica, Harriet Anderson apparently like helped create this new kind of star in Swedish cinema. One who is raw, who's without makeup, who's without a bra. She's like passionately devoted to an art form. It chimes with the stars of Mia Hansen Love's films. And and Monica's more brash and she's more brutal and she's more headstrong than a Mia Hansen Love character. But I think she could be a kind of ancestor of Camille or Natalie or Louise. Um, and I think that they can really, maybe they can exist in cinema because characters like Monica existed first and they sort of opened the door to rawness for women. And, yeah. yeah, no, you're right. And my, my, my film nerd observation on this would be that... Uh, Summer with Monica and Goodbye First Love were sold the same way as far as like pastoral, sexy, foreign language mm. films. And that huh. was the breakthrough film for both of them in the United States. That's lovely. Yeah. And it's interesting because we leave Harry holding the baby at the end of Summer with Monica and we leave Bergman Island with Tim Roth finally doing some parenting, which is just kind of nice. But um, I'm hard on Tony, but uh, <laughs> but I think it's okay. I think... I think he's an enjoyable villain. You're right, he's not a real villain, but I think he's probably the most villainized film character, like from the film's perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. I will. I always laugh when uh, when he explains that uh, why he knows that Through a Glass Darkly didn't have a real house. Fragment <laughs> 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 yeah. Safari, babe. <laughs> he's such an asshole, but I really... Yeah, he's an enjoyable... I don't want to talk about things we've gone through though it's hurting me now it's history i played all my cards and that's what you've done too nothing more to say no more race to play the winner takes it all the loser standing small Beside the victory That's her destiny I was in your arms Thinking I belong there I figured it and This leads me to one of my final questions, which is <laughs> what character did you identify with most in her filmography? Oh. Um, I happen to identify with Chris a lot uh, because I'm I'm kind of struggling with feeling like I'm in a relationship where someone isn't as curious about my inner life as I would like them to be. But like I just I just find Chris really identifiable. I think I have the same kind of like awkward goofiness that she does. And as much as I might wish I was sort of like solemn and beautiful like Lola Creton or like a total <laughs> badass like Isabelle Huppert, I think I think Chris is really my my figure in these. Oh my films. Gosh. Do you have any thoughts? Do I you have a? I you know I mean I I think I I I think I still probably uh, I don't think I, I it's quite as bad as as the characters in her films, but I mean I think probably some of the ones that are struggling to find their way into adulthood, I think I recognize recognize myself more in them. Maybe not to the degree of Paul or somebody, but I do. Uh, you know the, those those adolescent kind of growing pains. I think. I, I think I still recognize some of those in myself, but I don't know that it, like, at the same time, I, I, it, it's, um, 
a healthy distance that I can see that oh, I'm, I'm at least I'm not in that place anymore <laughs> when I when I watch the characters in her earlier films. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, because I'm not a a um, I, I can't see myself in any Isabel Huppert character. I wish I could. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be nice? Oh, that'd be lovely. Someday I'll be there. I think maybe. I hope. I'm, I'm growing toward it. I hope. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I do definitely, I, I'd like to believe that I'm more likely to go find Bergman's house by myself with my imaginary friend mm. than, than go on the safari, but I would totally go on the safari too. <laughs> you would lead the safari and it would be way better. Yeah, yeah. You, you take me on film locations all the time. It's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, you mentioned, oh, I have a random Isabella Per fact. I don't know if you're curious about this. I, I am. So apparently Isabella Per was drawn to the character of Natalie because she appreciated the tenderness in the character. Mm-hmm. And that's from an interview with her. And then Mia Hansen Love was like, yeah, uh, she liked the character because of the tenderness. And that's not something she'd ever played recently. Like, it's not a characteristic of the character she's played anytime recently. And she was thinking about um, when she was writing Love in Year, Things to Come. She wrote it with Isabella Per in mind, um, mm-hmm. in some part because Per is the actress that her mom had always identified with because of her ability to sort of combine femininity with intellectualism. And apparently this is something that Isabella Per is really known for doing in France, this combination of intellect and femininity. Um, I don't know why those are two opposing things that need to be combined in a characteristic way, but apparently <laughs> that's still where we are in France, so that's fine. Yeah. Um, it's not fine at all, but good for Per for doing it. <laughs> But so in writing this character for Uper, Mia Hansen Love was like, usually people write her characters or she does characters or she's known for doing characters who are really cruel and who are malicious. But Hansen Love has known Uper for a while. They worked together before. She had a chance to observe her up close because she played her daughter in Sentimental Destinies, like you said. Mm-hmm. And she was like, when I knew her, there was no real cruelty about her. Instead, there was a childish maliciousness. So she tried to write in that childish maliciousness into Natalie. And I think it comes out in her snappy comebacks a little bit. And I think it comes out in this, this isn't maliciousness, but in that, this great scene where she's, she enters her apartment and she, Heinz isn't there, but she sees that he's left her a bouquet. And she's like, what the fuck is this? Like, you did not break up with me and leave me a bouquet. And so she goes and she, she's like, she tries to shove it in the trash, but it won't fix. It's too big. And she's like, fine. And she just takes the whole trash and the whole bouquet and puts it in this giant Ikea bag. And she's like, fine, I don't even need the trash can. And she marches downstairs to her like basement dumpster. And she just dumps it in and then she walks away, but she stops and she returns for the Ikea bag because that's a good bag. But, um, <laughs> but it's just these, like this little kind of childish uh, mischief might be a better word than maliciousness. But yeah, I, I really appreciated that a lot in um, in Natalie. And it's nice to know that it comes from something that she observed in Uper herself. Yeah. I don't know if I want to do this whole spiel, but just for your information, there's a really interesting essay that compares post-feminism in the films of Sofia Coppola and Mia Hansen-Love, oh. and specifically in their trilogies that focus on adolescent daughters. And it makes a very convincing argument for Mia Hansen-Love being a post-feminist. Um, and it also like looks at themes of post-feminism in her work in ways that I found really, they made a lot of sense. It sort of, it put a very, I think, very fitting construction around things that had really frustrated me in Hansen-Love's work. It sort of turned on the light in this room um, full of frustration <laughs> for me. So yeah. Yeah. Really I'd be, is it online? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, we'll um, link it's, to it. We'll link to okay, it in cool. the show notes. 
yeah, it's lovely. It's really, it's by Fiona Handyside. I apologize. I had no time to read Kate Ince's book, but maybe we should also mention that there's like a book on her work out there for people who are not satisfied with hearing us talk about her for five hours. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's funny because like I, I started reading Kate Ince's book, The Cinema of Mia Hansen-Lowe, and I was mostly curious to read about the short films that I couldn't, I couldn't see or mm. the, um, the, uh, the years that she was a critic for Kaida Cinema and like talking a little bit about her reviews for certain films and like how that writing sort of predicted themes that she would tackle herself as an artist. But when it got into the actual analysis of the films, I didn't read it because I didn't want it to directly or indirectly come out of my mouth when we were talking about these. So mm. I, w- I saved it to read after we were done with this so I could not have my own opinions affected by uh, her readings of them. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm excited to read it though. I mean, it's what I saw was was definitely compelling and and so welcome because it's it's not a career that I feel like it, it feels like it came either at the right or the wrong time. Because on the one hand, it's like we're in this era where female directors have extra credit in certain circles. Like there's like Mia Hansen love t-shirts and things because, you know. What? Because, yeah, because, you know, have you ever seen those t-shirts that are like female directors? Like it's like black text on white t-shirts, but it's like it's oh, t-shirts yeah. that kind of like push female auteurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I saw them. So people wore them at some awards show on the red carpet, I think, famously. Yeah. And there's a Mia yeah. Hansen love t-shirt. And it's like, you know, she because women directors have famously had a raw deal for feels like centuries, but like certainly for decades, you know, like that people want to stick up for the, the ones that they love it extra hard because they, they, they deal with obstacles that their you know, male counterparts seemingly never encounter. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like the apparatus for making me Hansel love into a major filmmaker, at least in America, no longer exists. And I feel like had she emerged in the 90s, she would have had a chance to become a, maybe not a household name, but at least rise to the level of like a Koslovsky or a, you know, like someone that is, you know, a household name or, or at least among cinephiles. And I feel like because she doesn't make genre films and because she's up until recently, like working in foreign language, like it, it feels like in a way, there's the same kind of thing that Asias has kind of dealt with. Like they never really have had the same kind of success of a Pedro Amadovar or a, you know, Jean-Pierre Junet, you know, that, like that there's not like a doesn't feel like there's the money and the theatrical market to really build them up to the same level of popular notoriety. And maybe I'm just imagining it, but I feel like mm. if you compare her to Sofia Coppola, who has like celebrity even before becoming a director because of acting in Godfather three or her father being a famous director, it's like I always kind of hope that because with celebrity and with money comes more opportunities creatively in terms of getting the money to make these films. Like, I always kind of hope that she will have a bigger audience for one of these films. And I don't know if, I don't know if it's a concern. I mean, clearly she's kind of trucking along without that kind of crossover film, even though seemingly none of these films ever seem to make much money, which it's a business. So I don't know how that kind of works if it's just operating on the level of funding, you know, grants and such. But it'd be nice if she'd always have to struggle to get the, the money for these things. Because at some point that becomes an issue where certain directors that we know and love aren't as prolific after a while because their their work is no longer hip and mm-hmm. without money or credibility, it just becomes a, a challenge. Um, but I mean, I think about like that with each new film of hers, like, is this going to be the one that like makes uh, more people pay attention to the whole body of work? Because I think it's a consistently, I mean, we, we can speak critically about certain titles more than others, but I think, um, I, I think it's a, as a whole, like, 
a totally satisfying uh, filmography for me. Like as far as like following the, the path from always forgiven up to Bergman Island and just how certain ideas evolve and how she has kind of stayed true to her core ideas, but you know, and maybe to a fault, maybe she doesn't grow fast enough in some departments, but I think it's, I don't know. I, I, I've been kind of always excited to see where she goes next with it. Like the way someone like, since we mentioned Bergman, I mean, it's the same thing as Bergman, but I don't know that she will, I don't know if she will make a persona that really feels like a record scratch. Like, what, what are you doing now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, could you talk more about why there would have been an opportunity for her? I forget the word you used. Like, there's no longer the apparatus for her for think, her cinema that there was in the 90s? I, I think don't know because, about that. I think because, because newspapers are no longer a driving force. And so you, oh. can't, you can't advertise the same way that you could back in the 90s as far as like art house films, like you used to be able to make an ad with critical raves and like a compelling image. And maybe that would be enough to drive curiosity. And because media is like so fragmented in the death of print internet age, it's harder to sell things, I think, that are in like what she does. This is just my perception of it. I could be totally wrong. But it feels like on the one hand, word of mouth can spread faster if people like something because mm-hmm. everyone is the internet, but there's mm-hmm. also no, or everyone is the media rather, but like there's no, um, there's no concentrated focus the way that there used to be in so that like you could, you could advertise a film like this more successfully for less money hmm. in, in, in that yeah. time period. And I think also because the way the internet has democratized film culture, that also means that there's no authorities and so there is no Pauline Kael or Roger Ebert or whoever, Molly Haskell, you know, there is no Jonathan. I mean, people like that still exist. Jonathan Rosenbaum still exists, but they don't have like the king or queen maker power hmm. that they did in the old, the old system mm-hmm. so that you can't have, uh, let's say Roger Ebert falls for goodbye first love. You can't have like a, you can't have like someone going on television and in the, in all of your newspapers saying, this is a four-star film, go see it. Mm-hmm. And then people do. Maybe not like everybody, but like it makes a million dollars. You know, you don't have that now. So even if she makes like a masterpiece with Isabel Huppert, it's not quite the same kind of world where that means something the way mm-hmm. it would have if she had made that film with Judy Dench in 1995 or something. You know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's just a different market for it. Mm-hmm. And so... On the one hand, it's like if she makes something good, it's like word will travel among those in the know, but it's mm-hmm. like siloed in a way mm-hmm. that it wasn't in the 90s when these things, to the degree that they crossed over at all. I mean, I'm talking about foreign language art house films. It's like still niche, but you could you could make something like things to come into something that made $20 million, whereas I don't even know that it made a million dollars. Um, so it's just a different thing. But I mean, I mean, because like, yeah, I, I, I think she has some kind of recognition, but it's it's only among the cognoscenti. It's only among mm-hmm. critics and people that, you know, care about these things. I don't know that people would know her outside of those circles because she hasn't had a crossover and because she doesn't, I mean, even like, you know, actress turned filmmaker, like her acting career was kind of limited in art house films that were not like even the most widely seen of, of Asias's movies. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to the degree that like someone like Asia Argento becoming a director and it's like, she mm-hmm. still has that movie star thing kind of informing the, how the, the press covered her films as a director, or Sofia Coppola mm-hmm. too. I, don't, I think Mia Hansen-Love was still kind of unknown as an actress when she became internationally recognized as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, you, you, I mean, you put her alongside someone like Celine Sciamma, 
And it's the same kind of uphill battle for all these this generation of directors. It's like cinephiles know them because there's that concentrated push. But even like film comment is dissolved. Even like the, I mean, you still have sight and sound, but it's like there's less like when there's less of a consensus as far as like what what media even means as far as like media sanctioned artists, mm-hmm. it becomes harder to use that to leverage a career after a certain point. Yeah, that's really interesting. That was put really concisely. I like that. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm kicking myself because I had plans to like summarize this post-feminism essay and then I would get to hear from you in real time what you think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm mostly, I'm, there are some of my own observations in here, but I'm mostly just summarizing the work of Fiona Handyside, okay. who wrote this really brilliant essay comparing trilogies from Mia Hansen Love and Sofia Coppola, and in terms of like how they think about adolescent girlhood in the context of post-feminism. And so like first, the first thing we should talk about is like why Mia Hansen Love seems like a post-feminist herself in interviews. And then we can like look at instances of post-feminism in her films in her themes, for example. Um, so Mia hansen Love Handyside argues, is a post-feminist because she rejects the idea that gender has any significance in her work and that feminism has any relevance to her. For example, in interviews, she's been like, it just so happens that I'm a woman. The world in the cinema is increasingly divided into sociological and communitarian identities, such as men and women, separated by this huge chasm. And this binary view seems to me without interest or use. And in other other interviews she's been like I mean I'm not a feminist actually maybe I am I don't know I don't care about that term right Mm -hmm. so it seems like she's rejecting the fact that like structural differences influence women's access to filmmaking it seems like she's rejecting the fact that women make films from within this specific set of social relations and also she's rejecting the fact that women's filmmaking is influenced to any degree by women's marginal status in the film industry and that's especially true in France where this the concept of the auteur is still very masculinized um, mm. And Hanson Love is in a tour. She fashions her own films from start to finish. And these films tend to focus on the experiences of girls and women as nuanced individuals who are not victimized or sexualized, really. They have sex, but they're not sexualized often by the, the gaze of the camera, right? Mm. And I think the exception to that is Louise in Eden. Uh, when she's having sex, like Paul's body is usually hidden, but Louise's like breasts are like our focus. So it feels very male gazy. But anyway, but but so it seems like Mia Hansen-Love is sort of like, she's focusing on the experiences of girls and women as nuanced individuals. And, and it seems like she's been able to build this career by benefiting from feminist struggles of the past for women to have the ability to be a tourist and to have fair representation on screen. But for whatever reason, Hanson Love does not acknowledge that her work and her position has benefited from feminism. Um, and this is what makes her, by definition, post-feminist. Hmm. Thoughts at this point? Well, I, I, I think we had talked about this, I think, maybe a little bit in Instant Messenger, like as far as identity politics in France and how that's... is. Am I correct in thinking like that's maybe not taboo, but like discouraged as far as feminist like would mean something different there versus how we talk about it? Am I crazy for thinking that it could just be culturally like how she's talking about it? I mean, she she's an international filmmaker that does stories that take place in, in multiple countries, multiple languages. I mean, she's a cosmopolitan kind of artist, but is that maybe the French citizen in her talking when she's shy about those labels? I mean, 
I don't think so. But that's just because whenever Celine Sciamma, who came up as a filmmaker at the same time as Hanson Love, in fact, her first film and Hanson Love's first film shared an award, the Louis de Luc Prize. Yeah, yeah. Um, the way Celine Sciamma talks about feminism, she's talking about the same feminism that I understand to be feminism. And she's quite outspoken about it in an industry that she says is very um, interested in hushing up her discussions of feminism and discussions about things like domestic violence and, and in access to opportunity and that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we can write this off as a cultural difference myself. Yeah, it was just an idea. But the the uh, the other question I would have is do you think that Mia Hansen Love benefits from not asking those questions um, in terms of in terms of the opportunities she's afforded? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it would be much harder for someone who is an outspoken feminist to do what she does. And they would do it totally differently. Like if if we gave S- like Siyama and Mia Hansen Love like a prompt to make a film, they would make a totally different film from one another, you know. Like thinking about the way that post-feminism shows up in Hansen Love's work. Mm-hmm. Like apparently like when you use the term post-feminism to describe media, you're usually looking at work that sort of like entwines feminist and anti-feminist elements. So you might be also looking at films that like focus on individualism and on choice as empowerment because post-feminism is really linked to neoliberalism in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So to give like one example of like a tangle of feminist and anti-feminist elements in Mia Henson Love's early work, which I'm again borrowing from Handyside because it's a good example. One could say that All is Forgiven, The Father of My Children and Goodbye First Love have feminist sensibilities because they focus on the complicated roles of loss and grief in growing up female. Mm-hmm. But the grieved loss is always male. Fathers and lovers are entirely forgiven while mothers become somewhat estranged and oppressive figures. Like, even though the lost men are generally unreliable, our characters' hostility, to the extent that they have any hostility, is always directed at their moms for some reason. Mm -hmm. So someone might read, like, a patriarchal position into that. And sort of this subtle patriarchy within stories of girlhood is apparently a real calling card of post-feminist cinema. People have written apparently a lot about the fact that many post-feminist films take place in girl world, which is like this blurry zone between childhood and adulthood that fosters experimentation and desire on the one hand, but is also pretty patriarchal in terms of like body image and rescue fantasies on the other. And so dads, even absent ones, tend to be the emotional touchstones in girl world. And this girl world extends to adult women in post-feminist cinema, including Hanson Love's women. A scholar named Sarah Perjanski writes, if the post-feminist woman is always in process, always using the freedom and equality handed to her by feminism in pursuit of having it all, but never quite managing to attain full adulthood, to fully have it all, one can say that the post-feminist woman is always quintessentially adolescent, no matter what her age. Um, And that really chimed with this idea of characters in Hanson Love's work always being in a process of becoming. And I think the exception to this is Lavenure. And even though our character is still in the process of healing, she seems to be fully realized to the extent that she gains a lot of power. She's also quite a bit older than the other characters. Yeah, because and it, I was going to say, just because that's a case where she seems to be writing her mother as the character rather than herself as a surrogate, you know? Yeah, like- word. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And also, I think it's interesting to just note here that like Things to Come is, as far as I can tell, the only film that has gotten attention among feminist critics that I could find. So, yeah, if anyone's interested in like a feminist reading of Things to Come, there's one in Another Gaze. It's an online film journal that's really nice. But this kind of brings us to another tangle of feminism and anti-feminism in Mia Hansen Love's work. So like on the one hand, 
we are always asked to identify with the, the vulnerable, the raw, the still becoming object of our gaze. Chris, for example, or Camille, and not the people who gaze at her. Like, we're not invited to identify with Hampus or Sullivan, really. There's no male character who mediates our identification with these girls and women. So that's the sort of the feminist angle. And then the anti-feminist angle is that, like, Hanson Love tends to keep her characters immature and daughterly. Again, with the exception, I think, of Natalie and Things to Come. And her many other female protagonists, including Chris, I think, try to break out of the orbits of their family and inheritance, but they only end up being pulled back into the orbit, willingly or not, into these loves and relationships that constrain their sense of self. I think this is actually especially evident at the end of Bergman Island. But yeah, I mean, like I said, Hanson Love has described One Fine Morning, which comes out this year as a follow-up to Things to Come. So maybe it'll be another feminist entry in her filmography, but who can say? I, I, I can say that it's my most anticipated film of the year, uh, knowing nothing more than the title. Yeah. Uh, you know, but... Um, I am kind of curious what, I mean, and I know that it got a mostly positive reception it can. I mean, nothing ever gets total across the board raves, but I mean, I I think that it it got like a good reception. So I am curious, but I I always go in, in, you know, with no information beyond just the title and just, oh, this is the new work from her. Um, Something you said, um, the perpetual adolescence. I mean, the only thing I was going to say, and I don't, I don't know if that uh, this always really applies, but I think about like whenever artists attain major recognition when they're kind of young and I'm thinking of like how young she was at the time that she made all is forgiven mm-hmm. that sometimes that kind of traps people from maturing mm-hmm. when they start having lots of strangers calling them a genius. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think of plenty of guys in all the art that I follow that seem to have struggled with this. Mm-hmm. And I, I could imagine that it's, not limited to gender, that that idea of just not being in a position where you're kind of compelled to mature and unless you, you know, the obstacles that make you grow as a person become less presented to you when you're a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't know if that definitely. applies to her or not. I mean, she's not like mega famous, but I mean, she's famous enough that that like we've said, like comes from like a more, maybe a more privileged background, but I mean, being an internationally renowned figure, I mean, even if she's not making a lot of money, I mean, she's a parent now. I mean, and and I feel like that's kind of informing certainly a work like Bergman Island seems come from a different perspective and maybe even a greater detachment from whatever kind of trauma origin story informs Goodbye First Love. I mean, she's, she's now got like multiple layers beyond it because she's making a film about the maker of a Goodbye First Love. Hmm. Yeah. And she's finally, she's had two kids by different men, which is, I think, yeah. sounds like something she really wanted. She's only got seven <laughs> so to go. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel <laughs> proud of other her. men. <laughs> oh, good for her. You go, Mia Henson Love. You procreate. Um, yeah. 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 Oh, um, but yeah, no, I, I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't really have any further thoughts on other than what we already said. Um, but uh, I want to thank you so much for spending all of your Saturday with me uh, talking about the, the films of Mia Hansen Love. Uh, let me ask, I mean, for anyone that wants to keep up with your work, I mean, is there any place that you recommend that people check in with you? I mean, what are you working on now that's film related? Yeah. So right now I'm preparing. I, I've, I've been really jealous of people who get to study film with a teacher. Mm-hmm. I've been really jealous of people who get to study and have someone look at their work and comment in a, in a structured way. So I've decided to put myself through grad school. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm starting in September just because, just because I want someone to give me feedback in a, 
in an academic way. I want to get good at academic writing and research. I sort of want to put myself through that mill before I decide whether I want to try to do more sort of freelance booklet stuff or whether I want to pursue academia. I just need to give it a shot. So I'm going to grad school in September. So it's mid-August now and um, the rest of my summer will be reading up on undergrad film textbooks because I've never taken a film course in my life um, <laughs> but if it, if anyone is so I, that's my way of saying that I don't have any active projects now that this is done mm-hmm. um, but if anyone is curious about what I've been working on um, I've just turned my Facebook account into that essentially just posting mm-hmm. work uh, that I appreciate and some of it's my own uh, so yeah and you can anyone can find me on Facebook by googling my name so yeah okay well uh, I think that's it so thank you so much uh, to anyone who's made it to the end Uh, Thank you all for listening and uh, take care. Thank you so much, Bill, for giving me this time. And anyone who's made it to the end, you deserve a prize. Thank you so much. (laughs) 